on this episode of Skeptico, an anniversary show with some very special guests. Welcome to Skeptico, where we explore controversial science and spirituality. There's Al Borealis from Forum Borealis, who sprung this surprise party on me. I feel that Alex's interviews went in greater depth than almost any others in this area. There's the incredible Rupert Sheldrick, who plays an important part in the origin story of Skeptico. You'll hear more from him in just a minute. And you'll also hear from some other friends I've met along the way. Here's Greg Carlwood from Higher Side Chats. And if a person is not going to factor consciousness into their scientific work or their model of reality, then of what value is it really? Just as any true analysis of power or historic events or business has to factor in conspiracy, or it's probably grossly inaccurate. Well, you hold people to these points with extreme consistency, and it's a beautiful thing. That's a good one. And here's Gordon White from Rune Soup. I don't remember when or how I found Skeptico, but it was about a decade ago. Alex's voice and his quest uh, and his continuous seeking were just eye-opening and, and wonderful. And here's Darren and Graham from Grimerica. Hey, Alex, coming at you from Grimerica. Darren and Graham just wanted to wish you a happy 15th anniversary. Yeah, thanks, Alex. I mean, he's been so helpful for us, eh, Darren? I mean, he's been great. He was one of those guys that gave us a chance and supported us along the way. And then, just when you think you're listening to a good old four-hour, yes, it's four hours, anniversary show, a fight breaks out in the bathroom. I can't let go of this, McGill. I can't let go of Mitch Horowitz, who's been on your show. Yeah, I have faith in Mitch. He's a, he's a, he's a good guy. I'm going to have more to say about that clip in a minute as well. But I first want to say how thankful I am to Al Borealis from Forum Borealis for putting this together. I never would have done something like this. And I don't know how many people will be interested in listening to four hours of it. But it was a really, really special treat and a special honor to go back and walk through this Skeptico project that I've been on. So before we get to the show that Al's put together, I wanted to just make a couple of points about the Rupert Sheldrick clip and the Miguel Connor clip. Because in true anniversary fashion, if you were going to have two clips that provided kind of bookends to what this show is all about, those would be it. I mean, in Rupert's clip, he talks a lot about the whole thing we did way back in the day with Richard Wiseman, where we had this intense scientific debate with Wiseman and these other skeptics that just exposed these people. Here's how Rupert puts it. I mean, it was an extremely misleading operation. But Alex really went into this. You know, he interviewed Richard Wiseman. He interviewed me. He read the various papers. And then in one of the programs, he had us on together in a kind of debate. And, you know, no one else had done that. I mean, for example, Michael Shermer's skeptic column in Scientific American or the Skeptical Inquirer or skeptical claims in newspapers and the media. Uh, you only hear their side. And at one stage, 
you remember the late James Randi was always going around saying he got this million dollar prize for anyone who could show psychic phenomena. And he used this uh, as a media stunt and the the rank and file of the skeptic movement would reiterate his claims. If it's so good, why don't, why don't you claim the million dollars? So um, Alex did actually try and claim the million dollars. He found a dog that knew its owner was coming home in, in, in the United States. He did some filming. He did some experiments. And then he got in touch with James Randi saying he'd like to enter the contest. He'd got this dog that knew when his owner was coming home. And this was based on my own work on the subject. And Randy, who'd lied about doing experiments of his own, which he never did, and lied about analyzing my data, which he never saw in detail, was obviously rather reluctant to get involved. So that's really what Skeptico was all about. That's the origin of Skeptico. And I'm certainly very proud of that and proud of all the fantastic frontier scientists that I was able to connect with and bring to people who needed to hear that information. But this anniversary show also provides a look at where Skeptico is now and where it's headed because about three and a half hours into this, Miguel Connor from Aeon Byte Gnostic Radio, who graciously joins us to congratulate and do the anniversary show thing, <laughs> gets dragged into a discussion about what is really driving me right now. And that is, how do we seek and understand truth on both a personal level and in the public domain? I can't let go of this, Miguel. I can't let go of Mitch Horowitz, who's been on your show, who when I asked Mitch Horowitz if he's a Satanist, he said, yeah. And then I said, here in writing, you've said one of your inspirations is Michael Aquino. And he says, yeah. And I said, yeah, but Michael Aquino has been outed as a pedophile at the Presidio. Yeah, I have faith in Mitch. He's a, he's a, he's a good guy and he's a good friend. So I'm sure Mitch will come around. And he, of course, he talks a lot about many of his heroes that, uh, that he's had. So I think uh, we'll just see where this goes. But uh, yeah. It's not going anywhere. All this information has been out for years. And the guy is a Satanist. So, you know, whatever that means to be publicly a Satanist and to publicly defend Aquino, again, this is where we, we differ a little bit. It's awesome. I still love you. I still love all your work. But I think the litmus test thing, as uncomfortable as people are with that idea, yeah, I think there are litmus tests out there. If, if you don't understand that 9-11 was an inside job, I mean, that's a litmus test. Your worldview is somewhat limited or you're trying to deceive. In the case of Mitch Horowitz, he knows better about Aquino. He just wants to mislead people that, that this well-known Satanist, Michael Aquino, was not who he said he was. And that's the only- not the Satanism part that gets you, right? I think we, it's the pedophilia part. Yeah. That's, that's no, the it's, the, it's the Satanism part because the do what thou wilt, as you correctly pointed out, I think that is the abomination on spirit on divinity, on the light that, that is really what matters. Whatever Satanism is, again, and it can only be defined by a totally corrupt Christian understanding of it, but the only way to understand it is to understand it as deception, as darkness, as whatever those other, you know, we all know the tools in the playbook, you know, do what thou wilt, all those things, but it's darkness. It's to bring you away from the light.
So going forward, you can definitely count on the truth thing, which leads into the evil thing and leads into the conspiracy thing, as well as the science thing. You can count on all that being front and center in terms of what the show is all about. And as I was mulling all that over, it reminded me of a line from an old Mac Miller song. I was looking for what was looking for me. I think Mac was looking for the wrong things, but the line works equally well if you're looking for the right things. If you're looking for truth, if you're looking for the light, the light and the truth will find you. And with that, and with a final big, big thanks to all of you who've listened to and contributed to this show and all the amazing guests I've had on this show that have just added so much to me personally, to my personal growth in a way that I just always imagined that this show would do. I just have to give a big, big hug of gratitude. All right, Al, 15-year anniversary show coming up. Welcome to Skeptico, where we explore controversial science and spirituality with leading researchers, thinkers, and their critics. I'm your host, Al Borealis, standing in for Alex today, as he's otherwise preoccupied with an interview as we speak. And apropos, on this episode, we welcome our first-time guest, namely the yogi godfather of indie podcasts, Mr. Skeptico himself, Alex Akiris. But before we kick off the show... Listen to this. I don't have to tell you things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad. It's a depression. Everybody's out of work or scared of losing their job. The dollar buys a nickel's worth. Banks are going bust. Shopkeepers keep a gun under the counter. There's nobody anywhere who seems to know what to do, and there's no end to it. We know the air is unfit to breathe, and our food is unfit to eat. We sit watching our TVs while some local newscaster tells us that that's the way it's supposed to be. We know things are bad, worse than bad. They're crazy. It's like everything everywhere is going crazy, so we don't go out anymore. We sit in the house, and slowly the world we're living in is getting smaller, and all we say is, please, at least leave us alone in our living rooms. Let me have my toaster and my TV and my steel-belted radios, and I won't say anything. Just leave us alone. Well, I'm not going to leave you alone. I want you to get mad. I don't want you to protest, I don't want you to write, I don't want you to write to your congressman because I wouldn't know what to tell you to write. I don't know what to do about the depression and the inflation and the Russians. All I know is that first, you've got to get mad. You've got to say, I'm a human being, God damn it! My life has value! So, I want you to get up now. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! I'm not going to take this anymore! Even if you've never seen the 1976 movie Network, you know the line delivered by the one honest newsman, Howard Beale, played by Peter Finch. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore, crystallizes the anger and powerlessness felt by the individual who has no recourse optional plan, trapped in a system of lies, corruption and control. Uh, sounds familiar, Alex? And, and welcome to the show, by the way. 
<laughs> Welcome, you sneaky devil, you <laughs> sneaky, sneaky devil. So, do do we have to like uh, explain the metaphor here, or? Well, you know, like we were just chatting about a minute ago, we could probably go really deep into that, and because there's some spiritual implications with that too. You know, I mean, what are we supposed to do? Are we really supposed to get angry? And given that that was a movie from way back then, and it still reverberates today, what does that say about our situation that we think is so new and unique and crafted just for us? I don't know, man. You know, that's the whole uh, deep into the rabbit hole that we're going to go. Yeah, that's for sure. And usually you line up these kind of video clips to reflect on the guests. And I think, like, if you go back to the 70s, of course, nobody did what this uh, character in the movie did. But <laughs> in the movie, there was at least one honest newsman. And while we may look back at the clumsy way he wanted to, I mean, he managed to get everyone out of the windows. It, that's this butterfly effect, you know, like Mark Gober told you in a recent interview. And mm -hmm. so I kind of think of you in this, you're not angry like him. But you are trying to shake people out of the sleep and you are seeking truth. And uh, uh, I also think you have influence. Uh, we, we're going to review that today, actually. Okay. Now, I have to say, uh, before we really get going here, is that Alex is completely oblivious of most of today's show. He gave me the full power to do it uh, my way. And so <laughs> we're going to try to limit the, like... Oh, you said when you inflate someone's ego, the ass kissing, the <laughs> bribery. I don't know the English word, but you know what I mean. Yeah. But if something like that happens, it's not Alex's fault, okay? <laughs> He's as oblivious as the listener. Well, I've been instructed by you to stay within some very narrow guidelines. Yes, so, yes exactly. And I'm always trying to engage with you because <laughs> I love our dialogue so much, but I've been told just to shut up. So that's what I'm going to do. Yeah, today I'm just a robot. I'm going to try not to dominate this thing. Uh, let's start uh, by something that maybe many listeners are not so aware of, and that's your background. I'm, I'm talking about the pre-skeptical. I mean, like, like me, you're a rather private guy, but you, you share whatever you want i think there's uh, some key experiences at least that would be interesting for people who love the show to know about because i think it has informed i mean we are all a sum total of our experiences right and you you didn't have a career in radio before you started this so so how how on earth did you end up or, or i should say what on earth did you do before skeptical well yeah i was really just a business guy but even before, so, you know, I went to school and I got an undergraduate degree in computers, computer science, and then I got an MBA and my college was really, I have a football, I had a football scholarship and I was very focused on playing football and that was kind of my thing, my life, you know, but I was, I, I did, you know, manage to get the undergraduate degree and the MBA and then I went to work for a, a consulting company, Pricewaterhouse, a big eight accounting firm and i was doing computer programming basically for hire you know they mm. put you in a brooks brothers suit and then all of a sudden they can bill you out for astronomical amounts of money so, so you sat in a cubicle oh yeah <laughs> i've done although, that too <laughs> although you know that's more of a where i worked it was kind of a work for hire thing you know so they would rent you out you know and you right, would go right. to 
Ralston Purina or Anheuser-Busch. I was in St. Louis office in the United States in St. Louis, Missouri. And, you know, these were the large, you know, Fortune 100 clients that we had. So, and then I got a, I, so I was doing that and then I wound up in Alaska on a job for the state of Alaska. Whoa, you lived in Alaska. Yeah, I did in Juneau. That's hardcore. Yeah, it was great. And, uh. But I, I really decided that this corporate thing and the cubicle thing, I mean, I didn't understand it. That the, I didn't understand the soul crushing part, but I understood the soul crushing part. You know what I mean? Like, mm. I think so many people can relate to this. You know, you don't exactly, you can't exactly put your finger on what's wrong with this because you're doing what you were been programmed to do and what, you know, what, what everyone's telling you is success, you know? So I was trying to look for a way out. And I said, you know what? I'll go back to school. I get a PhD. I can teach. But hang on, hang on. At this point, you already had uh, taken a degree in what subject? So I was undergraduate in computer science and then a master's in business administration. Oh, okay. okay. So I was kind of a, a, a business guy. Yeah. So I decided to go back. PhD, the primary goal of the PhD was not anything academic or intellectual. It was like, hey, get a PhD in business and you can kind of make really decent money as a professor. It's high in demand, da, 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 da. Go to the University of Arizona. So I start teaching computer science classes while I'm getting my PhD in information systems. And then I stumbled across this thing, artificial intelligence. And I ran into um, a, a guy happened to be, you know, I never made this connection, but it was a Norwegian guy and we became really good friends, Oystein. And Oystein had a <laughs> typical Norwegian name. <laughs> he had a similar background to me and he had worked for a, an accounting firm like I had. And uh, we both were fascinated with AI and we started kind of put cobbling together a curriculum in artificial intelligence. And then, so that's what we're doing. I was off and running. And then I got into it and I got a couple of uh, 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 opportunities to go and teach at corporations. The first one was Texas Instruments, you know, the defense contractor, you know, mm. but uh, a lot of bright people there. And they said, Hey, come on in and teach our engineers about artificial intelligence. We want to do that. And that led to a job at DuPont. And I had all these corporate wow. clients and I was making a lot of money relative at the time, you know, I yeah. thought, wow, you know, screw the PhD. You know, I was a couple <laughs> years into it. I'm going to be a multimillionaire in yeah. no time with this yeah. AI stuff. So I left and I started a company called MindPath Technologies in Dallas, Texas, and uh, and and you invented stuff. You're 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 an inventor, or was an inventor. Well, I I saw that again. <laughs> you know, I just saw that as it, it, the intellectual property play, the IP play. You know, you're referring to like uh, Mark Gober. That's what he used to do. Is 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 essential in high tech. So hmm. I don't know if I was an inventor as much as from a business standpoint, protecting your intellectual property right as your intellectual property is a smart move. So I applied for patents and I got some patents and all the rest of that. But again, my play was just about the money, just about getting paid, you know, I wasn't. But, but surely you must have given thought to the, con because the concept of artificial intelligence was new back then. That's when it started basically. And 
I mean, I mean, of course, the concept has been imagined by people, but, but that's when people started to working with something that could go in that direction. Did you at that point, because you weren't that, you, it was before you had explored consciousness and all this, you, you probably didn't make your mind up for sure on stuff, but did you have any thoughts about if it ever could become like a real sentient thing? Did you believe that back then? No, I didn't, because the AI at that point was so weak and so lame, and it was really kind of a hype. just, it was very hype. And for mm. people who were really into information systems and computer science, they saw it as hype. They said, this is just computer programming. Yeah. It's being relabeled <laughs> as artificial intelligence. As, as Cliff I said, um, he says, trash in, trash out, something like that. <laughs> well, it, th there's there's that aspect of it. The other aspect of it is if anyone who's ever used a spreadsheet, um, you know, realizes two things that one, like the spreadsheet is good for doing stuff that would be really hard to do manually, you know, adding up numbers in a column like they've had to do since the Babylonian times or whatever, you know, it's really great at that. Yeah. But the other thing that it, it becomes something of its own beast, if you will, because now you can start doing forecasting with just a simple spreadsheet that would be completely impossible. And that causes, from a consciousness standpoint, for you to imagine problems that you never would have imagined because now you have that tool. And the same thing goes on with AI. So mm. now you amp that up times a thousand because that's how many factors greater it is now. And AI is reaching some places that no one had had really anticipated and we're not really sure what the implications of those are you know i'm so all all that is is an interesting separate discussion but at the time no i was just you know mm. looking to uh I, I just saw it as an opportunity really as a business opportunity mm. well with quantum computing that's a game changer so um, we have to watch that spot and see how it develops. But I'm still, I'm still uh, leaning towards. No, it's not going to be. It's not going to be sentient in any way, shape, or form. But if, if they can make them so refined that we can't tell the difference, exactly that I believe. Oh yeah. yeah so they will become like it, it may be a robot, right? And and you'd think you're interacting with a human being, but it's just a super advanced computer program. There's no sentient life or well, consciousness that already, there. That already goes on today. You know, if you ever, yeah. if you ever trade stocks. I, the example I always use, mm -hmm. if you trade stocks, you are competing with a robot, an AI robot. If you oh, yeah, play, yeah, for specific it, tasks, chess, right? Chess, chess uh, poker, but mm. this is for money, right? If you go online and you play online poker for money, you're competing with a robot. Not all the time, but you're likely to run across a robot. So, and that's where it really pops up. People think of it as a robot's gonna walk up to you and serve you tea, well, no, the first time you're going to encounter a robot, and you already are encountering a robot, yeah, is okay. when you go onto your screen because that's where they're the best. So again, stock trading, you know, any anything, you know, how long you wait in line on for technical support, or you know how right, right. whether you're, we all see it in advertising, you know. So all that yeah. stuff is where AI is just it's it's not even worth discussing its potential. It's already here. It will further and further encroach. I don't know if that's the right word, but you know, yeah, we're already there. Yeah. Well, folks, you'll be so happy you tuned in today. See, you already got the free business idea. 
get a super good poker robot, put him in your account and make him play all the different online uh, uh, competitions, etc. And just earn money. Very good business idea. Right, right. <laughs> but you had other values or I should say thought processes than just business back then because uh, we all know Rupert Sheldrake was essential in, in getting skeptical off the ground. But there is a story between that happened and you deciding to become rich. And, and you actually managed that. I well, mean, see, yeah. the thing, the other thing is that's that again, you know, this is so awesome for that you're doing this and it's, it's flattering. And it's almost also fun, you know, to go through all this stuff. But mm. the, the parallel path I was on that you can relate to and probably resonates with the Skeptico show is I was the yogi. I was a yogi. I don't know why, but I knew I was drawn to this stuff. And like I have said a couple times, you know, I'm sitting in a little 400 square foot apartment in Dallas, Texas, very small, crappy apartment with no rent because I'm an entrepreneur startup and I'm putting all my money into my business. And at the same time, I'm doing correspondence courses with Yogananda, the author, the author of Autobiography of a Yogi. And, mm. you know, it's pretty obscure stuff. If you've ever looked at, if you take those books, if you read his book, Autobiography, Autobiography of a Yogi, Great you're invited book. to do the correspondence courses, which, you know, I've been down to the center. I now live like, I, I, I ride my bike uh, many days up to a little peak where I look out over at Yogananda's uh, ashram. Wow. It's it's unbelievable this connection that I have, and I do yoga. Is he is he is he buried in in California? I don't think he is. Um, oh, but, ashram, uh, not a grave. Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, and and he has several centers. He has a center in L.A., but he has a really significant one in Encinitas, California, near where I live. That's really beautiful, and has a lotus flower, and there's a yoga uh, cafe uh, or Swami's cafe right across the street. And you know, when I talk to Riz Verk, who we'll probably talk about in the show. Funny thing is, and funny thing, you know, coincidences. So I'm interviewing Riz and fantastic genius MIT computer scientist Brilliant guy. game AI expert simulation theory expert and he goes hey I was just and this is before I'd give him the whole yoga thing he goes mm -hmm. I was just contracted by an Amer an Indian publisher with an American connection to do an autobiography or to do a biography of Yogananda and I said so then I told him the whole thing, my connection with Yogananda. I said, when you come down, let me know. Well, you know, it's right up the road. We'll go to the Swami's Cafe. So I didn't see it as particularly unusual that I had this intense, you know, pull towards yoga. And at the same time, I was all about the money and that I was doing, as an entrepreneur and I'm doing the correspondence classes. But that's was, that's what I was about. So it was like, as soon as I had a chance to, cash in my business i was like great that's out of the way now <laughs> now back to the yeah. stuff that i really want to explore which is you know who am i why am i here and as much as i was a yogi i was skeptical of all that crap because yeah, yeah let, let me add a couple of things because we're going to leave that subject matter just on yogananda he was also a freemason initiated into freemasonic order now um, did not know that no most people don't but this was in the time, you remember when the skeptics had this outreach where they were so visible in everywhere. 
this must have been that time, right? Yes. Right. So you got drawn into that, uh, those debates that was happening then. Oh, yeah. That was a big part of, of, of what my show wound up being about initially, not because of I was pointed in that direction, but as soon as you started to explore any of this stuff, you encountered these people in a very major way. And I don't want to step three, four steps ahead. But boy, I look back on what would all what all that was about. And I see it completely differently than I did at the time. Yeah. And I yeah. think that vantage point, which you and I have talked about, has really been brought into focus by the pandemic more than anything else. It's, yeah, it's kind yeah. of we, we all took them more seriously than they deserve. But um, but back then, uh, when uh, I mean, you, <laughs> I mean, in skeptical, you went into the whole problem with a no nonsense businessman's attitude, which is fantastic. It's the same with the uh, with Mark Ober that I actually interviewed yesterday. I mean, I've never had a guest who's so succinct and to the point. Usually I have to fight with the guest over the world. He answers your question exactly as you asked it, and then he's done. <laughs> he said to his defense, yeah, I'm used to being in board meetings. <laughs> so I'm, I'm thinking, I'm thinking you took some of that no nonsense approach uh, into skeptical, but actually that's going too far. Uh, you must have discovered Rupert Sheldrick at some point, um, and that conflict. I, I did. Well, the way I discovered Sheldrick is kind of as you're talking about, you know, we all have different personalities, and then we're our personalities are shaped by our training, you know, so yeah, my training both as a computer programmer and as a business person was pragmatic. Uh, like you say, kind of sort through the bullshit, which you're surrounded by in business. I mean, a lot of people who are not in business don't realize that. But I mean, you just surrounded by that, you either learn how to sort through it very quickly, or you're just, or you don't get very far, you're just mm. plowed under. So I, you get Sheldrick, you understand Sheldrick. Sheldrick is that, that energy in a lot of ways. Sheldrick, Sheldrick is a nice guy, but he's kind of a no bullshit guy, you know, yeah. and he doesn't suffer fools mildly. And but in a very polite way. So I just like the matter of fact way that he talked about this stuff. And I was drawn to that. And at the same time, Dean Radin, I mean, uh, again, the, the coincidence thing versus, you know, right timing thing. But my first two interviews are with Dean Radin and Rupert Sheldrick. Yeah, back then, uh, hard, Radin. hard to top that. Yeah, of course. But back then, I don't think Radin was, I mean, he was very well known in, in academic circles back then. Uh, Shellrek had already gotten a name outside of those circles. But, um, okay, so you discovered this thing, and, and uh, I think you were in touch with Shellrek too before you launched the show? I actually got in touch with Shellrek and I said, somebody needs to somebody needs to be interviewing you more and getting your opinions out there. Yeah. And he said, why don't you do it? Right. And I said, I don't, I, I don't know anything about that. I've never done, I don't do that. Well, we got to get somebody else. <laughs> right. We, we have, I actually have lined up your, your explanation of how it all started. Let's listen to that and then, uh, okay. and then uh, comment. But, you know, <laughs> since Sheldrick was such a crucial figure to get it started, I wonder what take he would have on it. You know what? Let's use the power of imagination, as one says. So if Rupert was with us right now, I would simply ask him, how would you describe the inception of Skeptico? 
as well as its evolution, and what message would you have for Alex? Take it away, Rupert. Yes. Well, so the thing is, I can't say very much about his recent activity, you know, because I don't follow podcasts much because I don't drive cars or jog or anything. So um, I do watch YouTubes a bit, but not... Um, so I haven't been following the Skeptico podcast in detail. So when I look at the website, it seems that his scope is now considerably broader and he's dealing with political type issues as well as the mere the skeptic situation. But uh, um, no, I'd be happy to talk about things I hopefully do know a bit about. So I'm a long time ago. I was running a website called skepticalinvestigations.org, which has now changed its name some years ago to Skeptical About Skeptics. And the reason I was doing that was that um, I was just really annoyed at the way that these so-called skeptics, who are basically dogmatic materialists, were getting away with murder. They were pretending to be the voice of the science establishment and the voice of science and reason. They were taken seriously by the media. They were always appearing on, at least on British media and in American media. And they'd had a well-funded campaign through the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry, or PSYCOP as it then was, the Committee for the Scientific Investigation of Claims of the Paranormal. Um, you know, a well-funded way of trying to dominate the media and to keep anything about parapsychology out of serious media and the educational system and dominate Wikipedia. Well, all of that was something really annoyed me and, and I thought there has to be a countervailing voice. And so uh, with a group of, of other people doing research in these areas, we started this website, Skeptical Investigations, to investigate skeptics and, the, and their organizations, not to write polemics, not to be rude or have personal attacks, but simply to have dossiers showing how little scientific credibility most of them have and, um, you know, how flawed their arguments are and how uninterested they are in reason and evidence, even though they claim to be. So anyway, um, Alex read this uh, website and read articles on it, and he got in touch with me and said he liked this approach and was, you know, thought it was very helpful. And what could he do to get involved? And there wasn't a lot he could do to get involved with the website because, you know, he could have written some articles, but he had plenty of time and energy. Um, and that would have been, you know, slightly a waste of his energies. And I've forgotten whether he brought it up or whether I did. We had some telephone calls. Uh, and I suggested, or he suggested, a podcast dealing with these kinds of themes. I've forgotten whose idea it was in the first place. But anyway, it became a podcast, and um, he did it very well. I mean, he um, really went in depth into these various topics. And so anyway, he launched the Skeptico podcast. And then um, he, at one stage, I met, I've only met him once in person. Um, he was doing a film about consciousness. I was teaching at the Esalen Institute in California, and he came by and we did an interview there for his film. Uh, one of the problems with the interview was that the ocean waves were so loud that it was slightly hard to hear what either of us was saying. Um, because it was right by the Pacific Ocean. Anyway, that's a, so it started really with Alex contacting me before he started Skeptico, you know, discussing the general situation, what's going on. And at that time, um, as you might know, he wasn't particularly 
against the skeptics, he thought they might be right. So I think he genuinely wanted to find out who was right. You know, the people who did psychic research and claimed there were phenomena really happening, like the sense of being stared at and telepathy and dogs that know when their owns are coming home. Or um, whether the skeptics were right and that the whole of this was just deluded pseudoscience. And um, he was genuinely keen to find out. And so he interviewed people on both sides. And I think that as a result of that, he fairly soon realized that actually the skeptics didn't have very much to say except denialism and denunciation and, um, in some cases, um, misleading claims. I feel that Alex's interviews went in greater depth than almost any others in this area because he was not trying to just put one side. He was trying to look at the other side. And, for example, I had a long-running dispute with Richard Wiseman, who claimed that dogs didn't know when their owners were coming home, even though when he did an experiment with the dog I was working with, he got the same results as me that actually confirmed my data. Um, and there's been a lot written since then about his misleading claims and uh, the way he managed to get his claims all over the newspapers as if he could totally debunk this phenomenon when he'd confirmed it. And it was an extremely misleading operation. But Alex really went into this. You know, he interviewed Richard Wiseman, he interviewed me, he read the various papers, and then in one of the programs, he had us on together in a kind of debate. And, you know, no one else had done that. And it was really helpful um, to have a forum in which people could hear both sides of this argument. Because normally in the skeptic uh, media, I mean, for example, Michael Shermer's skeptic column in Scientific American or the Skeptical Inquirer or skeptical claims in, in newspapers and the media, uh, you only hear their side. And um, so it was really um, unusual to have a forum where both sides could be heard. And I think that's one of the great strengths of, um, of Alex and, and his whole project. Alex has not only the skills of interviewing people and the energy to make this podcast work, but um, he was, has also had various proactive enterprises, in, more like an investigative journalist. I mean, there's something about his style which is that of a good investigative journalist. And at one stage, you remember the late James Randi was always going around saying he got this million dollar prize for anyone who could show psychic phenomena. And he used this uh, as a media stunt. And the, the rank and file of the skeptic movement would reiterate his claims. If it's so good, why don't, why don't you claim the million dollars? So um, Alex did actually try and claim the million dollars he um, found a dog that knew its owner was coming home in 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 the united states um he did some filming he did some experiments and then he got in touch with james randy saying he'd like to enter the contest he got this dog that knew when his owner was coming home and this was based on my own work on the subject um and Randy, who'd lied about doing experiments of his own, which he never did, and lied about analyzing my data, which he never saw in detail, was obviously rather reluctant to get involved. And so he simply didn't reply to emails. He tried to fob uh, Alex off. I mean, Alex can tell the story better than me. Um, 
but basically it became very clear that he had wanted nothing to do with this investigation and dismissed it as a stupid um, uh, inquiry and um, you know I think at one stage he told Alex he he got better things to do than listen to stupid dog stories um, so far from being open-minded and inquiring into the phenomenon as his uh, many of his supporters thought he was so they thought this was a genuine scientific endeavor um, he basically only wanted to expose and debunk people with this prize which he never intended to award and it was also very questionable if he actually had the million dollars even in pledges he claimed not to have it actually in actual a bank deposit but claimed that a lot of people had pledged to give it if called upon to do so all that was very questionable uh, but the point is alex called his bluff by actually <clears throat> Um, having a research project that would have qualified for the prize and then finding um, Randy back out and try and dismiss it. And that was a very powerful investigation. No one else had done that. And a lot of people were frightened of Randy. Um, and Alex called his bluff, and it was a great thing to do. And I, I think he, he did a great job there. I think so, and, um, and I think he really did help change the culture. I mean, the the skeptics have been a lot less um, aggressive. Um, the area where they're still completely in control and where they do the most harm uh, is Wikipedia, and anything, nothing anyone's done has managed to solve that problem. Even Alex hasn't uh, solved the Wikipedia problem because, as you know, they've captured the biographies of people like me and all the pages to do with parapsychology and psychic research they've defined parapsychology as a pseudoscience and therefore everything to do with it is dismissed and derided uh, they just they they're very keen to describe me as a parapsychologist which i've never claimed to be i i call myself a biologist but the reason they do that is because on on wikipedia parapsychology is defined as pseudoscience so calling someone a a parapsychologist basically classifies them as a pseudoscientist and they're still getting away with it um, it will take more than Alex to change the culture of Wikipedia I'm afraid but I hope he's changing the culture surrounding it in such a way that it does eventually change I, my message to Alex is thank you and keep up the good work we really need independent voices people with real curiosity and intelligence who are prepared to look at controversial issues um, without being a, a, a polemicist or on, who have an open-minded approach and I think it's very important to model that and there are very few people in the world doing this so I'm really pleased Alex has done it and I very much hope he'll continue. Of course, that was Dr. Chelbrek himself, who was happy to phone in to deliver his comment to this anniversary show. Okay, so we got his take on that, Alex. I suppose you can confirm his his uh, description of how it proceeded. Well, I am I am grinning from ear to ear. It's <laughs> like an like you know the connecting with an old friend and. Uh, what a giant, yeah. you know, we, we say, it's been said, you know, we stand on the shoulders of giants. Rupert Sheldrick is just such a giant and just someone who's stood up to that. I'm itching, itching, itching 
to talk about this topic, but I feel like we're going to, it would propel us too far forward. You're right. Especially the skeptics, we're getting back to them. We're still at the inception of skeptical. And, and the, the one thing that I, that I throw out as a teaser for anyone is I remember when Rupert and I met in Esalen and his uh, wife was there too, who's a very, very uh, accomplished uh, therapist and very intelligent woman. And uh, the topic of Randy came up. And one of the things that came up from them, which totally caught me off by surprise, mm -hmm. again, and here's the hint, spoiler, yeah. is that Randy was somehow involved with pedophilia or some kind of... Oh, my God. They were on to him back then? They were on to him back then wow and they didn't say they said it in a they said it in a way i want to make sure that i'm not like they, they just said it in kind of an off the cuff well you've heard the rumors about him and little boys or or boys or young men or whatever i forget mm. the exact phrase but mm. it was just that it was all that stuff is so that is so pre epstein and pre you know a pizza gate and all that stuff it just had a different impact and i remember hearing that and i'm going why would they be saying that these are super credible button-down british people i'm surprised right. that they're disclosing something unless they really know something so mm -hmm. even though they're saying it in a kind of which i think he generally was you know or, and i think it was actually his wife who said it is just it's a rumor you know it's not like i'm confirming it and now i'm spreading that rumor but it's 15 years later and all the stuff has come out on randy so i feel yeah, like yeah, yeah. i'm not it's more than a rumor yeah i don't feel like i'm violating any confidence here other than to say that that was a rumor that was circulating at that point, and they had some awareness of it. Mm, mm. Well, uh, that's super interesting. Um, yeah, he's a matter-of-fact guy, and uh, he pointed out a very important thing. He said that he got the impression that you were sincerely inquiring. You weren't there to have an agenda, but find out. And, and that's, you know, I told you before, I never, I never listened to podcasts before I started my uh, podcast back in 15. But right. of course, some small drips had reached me. And I remember back at that time when there was this big skeptic, uh, uh, brouhaha, then uh, some episodes of, of skeptical reached me. There were people in my circle who listened to it. So especially through Facebook. Right. And I have to say, Alex, Skeptical, especially in the beginning, it was like a public court right. kind of people. I knew spiritual people who are a little academic, agnostic people, and even atheists were following you in the beginning. And everybody was like, you know how people are tribalists, right? And yeah, even yeah. back then they were, uh, especially on this issue. So I, I think the different sides, those who had defined as sides, they were very excited because they wanted, they were probably sure their side would win. And then there were all the people in between, which were more my friends, uh, who were sincerely excited too to find out because they, people really picked up that you were going to get, like Shelrick said, he said there weren't many forums for both sides and we're going to get back to that too because <laughs> that's a huge problem. But you managed in the beginning to do that. So I guess you planned already when you talked with uh, Shelrick about launching a podcast, I guess you already planned then to get him on at, at the first show. Right. Well, again, you know, when I first approached him, I was like, you need to do a podcast. 
And he's like, I don't know how to do that. And I go, well, it's easy, you know, we'll just hire somebody and we'll get somebody. And he's like, okay, but, and, and Rupert's really great at this in a very, very uh, positive way of kind of pulling people in and then giving the, he's a, tremendously, as you can hear, he's a, he's a very straightforward guy, but he's extremely generous of spirit, you know, like yeah. he would never be one not to credit someone for something that they did the opposite, you know, I mean, he's done so much, and he's crediting other people, which is, again, those are, the, I think it's rather humble for a scientist. He is, yeah. he is. So he is, a, he's a light bearer, mm. you know, he is gladiator of the light, it just comes through. That's who he is. That's who that's what I want to be. That's who you are. That's our, those are our models in, yeah. in life and our culture. But anyways, so it was purely that of saying, Hey, you ought to do this. This isn't hard. You could do it again. I'm a tech guy. So I'm like, this isn't hard. And he's like, I don't know how to do that. I'm not a tech guy. I go, okay, I'll do it. And I said, well, we'll hire someone to do the interview. And the first guy I contacted to do the interview, he did a terrible job. I was like, well, <laughs> I know I can do a lot better than that. So then there, there I am. I was you, you had, in the seat. Yeah. You had a passion, but, but just, I mean, back in 2007, podcasts hadn't taken off. I mean, people knew what it was. But it wasn't the same thing. Did you listen already then to Joe Rogan and stuff? How, how did you even understand that that was? I was into all that stuff. I was into, wow. you know, I was the, um, I don't know, uh, again, I'm not going to ask you questions, but I was in the lifelong learning mode. So I was like recording radio interviews <laughs> so that I could listen to them on my, you know, right. little Walkman kind of MP3 Walkman kind of thing. You know, yeah, I was. Yeah. And then when podcasting came out, I was like, great, I'm already doing this. Let's do some more. It wasn't like a big, you know, this is the next. No, big transition. No, it wasn't. But were you aware of solely podcast shows? Well, I mean, I know many media shows, mainstream media shows were podcasted. I guess that's how it uh, originated, that there was an archive for mainstream media shows. But were you all also listening to mere, pure podcast like Joe Rogan back then? Well, as soon because as... Because I, I think Joe Rogan was going already then. No, I don't think he was. I mean, as soon as that stuff started to happen, I was all over it. Yeah, I mean, because, yeah, it was a small little community and that was what I wanted. I was interested in the content. So I was looking for the content wherever I could find it. I think a lot of people at the time were, and that's how they found Skeptico because there wasn't a lot of this kind of content out there. Yeah, Okay. I'm looking now, uh, I'm fact-checking us as we speak. Um, damn, you started before Rogan, man. He started December 24th, that's Christmas Eve, 2009. Oh, okay. Yeah, that sounds right. Wow. See, when I called you the Godfather, <laughs> it's, it's, it's not an exaggeration, man. <sighs> oh. Okay, but let's just be clear here. The first uh, Skeptical Podcast was aired January 7, 2007. So, in other words, you already started uh, late uh, 2006. Now, um, okay, we're, we're actually a few weeks on overtime for the birthday. But um, let's, uh, let's check out what it sounded like. This is you introducing the first Skeptical Show. I'm Alex Sakaris, and I'm going to be your host, at least on this first episode of the show. I say that because one of the purposes of this first episode is to find other like-minded people who want to join the Skeptico team. First, let me tell you what Skeptico is all about. There's a problem today with the way science gets reported, the way it gets packaged and delivered, 
and most of all, the way it gets filtered by a few loud voices that seem to dominate the conversation. Now, I'm coming at this perspective as a non-scientist, a computer guy, a guy who dug into the science behind some of the biggest new discoveries of our time and was pretty amazed at what I found. Take, for example, our guest on this episode, Dr. Rupert Sheldrick. Here's a top-notch scientist, a guy who received his Ph.D. at Cambridge and has spent the last 25 years doing experiments, publishing peer-reviewed papers, and doing all the stuff that good scientists do. Very, very impressive stuff. The only problem with Dr. Sheldrick's work is what he's discovered, namely that there's a field of awareness or memory that permeates our consciousness, and that this field explains things like telepathy. Now, as soon as you mention something like telepathy or psychic phenomena or God or reincarnation, a lot of scientific people immediately shut down or go on the attack without ever looking at the data, without ever engaging in intelligent dialogue. And that's something we hope to change on this show. With your help, and with the help of scientific experts on both sides of these issues, we're going to create an open, honest, intelligent discussion about new scientific discoveries, especially those that go against what the mainstream media is willing to give serious attention to. Yeah, I guess this was so long ago, it was before your voice had cracked. <laughs> but but you, we can hear, hear your intentions. And man, you actually achieved what you set out to do. This is the evidence. We just heard what you said. Now, before we, we comment upon anything further, I also want to play a couple of other clips uh, where you describe how it all started. And by the way, folks, when I play back clips of previous of all skeptical stuff i've speeded up for practical reasons so he, he doesn't talk that <laughs> quick and hectic uh, as it sounds uh, it's, it's just for practicality but let's uh, hear how you because there was this dude personal friend of you i think who managed to squeeze you for the same thing i managed to now namely to get you to show up to uh i think it was like a 200 show anniversary yes and it was very useful uh you basically said everything there is to say back then the difference between now and then of course is you have much much time behind you so of course you have uh, further perspectives and we're going to get back to that but let's just hear what you said in show i think it was show 200 about how it all started this is like alex's version of what we heard shelrick say well you know i started out as a listener i've always been very interested in not only these topics but in general in the idea that I can learn, I can get better, I can improve by absorbing the knowledge from other people. So I was a listener and I became quite interested in the whole idea of parapsychology and uh, kind of paranormal phenomena just at a very casual level, like anyone who watches TV. That eventually led me to Dr. Rupert Sheldrick, who is guest number one of Skeptico. And the conversation I had with Rupert was along the lines of, hey, this is interesting, why isn't anyone talking about this in a serious way, interviewing these researchers and analyzing what they have to say versus what people who oppose them have to say? And he said, I don't know. And I said, well, we ought to make that happen. And I'm willing to fund this. You know, let's hire somebody to go do the show. And that was really how it started is I was going to fund a show because I'm not a producer of any sort and I'm not a radio guy or anything like that. Well, we went down that path and I asked Rupert for suggestions of who might be good for the show and and that kind of played out and 
it's like so many things you hear about, you know, there wasn't anybody. So I stepped in and, and to do it. And after a couple shows, really, I was pretty well hooked on doing it. And I was hooked on the fact that if I tried to subcontract this out, it wouldn't really fit what I was looking for. I wouldn't get the questions that I want asked and answered. Those wouldn't come on the table because everyone does bring a different perspective to these things. So that's really how it all started. And a quick one about his personal motives. You know what I've said repeatedly to people, and I've had to say it so that I can remind myself of it and, and gain as much humility as I can, and that's that this is my journey. You know, this is my little trick. This Skeptico show and the opportunity to provide this on the internet and iTunes and thousands of people and all that, hey, man, that's just a little trick, so I get to call these people up and talk to them. Because if I just call them up and talk to them, no one would talk to me. So the idea of a show and a regular schedule and a continuation of it or anything like that is just, for me, an outgrowth of this desire to talk to folks. And so those are just the, that's just a vehicle that allows me to keep talking to the people I want to talk about. It's just, I'm just on this journey. Yeah, indeed, I can relate to that as a podcaster myself. I mean, it's pretty close to my own motives. That plus free books, of course. <laughs> yeah, so so you pretty clearly said it there. By the way, that uh, anniversary show, 200, um, there was this uh, friend of yours who who lured you into that, right? Tim Dilley, yes. Right, right. And I really recommend that for, for people, uh, although <laughs> most of it you're going to hear today. Uh, but it was, it's re really clarifying, very interesting to get a deep, well, a peek behind the curtain uh, of the show. But here we have it. I think uh, one of the very clear things that comes off here is, you know, the sincerity you went into the matter with and with your eyes on the balls. Today, people start podcasts because they want to make money or they want to make a name for themselves or whatever, right? Or propaganda is for something. So it's pretty rare the way you incepted it. And, and so early, I can't get over how early out you were. Yeah. That alone is a kudos. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Okay. So let's uh, also play a clip here about uh, one of the key things about Skeptical in, in some ways, at least when it comes to production. I have some views on this, um, but um, let's see what you say about it. So there are a lot of business rules or, or lessons that I've learned that I think inform my decisions in Skeptico. And one of those is that this idea that do what you love and the money will follow is really a load of crap. I, mean, I don't think that's true. And I think the way that applies to podcasting is if I wanted to apply my time and my mental resources towards increasing capital, <laughs> I wouldn't do it by podcasting. Not to say that some people haven't found a way to monetize it and stuff like that, but I, I don't. That's not one, that's not my goal. And two, I don't think it's a very good way to make money. But it's not my goal. It's it's not what this thing's about. So so that you said already uh, then, and we're gonna fast forward to a much more recent I think it's a mesh of different comments, but this is a more recent. And I, I want to play that back to back with that 200 show comment, because people, if they pay attention, 
they'll see that you are really reiterating the idealism, that it's all about seeking more ways to get the word out to... I mean, it's all about the subject, the matter. Not about you, not about money. And this is... And, and when people make books, for example, often you hear this, ah, oh, he's just making a book to make money. Of course, nobody ever made money from books in modern times. But, but even here, you'll see... It's all about the focus. My book is done. Why Science is Wrong About Almost Everything is done. It's out. It's printed. It's here on my desk. And with the announcement of the book, I, of course, want to thank all of you for the help and support that you've given me with The Skeptical Project that's led to this book, and also for many of the ideas that have really been formulated through my interaction with you. I have to tell you, one of the things I'm most excited about with the book is using it as a vehicle to connect with more people. It's always exciting to be able to share what I've learned, to share some of this new science, and I've already begun to do that. I've completed a couple of interviews on the book, and they've been great, and it's so fun to talk to people who've never heard about some of this stuff before and expose it to them for the first time. Just like I said a minute ago, that's really working out. I have several more scheduled, and I wanted to reach out to all of you. If you know of other outlets where I can go on and talk about this book and get these ideas out there, please let me know. I'm particularly keen to talk to groups that might not be initially super receptive, but might be able to find some points of synergy where we could kind of shoehorn our, our way in there. I really would like to talk to skeptics about the book. I'd love to talk to mainstream science types, love to talk to mainstream media types, and I'd love to talk to atheists, of course, and Christians and all sorts of folks. If you have any ideas along those lines, or if you're a blogger, a podcaster, or have those kind of connections, let me know. That's just going to be exciting to me, and it's going to be fun to get that out there. And as I do get that out there and go through that process, I want to let you know that I've set up a website to more or less chronicle that journey of the rollout of the book and talking to these different groups. Join me in this new, slightly different path that I'm embarking on. So as you probably know from listening to this podcast, I really enjoy these interviews. I gain so much by talking to all these really interesting people. And then I really enjoy bringing it to you and getting your feedback and growing in that way. One of the things I regret is that I wish I could do more. I do one every two weeks. Sometimes I sneak another one in there and you'll always hear me lamenting about, wow, you know, I wish I could get more out, but it just gets to be a lot less fun to try and crank out one a week. I don't know how some people do it. I mean, between the lining up guests, booking guests, interviewing, editing, transcribing, doing all that, it becomes like a job. And I don't want Skeptica to be a job. But I do want to bring more content out. I think there's a lot of information in these topics that we cover that I'd like to see shared more and brought into the dialogue about what's going on with consciousness, spirituality, skepticism, and science around these topics that we talk about. So that's why I've kind of redesigned the website to make it more one shareable, but also more open to other kinds of information and content beyond just these interviews that I do. I'd like you to help me 
find more content and help me publish more content. There's some really, really bright skeptical people out there. There's some really good writers, a lot better writers than I am. So let's kind of combine forces. Let's find a way for you to help me bring more content through the skeptical website to people who are interested in this content. Again, as before, there's no advertising on the site. There's no money-making possibility for this site. It's just outflow of money from me for the server and all the rest of that stuff, which is fine. It's not a huge expense. And the real goal is just to get this information out there and to further this dialogue about these topics. Okay, so look, man, this is crucial because I'm not sure you are aware of it from your own position because it's always easier to see clearly other outside than yourself. But the fact that Skeptico is completely non-commercial, you just, like you said, you're just spending money on it. <laughs> you want to avoid it becoming a job. I can relate to that. In fact, twice I've seriously considered stopping podcasting. Understand. Uh, so I want you to say something about how you avoided. I mean, how can you go for 15 years and not getting tired of it? Um, I mean, I suspect I know the answer, but you'll get to answer that. But I would just want to say that the fact that you have never had any focus on money, not just from the lack of greed position. I mean, you didn't have to, right? I mean, most people have to. Yes. But I think that has brought a particular, um, how you say it in English, not a standard, but uh, a, a quality, an honesty that is very hard. At least even people who are relying on, let alone advertisement, but just like me, who get listeners paying me, Okay, I'm not having the big corporation breathing down my neck, but I have some kind of populism demand that I have to cater to. You don't have to. Still, you're trying to engage with people all the time, and you are, and we're going to talk more about that. But I, I think it's so important for the, for the integrity, I think is the word I'm looking for, the integrity of this skeptical journey. Comment? Yeah, I mean, I don't want to come out too far because I could go in a million, million different directions. You know, I really used to to kind of, again, jump three steps ahead, and then we can maybe fill it in. Sure, sure. I always reference this, but I remember hearing Shirley MacLaine many years ago say, we're all entertainers. And she's talking, and she is known for kind of being at the forefront of presenting some very cutting edge information about uh, spirit traveling and uh, all sorts of different kind of stuff, which is very serious stuff and very in keeping with extended consciousness stuff. And she's really pushed on that. And she says, look, we're all entertaining each other, which seems to diminish her message. And then I was very resistant to that. I'm like, no, damn it. I'm not about entertainment. I'm about truth seeking <laughs> and sharing that truth with other people who are truth seeking. Mm. And as time has gone on, I've come to understand the other part of it too, which is that <laughs> on a very uh, spiritual level, we're all here to entertain each other. We're all here to be that light, you know, to have that light that is always there to come through us and to reach other people. And the only way to do that is to tell the truth. You can't do that if you're if you're lying or faking. But the other thing is you do have to along the way, entertaining people is not a bad thing. So I'm not against that. I'm just not very good at that. I find myself 
much more comfortable with just being direct. And uh, yeah. I, I think I've turned off a ton. I know I've turned off a ton of people <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, over the years. And and but that's got to be that's got to be okay. With regard to quitting, I've thought about it many times. I think about it all the time. All the time. And it's like all the time. Oh. Not, I shouldn't say all the time. That's an exaggeration. But I think that's part of the yoga process. That's part of the ice mm. bath process. You know, it's like mm. the reason I get in that 35 degree water multiple times a week or in the ocean when it's cold enough multiple times a week is because I don't want to do it. It's like the guy who wrote the book, that <laughs> yeah, Marine, yeah. he said, and you know, it's an obnoxious thing to say, but he's jogging in the rain and some woman rolls down her window and says, why are you doing this? Some fat woman drinking a, a Coke and eating French fries says, why are you doing yeah. that, honey? And he says, I'm doing it because you're fucking not. <laughs> and that's obnoxious. And I don't want to be obnoxious, but I understand the vibe. I'm doing it because I know this is what my soul needs. Mm. Maybe your soul needs something different, but my soul needs the truth and needs for me to be actively engaged in seeking the truth. So, you know, that's yeah. <laughs> that's my kind of thing. I would use the word infotainment in, in uh, both you and my, my case rather than entertainment. But yeah because inadvertently it gets entertaining now and then especially when we're going to get back to that the more um confrontational shows but uh, no this is interesting because yeah it's 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 a part of your yogi work isn't it part of yeah. that journey yeah yeah it's um, the non-dual it's the non-dual thing you know why are yeah. any of us doing anything yeah. you know yeah so what are so then that and this, brings... this this is meaningful i mean this is me you don't need attention you don't need the money you don't even need the connections but it's what you get out of doing the show it's what everybody pretends is their driving force but in your case it actually is and it has two results like you say, he will put off lots of people. One of the reasons, just one, there's other more evident reasons too, but one of the reasons is people aren't that interested in truth. But the other thing is that it will also, some people who, to use a cliche, vibrates at that frequency, will recognize this because you're seeking the truth, but to seek the truth, you have to be honest. You have to live in truth as much as we can. And that comes through that you are a sincere seeker, and I think that's key. It's the it's a it's the same thing that puts some people off, that makes others recognize like this is the real thing. This this is integrity. You understand what I mean? I, I do, and that's super nice and complimentary. But the other part of but it, but it's true. Well, it, it it's true, but there's another part of it too, and that that's that I'm wrong a lot, and I have been wrong a lot, and people were probably rightfully uh, kind of put off by me because they were right and I was wrong. So you got to keep, yeah, you got to keep not, it real. Yeah, um, that's not that the most, no, no, no. That's not the usual reason people are put off by you that they were right and you were wrong and you were arrogant about it. And later, uh, I mean, one thing is that you actually admit when you're wrong, people can't even handle doing that. <laughs> well, so you are honest about evolving, right? You know, I mean, I, I do, I, I do kind of, I, I agree with you because I don't want to kind of be fronting, you know, like I'm, <laughs> because I'll tell you what, I, I genuinely like, and I, I, I've met other people who are like this. You are like this when we've spoken. You know what? Mm -hmm. In, no one likes to be wrong. I don't like to be wrong, 
but I kind of like to be wrong. I kind of like to be, I kind of like when somebody really shows me mm. where I'm off course because then it allows me to get on course. Exactly. You know, I was just editing an interview today that I'm doing with a guy and it was on the whole agenda 21, 2030, great reset. And I got to say, going into it, I was a little bit yada yada, you know, come on. And at the end of it, I was like, no, this guy's really done the work and he's there in Missoula, Montana, and there are the laws and they're on the books. And I'm like, boom, you know, mm. course correction for me. Mm. I love that. Mm. I, I, I might look a little bit silly in that, you know, I didn't kind of know it going in, but gosh, what a, what a gift to know stuff that you didn't know. Yeah, that's because, again, it goes back to, this is why it was so important, uh, I think, to play those clips, because it goes back to the fact that there's no ego in uh, the source of your work or of, in your quest. I'm not saying you don't have an ego. Of course you do. And and that ego probably ticks some people off. I, I think that's better to say. And the dead honesty, because you're not supposed to, especially now in this cancel culture taboo, nobody can handle anything, let alone an honest conversation uh, where where the eyes are at the ball and not at the player. Yes. So you lose out just for the culture. But that's what I mean. It's uh, when you are seeking truth. Of course, you want to learn something new because we don't know. Everybody doesn't know everything. So I can I exactly know what you mean when you discover that. But the reason most people don't want, like to be wrong is because they invested their ego in something. There was a tribal thing. And now they're exposed. And then they feel embarrassed, as they should, because... The ego should never get in, in, in the first place. But we can go off on this tangent forever. But, but it's, uh, I think it's just important that people notice it there. Uh, by the way, you mentioned your book. Uh, I suppose we should also bring light to the fact that you have, you have made two books per today. Um, as a result of the skeptical journey. Yes. Why science is wrong about almost everything and why evil matters. How science and religion fumbled a big one. Yeah, or oh, the big one. But both these books are, the interesting thing, the format of the books, it's, they are actually like a literary version of your show. You are putting in stuff from the show there and going through, but they also reflect different periods. And we're going to get back to that too. It's going to be a lot of, we're going to get back to it today, folks. <laughs> you want. Yeah. But yeah. they both reflect different periods of your show, like, uh, and, and I'm going to expose in detail because I've analyzed it. So I know now you have four eras of Skeptico. We're still at era one. So it's a bit early to bed, but let's just take it now since the books are up. Uh, and the evil book is uh, from, yeah, it's between era three and four as I've analyzed it. But I want to ask you, do you think there will be a new book like that in the future? And if so, can you venture a guess at the topic? Or is that too early? No, I'd really like to do a book on Christianity and religion. And I think it's just, I just discovered a couple of really interesting things and I've shared them all on the show as many times as I can. I think people get tired of it, but I think it's fundamental, fundamental to what I keep bumping into. Damn, man. You're going to, I mean, that's opening a can of worms. If you're going to do that, don't be biased, uh, because you've had a, a particular angle. Uh, I don't know if it's deliberate, but it's from the guests you have, like uh, the one angle is Jesus never existed. I'm on the other camp. Not only did he exist, 
But the historical Jesus was a super interesting guy. You know what? Get the book. It's probably expensive and rare, but but you can handle that. Get the book called uh, A Search for the Historical Jesus. It's not the only one I would recommend that gives you another angle into it, but it's a good one. Uses a lot of rare yeah, sources. You, you mentioned that you you mentioned that last time when we yep. were talking, and I I glanced at it, and yep. I, I I think I've I've covered a lot of that material. I'm I'm happy to go through it again and to dive into it again. I think when we get to that part of the this conversation, to me the missing piece there that just derails everything, and it almost derailed our conversation right here, mm -hmm. is that. When you approach it like I just did, and I, I just forget sometimes, because you can't give people a 10-minute speech, but no. I'm all about Christ consciousness. I'm all about people having a personal, when people talk about, Christians talk about, I have a personal relationship with Jesus. I go right on to that. That makes total sense to me. As a matter of fact, all the 500 shows I've done suggest that there is an extended consciousness realm, and in that extended consciousness realm, you can, and many people report, have a relationship with Jesus. Jesus. That seems to be the data. I don't know what that means. Yeah. I really don't. I don't know what that means. But that's the data if I'm going to be fair. So when I say about that, I'm not really not talking. I, I, I'm really not talking in the way that most people get offended by their faith. What I'm talking about is fucking Josephus is a psyop. <laughs> and if we can't, if we can't, it's like so many of these things, if we crack them, then the whole thing looks different. Yeah. If there is such a thing as social engineering, and if religion has been for the longest time the centerpiece, the prize, the fulcrum point for that, then we better freaking focus on that until we really have a handle on it. The same thing with, you know, back when we were talking about the skeptics and that, if the goal really was to derail that understanding that we are more than biological robots in a meaningless universe, if that really was the goal. And if and if James Randi, who really had the tremendous influence, unbelievable tremendous influence, yeah. and if he really was a CAA cutout, which is how it looks when you really put all the pieces back together, mm. then that looks totally different. Now the yeah. whole thing looks totally different. And I love Rupert Sheldrake, and he's an awesome person, but he's got to get to that point too. And he's got to either say, well, that's, bullshit you know or he's got to say wow that has some that has some real possibility that does make me think differently about what i live through it's like you and i've had this conversation again to i'm busting up your thing here and jumping ahead but the conversation you and i had were about gloria steinem and you know gloria steinem comes she's the woman's movement she's responsible for the woman's movement key figure right well she's cia but then what a lot of people don't realize it's not like she was running the women's movement and then the CIA approached her. Nah, 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 nah. She was CIA. And they said, <laughs> why don't you go do the women's movement? Mm. So can you really look at the women's movement and not factor that in? You have to. No, you so can't. the same thing, that's what I'm saying about Christianity. If you don't lead with the potential that that is an example of social engineering. That is an example of a psyop. That is an example of a way to control. Yeah, all religions are, man. All religions. All religions yeah. are because it's a. Why wouldn't you? It's just a slam dunk. It's a business deal. But but it's funny because now you understand why my slogan 
this paradigm expansion, because you've been describing paradigm shifts here, because that's what happens when you get that missing piece. Suddenly, the whole puzzle looks different, right? Exactly. But um, I would say um, about what you just said, yeah, Jesus can still be an egregore, even if people meet him. So that's not evidence in my book that some people meet him. I mean, people can meet the spaghetti monster. It doesn't mean it's actually out there. Well, but there's two ways to spin that. And, you know, I just re-listened to the excellent series of shows you did on egregores. And I learned a lot because that hasn't really been a focus of mine. Mm. But when you when you really look at that whole way of thinking about extended consciousness and that we are co-creators of reality kind of thing, then I think it's, and you look at the the flexibility that there must be in space-time, you know, and again, back to the core thing of that's what, that's one of the implications of Rupert Sheldrick's work. That's certainly a direct implication of Dean Radin's work. Mm. They're proving it experimentally, Six Sigma results, Dean Radin, that no dog time space is not what you think. So as soon as you do that, then the whole, that also throws a lot of gum in the whole historical Jesus 2000 years ago, this <laughs> happened, then this happened. And do you know this guy? Yeah, I just have to loosen up on a lot of that stuff. Hmm. Okay, man, we have to move on. I have to be strict with the clock here. Uh, we have other topics to cover. But uh, here's an important one we can um, mention. And this clip is on the community and skeptical forum. The forum was actually started by a skeptical listener. And he just, he's a guy who stepped forward and said, hey, let me run a forum for a skeptical. And I was like, great. Which is, you know, one of the things that has always been in the back of my mind about Skeptico is this idea of a community project, not just me, but people who are interested in these topics often don't have a lot of other outlets. I love to engage with those people and get them involved in the, the project that is Skeptico. So at the same time, I've never been involved in a forum before I was involved in Skeptico. So I don't really know. I've had to learn myself what that interaction is like and, and, really how you relate to people and how all that evolves. But for me, it's been a tremendous experience. And I've learned so much from people who've engaged with me in the forum and either have ideas or you get into these long, sometimes lengthy back and forth. And I've grown tremendously from the forum. And besides, I've gotten a lot of ideas for guests from the forum as well, which, by the way, I value greatly, and I really appreciate those folks who come to the Skeptical Forum and share their ideas. Many folks have told me that it's one of the most intelligent, thoughtful forums that they've encountered on the web. I tend to agree. I've gained so much out of it. If you haven't, I hope you'll take this new opportunity to check it out. Amen and hallelujah. I'm so impressed by that forum, even though I, one of the few times, I mean, I've been, I've been lurking there. I've been reading. I, I don't have time to engage in forums. I did manage to be sucked in <laughs> to some uh, shill for the insurance industry. I had, had a back and forth with him. But in general, I'd say the skeptical forum is much more important uh, to your project than mine. I have a forum. I mean... <laughs> My show is called Forum. But if you put up my forum and your forum next to each other, mine looks like an orphanage. <laughs> whereas whereas yours is like a super effective university. Uh, we both have managed to get intelligent people on board. I say that. Right. Uh, but uh, it's still a feat that 
And, and, and the, your forum is informing, I think, your show, at least historically it is, much more than my forum is mine. A comment to the forum and the community? It's the forum, just like I, I just said there, I kind of repeat all that. Yep. It, it kind of, I would say, the, one of the frustrations I have for me is it kind of, you know, wanes and rises and people come and leave. And I, I have people I've met that I have these deep relationships with and even relationships with outside of the forum, eventually it grows into that. And then they go away, you know, and that's totally fine. I get that. You should be able to just go away. It's no longer yeah. useful to you or you're thinking of something else. But I, I'm always a little bit surprised and a little bit, you know, like, hey, man, how come you're not, <laughs> how come you're not coming along? You had so many good ideas. And the other thing is, mm. there's different styles that you have to adjust to. On the forum, what I like to do is share information. Hey, I saw this link. What do you think of this? I saw this. And a lot of people like to share more personal kind of and, and I, I try and kind of, I, I sometimes get frustrated with that, but that people have a need an outlet. And now, you know, with the last couple of years going on, it's like, but there's a lot of other places also that people go and, and share stuff. So it, it, over time, it yeah. changes. Plus, plus remember, I mean, when did you start the forum? Yeah, I mean, a as lot soon of, as the show? A lot of years ago. I mean, it's, I don't know, it probably. But, yeah, but was it very recent after you started the show? Yeah, within a couple of years. That makes sense because I don't know if you remember this and I can't pinpoint when it was. I think it was, may have been 2012 or something, but at some point, because internet was full of forums. Right. Then at some point, all the forums went empty. Yeah. Facebook sucked right. up everything at the same time. Right, right. It was global. Right. Except I think France or, or Russia, some stubborn places where they have their own kind of internet they had back then so you remember the same thing right and that hurt oh, yeah. so that your forums even survived that is is pretty interesting because people just stopped using of course now it's the opposite now people are emigrating from facebook except the geriatrics but there was a period you, there. you know what's interesting you know what's interesting just kind of in this little tidbit way mm. this historical phase mm. here there, there were a bunch of people that broke off of the forum and started their own forum because they weren't happy with yeah where I was, I forget what exactly the the beef was, but oh, it was probably skeptics, wasn't it? No, no, no. It was, oh. um, you know, there's a lot of different ways to be skeptical of. Um, yeah, it was really kind of parapsychology kind of people who didn't think. Okay, I forget exactly. But the wasn't it, wasn't it a listener who, who uh, to begin with, uh, did this? It wasn't you. Yeah, Stefan. So so he started it, and then eventually a group kind of broke off, and I think they didn't like the i think they were still engaged in the skeptical versus pair they wanted to continue the you know skeptical 1.0 yeah, exactly mm. you know that there is there are these things called skeptics and they have a scientific point of view and then there's these other people you know who have a different point of view and it's bullshit it's rubbish yeah, yeah, skeptics yeah. really don't have a point of view they have an agenda you know it's kind of like we're finding and that's why i say that i said at the very beginning to tip the hand the pandemic brings that into focus right so now you look at the pandemic and you go well that was never science to begin with yeah. and you go oh but then why did they do it like that oh it was a pandemic yeah, right. well the, the same is true like so if you go all the way back like we're talking about uh richard wiseman and Rupert Sheldrick and dogs that know, 
Can I go off on that story a little bit? Uh, no. Uh, wait a minute. Okay. Because, because uh, yes, uh, but not now. It's coming. Okay. Uh, and I want you to, to account for that. Yeah. But um, uh, let me just say, though, that you remember my, my allegory last time we, we had a regular show about the mountaintop? Remind me. Yeah, I've been to the mountaintop, rather. <laughs> no, uh, <laughs> you know, when, when uh, you start by the foot of the mountain, there's a million people running around and flirting right. in different paths, right? The higher right. up you go, the more the path shrinks. Well, right. it's easy to start by the foot of the mountain and say, hey, folks, yeah, I'm going on a truth quest. Who will join me? Everyone. Yay. <laughs> yeah, right? So in the beginning, you're a huge congregation. <laughs> Right. But the higher up you come, the more people will fall off <laughs> because you're so determined to get to the mountaintop. You're not being lured from all sorts of distractions on the way that most people do. They lose their head, whatever. So, of course, you're going to lose folks. But as you progress, you're also going to meet someone. Oh, what what are you coping around here for? Oh, well, I was looking for the path uh, up. Well, you made it this far. Join me and, and, and we'll go higher. So you, you pick up people on, on this skeptical journey away. That's my uh, adjusted metaphor from, from the one I used in the end of the year show. But you know what? We have to move on. That is an awesome, awesome metaphor. Uh, allegory. Yeah, okay. Let's move on because there's another thing that people are not so aware of. And that's the experiments. I have another brief update for you. If you recall, on the last episode of Skeptico, we talked a little bit about the Global Consciousness Project and how we've gotten involved with that a little bit. One of the other projects that regular listeners will know that we've been involved with for a long time is some of the research of Dr. Rupert Sheldrake. His research has been fascinating to me, and, I, and I've always admired his clear thinking, his forthrightness, and his willingness to, I guess, buck the critics. He's certainly taken his share of criticism for really nothing else than just uh, expressing unconventional ideas. And as you know, that's not the way science is supposed to work. So a couple of years ago, I got involved with Dr. Sheldrick and tried to help with the dogs that know experiment. Now, in the process of working on that experiment, I had a chance to correspond with uh, Dr. Sheldrick many times over the last year or two and have found him to be a very busy guy, but a very open guy and, and very willing to support other people getting involved in his research. And for that reason, I most recently have kind of picked up on another project that he's been involved with, and that's the telephone telepathy experiment. And I'm in the very beginning stages of trying to help Dr. Sheldrick put together a website that would automate the process of telephone telepathy testing. That's a tongue twister. So you were very good at your timing. It was, <laughs> it was the next uh, topic I had. But look... I know you run Psy Experiment. You mentioned here the global consciousness thing, and then it's the dog things that you wanted to mention. So, because you picked up so many listeners who weren't with you back then. So, I want you to, to account for these experiments you were flirting with, which is also pretty unique, uh, you know, associated with a podcast. Yeah, it's funny. That freaking Al, you're unbelievable. <laughs> I, I had totally forgotten about all this, but yeah, I was... <laughs> There you go. I was just... 15 years, like, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, you know, so the dogs didn't know, just to recap for people, well, Dr. Rupert Sheldrick started getting letters. He's a biologist, 
and he's interested in animals and he started getting letters. He had proposed this idea of morphic, uh, morphic fields that carry information and that can explain a lot of psychic phenomena. And people said, hey, maybe that explains the fact that my dog knows when I'm coming home. And he started getting a lot of these letters. So he decided to investigate it seriously, scientifically. And he ran an experiment, a series of experiments. It's not a difficult experiment to do if you're a Cambridge biologist and you're smart about science. Mm. You know, you put a video camera on the dog, you put a video camera on the owner, you send the owner out, and then you call the owner and you say, come on home and you see if the dog reacts, right? So he had done a series of experiments and uh, the story I was gonna tell before, and I'll, I'll make that one short so I can get to the other one about the experiments is, he had done these experiments and published them. And then there was this quote unquote skeptic, Richard Wiseman, who was kind of like, I guess you'd say like a Neil deGrasse Tyson of England at the mm. time, at least the most public, the most out front, you know, being interviewed by all the TV stations and all that about radio. And his qualifications was as a dating coach psychologist. <laughs> well, his, quali his, quali his qualifications were legit, you know, but anyways, he came in and he that said- That was his work prior to this. <laughs> he came in and, and, and he, one thing that really got Sheldrick in, for a good reason, Sheldrick, again, this open spirit of, of inquiry allowed Wiseman to use his whole video camera setup and the whole experimental setup, you know, yeah, which yeah. again, it's, it's nice, but he certainly didn't have to do that. He'd like, look, if you want to test this, go test it on your own. But no, he gave him the whole thing. He went in there and totally changed the protocols. He faked it. He deceived people, Wiseman did, and he rigged it so that the thing didn't come out the way that it was. And to, to give people just a little bit of the background on that, it's like what, Sheldrick's experiment was predicated on the idea that the dog was demonstrating this waiting behavior when the owner was coming home. And he defined what the waiting behavior is. It's going by the window. So it's pretty easy. Is he by the window? Is he not by the window? You know. Mm arbitrarily, Richard Wiseman came in and said, no, 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 I'm only going to count it if the dog goes over to the window and stays there for two minutes, at least two minutes. That's the only time it counts. And then he went and got a negative, a null result, and he published his work. And Sheldrick was like, wait a minute, maybe the dog smelled something over there and was distracted and went off for five seconds and came right back to the window. Doesn't it still count? No, 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 no. Arbitrarily, hmm. it has to be two minutes. So. I, I say that level of detail. Changing the criteria after it started, it's it's Exactly. Horrific. And I'm getting into that level of detail because that's what I did on Skeptical. I had hours and hours and hours of explaining just how deceptive this was. Mm. But after Sheldrick had done the experiment, I was like, well, hell, again, naive, but like, I'll let's do it. Let's replicate it. Let's just replicate the crap out of it. Cause now I'm pissed off, you know, that now this is clearly scientific deception. I'm pissed off. I'm like, let's replicate this. So I tried to replicate it. I hired, again, I put some money at the University of Florida. This guy was really, uh, he was doing research with canines, with dogs. And we set it up and did that. And we got some results, but his heart wasn't really in it. He was a skeptic and I, in the show, I document all those times that we did it and stuff like that. It's not a bad guy, but not really playing it straight up. So I said, okay, I'll do it myself. And I actually, you can still find online on YouTube. I found some woman with a dog in California that I think from the video clearly demonstrates 
that waiting when they're coming home behavior. But it, it does take a little bit more effort than just me remotely part time running an experiment like that. I spent a considerable amount of time and effort, bought cameras, uh, computers, interviewed people, tried to elicit people to do that. Yeah, I heard in one show you even offered to send a computer to someone, buy them a computer. I did send. I, sent, uh, I sent probably <laughs> 10 computers out hey, to I, I, Hey, I volunteered to pretend to do an experiment. Send me a laptop. <laughs> I had somebody, you know what? This is before I was into- I hope they didn't take advantage. <laughs> Well, it's funny because again, you know, you talk about the four phases it, it, and I don't know what your four phases are, but one of the phases where I am firmly at now, just because it's the accumulation is that there is the, it's about energy and it's about positive light energy and negative energy and the dark energy. And I don't fully understand that dark energy, but I have come to accept that it's real and it really is very troubling for people. One of the computers that I gave away, I always remember this, this woman called me from a Craigslist ad and said, Oh, yeah, I'll do I got a dog who does that, mm. you know, da da da. Mm. I said, Okay, I'll go, I'll bring the computer over and show you how to set it up. Al, I walked into this little apartment in Ocean Beach. And there was a group of people there. And it was one of the few times in my life where I just felt a darkness just oh, wow. a darkness come over and these people they were all kind of shady on the doing drugs and stuff like that right. but it's like i just wanted to get the hell out of there as quickly as i could and Poor dog. the only other the only other place i've felt that energy like that uh-huh is in a prison in yuma ah. arizona an old 1890s prison that you can still tour and there's this one right. blackened room where they used to hold people in isolation right. and that's I wasn't there when I was doing the dogs that know experience. No, no, that no, was not no. on my radar. No, no, and no. it is now. Yeah, interesting. But uh, that wasn't the only experiment. We just heard the sighting and and, and global. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was anything. I was late, right? It's like I just thought that would solve it. I thought that would fix it. I thought that would like Rupert was saying. Okay, okay. That goes for your motivation, but but uh, did you? I mean, naivete. You should say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, you to, but, but did you involve others too, or was it you doing it from your home, or how, how did this work? Oh, anyone who would do, yeah, I, I hired some people along the way, you know, kind of part-time people, but... Actually hired them, wow. Yeah, yeah, but not not a huge thing. Yeah, and didn't you pay a skeptic researcher? What's it? I think you even paid a skeptic researcher. I think you mentioned that to me no. once. No, because that, that was just, I mean, at that point, it doesn't take long to really see the foolishness of the skeptics. I mean, they were just ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we're going to get to them. Yeah. We're going to get to them soon. But but I think you involved a researcher at some point. I can't remember. Squeeze your, your brain cells now. I think oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, the guy at Florida. Yeah, the guy at University of Florida. Right. Yeah. No, no, yeah. It, it, he wasn't a skeptic per se. He was just part of academia, so he was by definition. Yeah of that paradigm, like he used to say, he just had a completely different paradigm, mm. but he was willing to take a little bit of money and do the do the thing. And the Global Consciousness Project, is that the, is that the Dean Radin stuff? No, what's yes. that again? Yeah. That's where they have the little random number right. generator kind of thingies. Right, and that's this Psy experiment mentioned, right? Yes. Okay. Yes. Mm. Well, at least you walked as you talked. It's not money who can. 
who can claim to have done this. I think this is is uh, kudos for for trying it out. Okay, let's move on. Now people are aware of it. Uh, I have another fun little clip for you. Alex, my man, the humble stoner host of the Higher Side Chats, Greg Carlwood here, toasting you to one hell of a 15-year podcasting ride of excellence that you've been on. Very few folks can say they've been podcasting for 15 years, so kudos to you. I can't remember exactly what the first Skeptico episode I heard was, but I've obviously appreciated you for years. Early interviews with Rupert Sheldrake were so great to have found. Of course, my favorite ones are the confrontational ones. You are a master at that. And hey, the truth is the truth. Let's get at it. And if a person is not going to factor consciousness into their scientific work or their model of reality, then of what value is it really? Just as any true analysis of power or historic events or business has to factor in conspiracy, or it's probably grossly inaccurate. Well, you hold people to these points with extreme consistency, and it's a beautiful thing. Plus, I love the range of guest reactions to a little bit of that classic skeptico pressure. Tells you a lot about a person. But that said, we have definitely had some great times going out for lunch and talking shop. You've always been great on and off the air. And cheers to another 15 years of podcasting glory, if the gods will it. You're one of the greats. I'm lucky to know you. Yeah, that was the very brilliant Greg Carlwood from the Higher Side Chats. I must say, I mean, even this little, uh, this little ad break, ad feature that is so professional. Yeah. <laughs> Either that guy's a natural born genius or he spends a lot of energy making it right. I mean, to, to get very good products. And that's one of the things, you know, I've, I've complained about this before, right? That so many podcasters, they're so lazy and, they don't give a damn and yeah. they don't think, actually, you are kind of among them. You don't spend too much energy on getting the shape of it, but you spend all that good energy on the content and the goals. At least you have that. And you bother with having a little jingle and now you start with the movie clip. So, so I can't, I can't really spank you too much about this, but there's so many who are just. They just don't give it. Even if there's a 20-second gap of silence, they don't even edit that out. Now, Greg, on the other hand, maybe this is one of the keys to his success because he's one, one of the more successful in this area. I think what little I've heard from him, I haven't heard that much, but you can't avoid hearing THC. <laughs> what little I've heard, such a good um, production. And he even makes his own music. Anyway, you and him go back uh, some years, don't you? Yes, and it was super... So where on the journey did you become... Because one of the things... This clip goes to show that you... I, I call you the godfather. One of the reasons is not just that you were early out, but you, that you're such a spider. You connect with so many people. You know everyone who is anyone in this field. I know you live in the same town as Greg. So how long do you go back and how did you guys discover each other? I don't know exactly how far back we go, but... Um, I reached out to Greg. I thought he was doing just great stuff. And, you know, I was I was a fan. Mm. And we connected just on a bunch of different levels. It was super great to hear him there. And I've been on his show a couple times. And, you know, it's just it's just cool. It's fun to to connect like what we're doing here. This is all sweet of you to do all this stuff. I mean, it's so great. <laughs> I, oh, you're such a guy. But anyways, it's 
you realize how unique it is to find people that coalesce on you know these kind of topics and these kind of issues so it wasn't hard it was very natural because mm. he is a he is a truth seeker you know he is yeah. a freaking truth seeker i mean he's right there with me on the skeptical journey mm. like you said he raised well many good points some of them we touched already but he mentioned one important thing that we're finally going to get to he said that one of his favorite things were your confrontations <laughs> with the skeptics. You remember what I said, right? I said, uh, of the, let's say of the skeptical 1-0 and 2-0, the most entertaining shows there is uh, when you go head-to-head with one of these dense figures. Whereas the more maybe enlightening shows are when you have a so-called friendly interview. But that's my assessment. Now, uh, let's hear how you describe uh, on the fanatical pseudo-skeptics. Those are like two different universes. I mean, one of the things that Skeptico did, again, because I came in this from the outside, I saw naturally that these two things fit together. If the Skeptics Guide to the Universe and Skepticality and Skeptoid and all the rest of them are talking about parapsychology, albeit in a disparaging way, then naturally they're going to want to dialogue with those researchers. And I was naive enough to think that they actually did. What I found is that they don't. What they really want is to be left in their little island over there, in their little world, and talk about these things among themselves. I think that's wrong-headed. I mean, how can you say you really want to have it? You want to engage in an intellectual kind of free thought, critical examination of these things without looking at the other side. It seems silly, yet that is the landscape. They really don't want to interact with anyone. I guess I bridged that a little bit, but then anyone who's been around the show for a while, as you know, that becomes tedious, tiresome, and worn out pretty soon too, because there's not a lot of real interaction there with the hardcore skeptics and atheists. They just kind of have this party line kind of thing that's hard to penetrate. What is effective is going to, I guess, the level two people behind that, the, the mainstream researchers in the field who more or less echo a lot of those same skeptical, materialist, atheist kind of worldview things and kind of pulling them into uh, this kind of debate and dialogue, I think is fruitful and, and will remain fruitful for as long as I want to do it. Oh, I've tried. I've pursued Steve Novella a half dozen times since then. <laughs> so right. he used to respond, although very slowly to my request. He doesn't respond anymore, which has been the case over and over again with, with skeptics. And they lose an argument and they run away. I mean, that sounds kind of harsh, but it really is the truth. There, there just should be so much more engagement with these issues in a debate format. It really doesn't wash the skeptical position at the end of the day. It doesn't hold. I mean, I'm here. I will engage, debate, whatever you want to call it, anyone, anywhere, anytime. I don't know why anyone wouldn't do the same. I mean, if you think your ideas hold up, you got to say, hey, bring it on. And I think this has become an issue for me lately, mainly because what I've seen unfolding in the Rupert Sheldrick Wikipedia drama. Now, for those of you who don't know what's going on there, 
Rupert Sheldrick is a Cambridge biologist who has some mildly controversial ideas about this thing called morphic residence. Well, for whatever reason, he's gained the ire of the skeptical community, if you will, and they've all gotten together and just kind of taken over his Wikipedia page and turned it into a total mess. And when a couple of folks went in there and tried to clean it up and trying to add some other references to give it a more neutral point of view, they just ran them right out of Wikipedia, which I have to say, I predicted and I told these guys that's exactly what it's going to happen because I think people around the outside don't understand the nastiness that goes on inside of certain aspects of the skeptical community and, and how unrelenting they are in this kind of fanatical point of view. Yeah, and that was that was the silk glove version of describing uh, this fact, in my view. But okay. the thing is, you started sincerely with inquiring. And at some point, I suspect pretty early, you, you realized what's what here. Oh, yeah. And uh, I remember, because you were big in the beginning, in terms of numbers, not just because there wasn't that many podcasts, because you were one of the unique forums where you brought together the different sites not as a primitive gladiator entertainment thing, more as a truth-seeking thing. And my my theory is that when skeptics, we call them skeptics, they're of course pseudo-skeptics, but these fanatics, they don't mind really if they are going to be on a tribal gladiator battle kind of thing, especially if they know that the other side is usually a, a religious nutcase because they are easy to to uh, get these cheap shots from and, and, and so-called expose. So that they will do. But when they see, I don't know if you're aware of this yourself, but I've noticed this, when they realize, even if they know who you are already, but when they realize that you're not there for your ego and you're not there to fight and you're not there to just give them an advertisement platform, all those things they like but you're sincerely inquiring for the truth with scientific tools. That's too much for them. That's what freaks them out. That more than anything, the, the follow the data, point to the science is why they fear you. It's not because you're a good uh, debater and can get some quick uh, sheep points in, uh, quick shots. They, they can handle that. They do the same. But the the whole the whole paradigm crumbles when it's not like oh we're not here to do a partisan fight we're here to actually find the truth that's like look everybody understands if it's a Jehovah's Witness Jehovah's Witness yes if he's going to convert you no problem he will he will come if it's going to be to applaud him yes he will come even a battle but if it's Truth, if it, yeah, you know, when Jehovah's Witness was founded and look, here's the original Bible you had and oh, oh no, they're gonna, it's all sectarians freak out. Scientologists, what? You gotta tell me that Hubbard was involved with OTO? I'm out of here. You understand what I mean? I do. And uh, again, I'm, I'm so tempted to go to level three, which is where we usually go. So I'll, I'll, I'll rein that in and just say, I think what has happened in the last two years brings all that in focus in a different way that you and I are are just now kind of wrapping our our head around. And you know, it's it's the kind of the skeptic. The skeptics always say so many brilliant things, only they don't realize they're brilliant because they're the exact opposite of the way they interpret them. But you know, 
it really is an issue of why people believe weird things. Fundamentally, it's it's why people believe weird things. So skeptics believe weird things. They believe that you're you're not conscious. They believe that you're a biological robot, a meaningless universe, even though everything they know, our whole world tells them differently. They, they believe it. That's a very weird thing to believe. They believe that they should focus on some science and completely ignore other science. That's a weird thing to believe. Religious people, even like you said, you just said it, you know, you can kind of say, do you really think that the Quran, where it says that you can take women as slaves and do whatever you want with them, and then they, but they have to wear a veil? Do you think all these rules, it, same with Judaism, all these rules, you got to dance around three times and don't touch electronics. <laughs> Does any of that really make any sense? No. But, but so why do people believe weird things, which is the title of a book that I think Shermer or one of those people wrote in <laughs> it's the opposite again so their thing was mm. like why do people believe in ghosts and extended consciousness wow what a weird thing it's like no that's mm. not weird at the same time they believe that you can upload human consciousness to a computer and they believe that a computer can be sentient <laughs> that's just as weird well <laughs> and as you and i know that probably isn't really what they even care about there any e anyway. Mm. Uh, I think the transhumanist agenda is really much more about other uh, oh, sure, you know. sure. But but they need the materialist uh, paradigm as a, a useful yes. idiot to exactly. implement that agenda. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Well, we all know that. Yeah, so but, but it is famous. Some of these shows where you had uh, had to had with some of these skeptics are infamous or famous, uh, whatever you want to choose. But I remember even even people, you know, I, I said uh, many people in my circle back then were listening to you and, and, and I picked up some shows via Facebook then. But I remember uh, after a while when you started to realize what was going on and, and that really harboring the transition from skeptical 1.0 to 2.0. But you didn't just lose skeptics as listener. You even lost agnostics and and people who was at the pro let's say, Sheldrake side, because, and you touched upon it, what they wanted and expected and were used to was this usual gladiator battle, uh, stuck and stupid debate that you're going to elaborate on late in a later clip. So they couldn't handle that you moved on from stuck on stupid uh, and, and, and wanted it to take it to level 2 or skeptical 2.0. Do you agree with that? Uh, uh, I totally agree with that. And I'm itching to ask you what you think that is about, why people remain married to right. a debate. Maybe it's because they feel like comfortable that they've won that. They want to stay in that. Okay, we're, we've won that. So we, I don't get it. Uh, I think you actually speculate about it in one of the clips I have lined out. And I think you're on the money there. But no, it's just one of those things. Uh, people are habitual maybe uh, they came into it with that format and they didn't like i don't think it, those in the beginning realized it was going to become a real journey right right usually if people uh, make something work you know don't fix it if it works so um i think that's too much for some 
So if if I'm used to having at Netflix like romantic comedies, uh, I sit and watch there or whatever, and then suddenly they start pushing a lot of conspiracy documentaries. <laughs> I'm out of here. You know what I mean? <laughs> hey, hey, it's you. You, I think you're spot on with that. And it's a you know what? Wait, again, it's the two quotes. Back to the Shirley MacLaine, it's all about entertainment. And the other is the very famous, fantastic Canadian media, just mystic Marshall McLuhan, the medium is the message. You know, he said, you don't read the Sunday Times back when there was a newspaper, you mm. get into it like a warm bath. Well, we can all relate to that. You sit down to watch the ball game. It's really not about the teams, although you'd like to think it is. It's about the whole experience, the memories. I used to do this with my dad. This is my couch this is where I sit. It's the whole experience. So when somebody comes along and says, you know, form burialis is about this. And the next thing you do and you say, well, you know what? I just learned this. So now Form Borealis has to change because what I thought I knew, I now mm, know something mm, different. Mm, People are like, oh, well, what about that spot I had on the couch <laughs> where I used to always watch the foggy? <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Yeah, well put. But this really uh, is the transition from Skeptical 1.0 to 2.0. The next clip, it's one of the longer ones, but I, I titled it Trouble in Paradise. Not about the data. Big question as driving points. I think you explain very succinctly here how come the transition from 1.0 to 2.0 happened. So let's listen to that. Well, I think you've kind of pinpointed really a turning point in the show, at least in my mind. And that's that I had this idea starting out that it's about the data. You know, this is science after all. And science is concerned with measurement and data and evidence. And my thought was, hey, look, let's just try and get our arms around the data. Let's get good data. And then any reasonable person will be able to sort that out and decide one way or another. And I pretty quickly got an idea that maybe that wasn't as simple as I thought and that there were other things going on. The, the whole thinking with how we can remain completely married to these beliefs and to this interpretation of the data that just doesn't fit with just the kind of common sense understanding of it really sent me in a different direction and saying, you know what? It's not about the data. It's really about everything else. It's about why we believe what we believe, how our belief systems develop, how our belief systems change. And until we really figure that stuff out, then all this stuff about the data is more or less a sideshow. When I do those shows, the reaction is usually polarized. There's so many people, and this always surprises me, who are proponents, believers, if you will, who are really offended. I mean, they just don't like controversy. You can see, and they don't like this kind of confrontational, battling it out kind of thing. And that always surprised me. I, I don't know how you really get to the bottom of things that you care about deeply or that you have strong opinions about without having a little bit of, of friction. And while I don't seek those shows out and I don't think those need to be the main focus of Skeptico, I do feel a need to revisit those topics every now and again because one of the conclusions that I came to in this, hey, it's not about the data, it's about everything else, is... There's a question, I think, in the back of everyone's mind, which is, how can this be? I mean, here's this guy or here's this group of people who are saying, fundamentally, the scientific model that we have is flawed. And the immediate question you have to be is, how can that be? Wait a minute. 
I have this iPhone 5 here that is a testament to how great science is. So don't tell me science is wrong. How can this be? So I think we have to occasionally go back and revisit that and really look hard at what the other folks have to say. The folks who say, no, you are a biological robot. Life does have no meaning and it's all about machines. I think we do have to go back and, and give them the floor every once in a while and, and, and hash that out with them. To me, at a very kind of deep personal level, I always wondered why everyone wasn't interested in these topics. Why I always wondered why, why these weren't the first and foremost questions on everyone's mind. I mean, most of us spend so much time on ridiculously silly things of the weather or sports or news or all the rest of that. When the big questions are, who are we really? What happens to us after we die? How are we related to not only each other, but the universe? I mean, these are the big, big, big questions. And I guess I always had a sense of, hey, am I not getting the newsletter here? I mean, does everyone else know the answers to these? Because why isn't why isn't this foremost on everyone's mind? And then you, you kind of get into life and you, you want to make a living and you want to have a family and all that. We all understand that. And you say, hey, I can't deal with all those things right now. They don't seem to be pressing as, as much as the mortgage payment or the car payment is. So I kind of put them to the side. But to me, they always seem to be the questions that I wanted to come back to. So that really is the driving force of Skeptical, along with the idea that I had all along because of my business experience. And that was the idea that I can learn, I can get better, I can improve. Because I was someone who, despite having the right academic background and education background, was failing pretty miserably at business before I kind of went on a massive kind of learning campaign in terms of how to make myself better and how to improve in that. So I kind of took that self-improvement idea and that self-improvement success that led to business success and said, hey, I can bootstrap myself into knowing the answer to these big, big questions. And that's really been, I guess, the driving force of Skeptico. So uh, first, I call this clip Trouble in Paradise for two reasons. Number one, you smelled a rat which is why you moved from Skeptical 1.0 to 2.0. But also, like we just said, <laughs> some listeners, it was a trouble in paradise for them too that you moved on higher up the mountain. So they fell off. Yeah. But let me ask you, when you started to understand what's what when it comes to these skeptics and materialists, about when did that happen? How early did you become convinced? I mean, first time, I guess you thought it was a one-off. Second time... You talk with such a guy, I guess you, you you suspected a pattern, but would you never manage to talk with anyone at the truth level and sincere level and scientific level that you were naively expecting? Then obviously it became clear. So how early did that happen that you became convinced? And was that really the impetus to move to, to uh, skeptical to oh, not being stuck on stupid debates? It was pretty early because in those first interviews, I was able to kind of get to the point where I could directly confront these people with, you know, you're interviewing Steve Novella from Yale University. He's a podcaster, but he's also a neurosurgeon or not a neurosurgeon. What is he? Neurologist, neurologist at Yale University. And he's 
screwing the, the, the data. He's screwing it up. He's not, mm. I'm, I'm giving him the data and then he messes it up. I go, you messed it up. He goes, oh yeah, I did mess that up. I'm sorry. And he's got skeptic Ray Hyman on there from Dr. Ray Hyman from Oregon, who has passed away, but you know, I hadn't passing away. We looked through his files. He was CIA. Oh, isn't that interesting? Mm. But anyways, I knew it was bullshit, but here's the point that I guess I accepted uh, what still a lot of people say when you speak to them today, which is, you know, if I, I just had an interview with Dr. Bruce Grayson, and Bruce Grayson is phenomenal. Talk about standing on shoulders. 40 years has been instrumental in advancing near-death experience science. But you say, hey, uh, Bruce, it's a fucking conspiracy. What are you talking about? Obviously, <laughs> this this is a rigged game because it's easier to control people if they think are a biological robot meaningless universe. So that's what is the impediment to any real traction with near-death experience science. But, but he wouldn't go there? He, he, very, very reluctant to go there. And yes, he wouldn't go there. He goes, so, you know, I, it's a, he goes to the one funeral at a time thing. He goes, no, I But just, how does he explain? How does he... Uh, he must know. He's a parapsychologist. He must know it's a rigged game. So how does he uh, rationalize it? I think he rationalizes it. I mean... Where, where I'm going with this and where you are comfortable going with it, which I've come to understand that this is, again, you know, your mountain uh, metaphor is, is, is uh, analogy is perfect. Because when you get into the conspiracy stuff, which we'll get into, it then goes a different level where people go, no, 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 no. That's not, that's not, no, 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 no. That's not the world I live in. I don't live in that world. I don't live in that world. So when you tell somebody like Bruce Grayson, he immediately runs the whole thing. He goes, wait a minute. You mean the guy that I sit with at lunch who's been here for 20 years? He might, it might be more than just he's, ah, oh, he's a rigid old guy that won't change his beliefs. It might be more than that. It might be that he's been somehow influenced or engineered to think a particular way for a particular reason to satisfy a particular agenda. Yeah, that is very, very hard for the scientist to, to think of. And it is a Stockholm syndrome kind of yep, thing, yep, right? Yep, Stockholm yep. syndrome. It's like, I, I, these are my friends. And they just had me over to a big uh, celebration dinner like the one we're having here. And they gave me an award and stuff like that. Now I'm going to go piss on them and say, yeah, but you guys are liars and you, you deceive <laughs> people here and you did this. I, I can't. I, I, I don't feel. Besides the fact that I'll lose my job. I mean, right, I'll right. not only lose my job, I'll lose my prestige. I'll lose Reputation, all this stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, but there's no doubt that in the beginning you were very um, respectful of them in, in terms of I mean, you're always respectful when you talk with people too, but I mean, like you were really thinking that they had something to say and you wanted to listen and you wanted to give them a chance. So you didn't start out debunking scientism, but you quickly realized uh, that it's not a 50-50, it's actually one side is right, the other wrong, which sometimes well, happens, right? And then you... Well, the, the other thing, yeah. the other thing, and I think you, you just hit on it before yeah. with, with what you said. I mean, I, I did really think it was about the data. Yeah. So from, again, from my business standpoint, you know, you realize that some people like uh, Heineken and some people don't like Heineken. Some people like Amstel, which is also made by Heineken. But, <laughs> you know, that's that's the way that it is. And you can't get in there and say, gee, you know, what's wrong with you for not liking Heineken beer? You know what I mean? Mm. So 
there are differences that, that people have. And I thought fundamentally, if it's about the data, then I'll dance the dance, you know, and we'll, I'll listen to your points and we'll go through this and it'll be about the data and we'll sort it out. And that's what science is about. So that went on for quite a while because again, what's looming here in this story that we're telling is I didn't understand conspiracy. I was not open to that at all. I didn't believe any conspiracies. I thought they were all bunk, which is what most people thought up until a couple of years ago. <laughs> you got hit yeah. with the <laughs> pandemic and now everyone's like, well, even, you know, even before, like, like well, I said, like I said to Mark yesterday, I said to him, you know, what's the difference between reality and conspiracy theory? Let's see if you, he, he knew the answer. What's the answer? I don't know. Minimum six months. <laughs> right, right. So, right. but uh, my point is just you, you, you realized that one side is wrong, one is right. You realized consciousness is key. You realize scientism is bunk. And isn't that really, right. isn't that really when we enter skeptical 2.0? Yes. Because then you went off on uh, surfing of topics like near-death experience. I mean, you, you like you said in the former clip, you sometimes revisit old topics, and that's great. So even today, you you, you will still have skeptics on if it fits the 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 whatever you're doing, and they are willing. That's one of the problems. They they're running away. They won't get on. They won't absolutely get, go you know, into base. Yeah. To to emphasize that point, uh, I I seek them out. I mean. And it's harder now because it's even harder. People, the whole environment they know, they has, to you. <laughs> the, oh, the, the environment has changed. You know, and yeah, yeah. I used to get accused of sandbagging people because I'd reach out to these skeptics and they would go no further than researching the name Skeptico, and they'd yeah. say, "This is going to be a this is going to be an easy interview," and they'd come on. And it, I wasn't intentionally trying to sandbag them. No, it's I, their own laziness. It's intellectual laziness. Exactly. Yeah. If, you, if you're not if you're not able to do that, but I did score a lot of interviews with people who had normally not engage and and that was the reason for it but mm. i i i constantly you know reach out to people who have an opposing view and try and get them on the show and it's sometimes successful but yeah. are you going to talk about patricia churchland and ben radford um ben is going to be mentioned by you very briefly in the I, I like, uh, you know, uh, this is going to be a Forum Borealis show too, not just a skeptical show. And usually I have like a, at the end of Forum Borealis, I rant. But at the end of this show today, I'm going to just play a meshed, uh, slimmed version of your clip called Five Things You Should Know About Skeptical, because that's those five things is what is valid today. And there, I think you mentioned briefly, Ben, but you can, you can uh, remind us what was the Churchland thing about? I gotta tell this. I gotta tell this story because it's so much uh, in in my mind, and it was one of those that really did kind of, I don't know. It did change things in terms of I got a lot of a lot of people from a lot of different places contacted me after this show, and it 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 did make a certain impact, you know. So Patricia Churchland is a com very very well known and highly regarded in academia for this kind of what she called neurophilosophy. And it's kind of this blending of religion and neurology and all the rest of this stuff. And she was an academic, which also leads to your other point, you know, so I was talking to skeptics, people who are just skeptics, like we'll talk about Ben Radford, just ah, I'll write for a skeptic magazine. Ah, <laughs> but then I was talking to a lot of academics, like Steve Novella is not a he's a skeptic, but he's not really a skeptic. He's a Yale neurologist. I mean, mm -hmm. you can't, that's, that's pretty 
pretty high up there. And yeah. Patricia Churchland is at UCSD, University of California, San Diego, highly respected school, or she was at the time, and she's doing this neurophilosophy thing. <laughs> Anyways, I always remember this. So I called her up, and you know, I was cordial at the beginning. She agreed to come out. She didn't know what was going to hit her. Oh, I know the show you're talking about. <laughs> oh, people, you need to look it up. Go on, go on. So she she just is really kind of a, had a high and mighty kind of thing, which kind of irked me. So I kind of just was very direct with her. I wasn't at all unpleasant or unprofessional, but I just said, but, you know, you've quoted uh, Dr. Pin Van Lommel, this noted cardiologist from the Netherlands who had published a very groundbreaking book on near-death experience, 20 years, and he'd done all this research, published many peer-reviewed papers. I said, you've misquoted him. And she goes, oh. Really? And she crumbles. She yeah. totally fakes. And she goes, uh, total oh, is, is total met meta? I go, yeah, I can read you the quote if you like. And I can read you what he said after it. And she goes, oh, wait. and then she hangs up. So, <laughs> so I call her back. Yes. So Al, I call her back. And what do you do? What do you do? I mean, these people, uh, they, they are dumb in a certain way. Like from a business standpoint, you just learn this sure. kind of stuff. Like, sure. like you would- they, They're nerds. If, you, in that situation, if you've messed up your deal and then somebody, and you hang up on the guy and he calls you back, you don't answer the freaking phone. No, no she answers the phone. I, I, I certainly, you don't pretend that you didn't hang up. Exactly. <laughs> she answers the phone and pretends like she didn't hang up. And I think she thinks that I'm going to like, just move on. I go, okay, well, let's get back to that quote that you misquoted in your book. And she hangs up again. And I called her a third time and she did. She answered and then she kind of just wormed her way out of the interview. But yeah, it was amazing to listen to because uh, don't they care about well, I, I think um, when how they are perceived? The believability. I, I think. I think there. You know, when you said there's this, there was this spectrum of people out there, and you did a good job of my remembering of how it was, of in terms of people all over the board, in terms of, you know, parapsychology and kind of doubting is this the whole. Mm you know, proposition that we're talking about here of is science fundamentally uh, dogmatic in a way that it shouldn't be. It's not wrestling with the data. That was really an open question. And when people were confronted by Patricia Churchland, this kind of noted academic, mm. completely crumbling mm. when she's confronted directly with the question, I think it caused a lot of people to hesitate and go, wow, I really... I, I really am standing on very shaky ground when I yeah when I advance this position. Susan Blackmore, it was kind of more intelligent because what she did, she too crumbled, but she would like pretended that the attitude she met you, you with is her default attitude. She was like, no, no, I never said that. No, she was running away from the position. No, no, I don't know anything. Yeah, yeah. So she tried to. Uh, uh, grasp desperately onto her academic integrity so you couldn't bust her because she was she was unbustable because she 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 yielded all claims and all but of course as soon as she's out of there and she goes on one of these pro skeptic shows then she's right back to to the misleading uh, dishonest uh, attitude well that's what i busted her on that's what i busted her on and i think it was very effective it's because that is incredibly deceptive to come on and say, well, you know, where I pushed her on, on that is to say uh, that, that I said, are you aware of this research? 
and it was the research of Dr. Jeffrey Long. And she goes, to be honest with you, I haven't stayed up to date on that research enough mm -hmm. to comment on it, which is like a, a, a pseudo real answer. Like you'd hear that from a scientist, you go, wow, that person's legit, you know? It was a gift to you though, because you could hit that in the head with every other skeptic after that who tried to use her as an out. To well, I could also I could also hit her with it because six months later she was out doing her same PowerPoint presentation on how right. near death experience was easily debunked by this and that. So she had directly contradicted herself in a fundamental way. So yeah, it's yeah yeah. There there were a lot of a, a lot of good ones there. Uh, oh yeah. way back, but it was a different. It's a different time back when I thought that there was a realness sure. to that. And also, I, I often wondered about Susan Blackmore in terms of, you, you know, because you, you mentioned the word useful idiot. And I think that the, it's really important. My friend Joseph Atwell has done a great job of this over the years talking about there's the lifetime player, there's the part-time player, and there's the useful idiot. Mm. You know, so the lifetime player is the Gloria Steinem, which we referenced, you know, she, she was recruited into CIA or, or maybe even Jeffrey Epstein, you know, now they have the, yeah. we've they've come out and said, you know, the uh, gifted child kind of thing, maybe groomed from a super young age, you know, mm. all that stuff is like a whole different level of this stuff. And I'm not saying that Susan Blackboard, but I'm saying there's a range of people who are groomed for this kind of role that is going to be manipulated. And then there's, that's the lifetime player. Then there's the part-time player. It's like, hey, I need this op. I need this thing done, you know, and maybe it's a James Randi stumbles into the police station because they caught yeah, him. I was, I was thinking, yeah. Mm. <laughs> exactly. They caught him making illicit phone calls with underage kids, underage boys, which they did. And they got him, in, they put him in the room and they go, pal, you are going to place where you don't want to go because i'll tell you what they do with pedophiles in that place and he just goes oh what do you want and they go okay hmm. i'll tell you what you want when we call you answer when we tell you what to do you do it so is that i'm not saying i don't know if any of that's true i just know you can go listen to the tapes with james randy you can draw your own conclusion but he's just an example anyway we get your point he's an but example blackmore should but be that's the part-time player but then where i was really trying to go so there's the part-time player and then there's the useful idiot yeah. you know which for our best guess is i hate to say it but dr patricia churchland she doesn't she doesn't, she doesn't even aware that she's spewing no. out such nonsense that is completely in line with some party line that someone has decided is the your biological robot meaningless universe paradigm. She doesn't even understand that she's propping that up. She just is by <clears throat> her default. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and this isn't even speculation. It's this exact same playbook going on in mainstream media. You know, uh, Manufacturing Consent, I believe, is the title of the book of uh, Mr. Uh, what's he called? The Darling of the Left, um, um, the Lingwill Professor, um, very old Jewish American guy. What's his name? It's not Soros, is it? No, ma no he's an oh. oligarch. I'm talking about an academic. Manufacturing Consent is his book. Consent um, or dissent? Consent. Oh, manufacturing Consent? Yeah. That's what the media does, he revealed. And right. did you get his name? Oh, yeah, Chomsky. Noam Chomsky. So he, he, he revealed the whole playbook. It works like this. If you are a moron with, with the wrong ideas, then you are an employee with the right ideas. So, so I will hire that guy 
out of journalism school or whatever because he has the right attitude, the right ideas, and I'll sponsor. So it's not like I'm telling every newscaster, you're in on a huge conspiracy here, okay? You have to... No, no, he just... Yeah, I'm here for my career. Exactly. And uh, yeah, okay, these are the talking points for today. Okay, well, let's go. And he believes he's free to do and say what he wants because whatever he says is going to be exactly the narrative that uh, the powers that be, uh, in this case, let's say the owner of Fox News or CNN, wants him to say. So so the conspiracy here is is actually just a little segment a little fragment of the whole kind of game if you see what i mean well so uh, i like that thing lifetime player part-time player and useful idiots and i'll say most of them are useful idiots then the second biggest group is the part-time players the the blackmailing files and then you have the smallest but most essential group of of full-time actors we have to move on, uh, Alex. I, the okay. next clip is kind of in the same line. My next clip is just when Skeptical Point 2.0 is consolidated. Here you are debunking scientism and explaining why consciousness is key. And that's a difference from what you would do in the first hundred shows or whatever. Now you had taken that journey over, over the bridge, burnt the bridge behind you. You're taking a stand. You're coming clear out and saying what's what. One of the topics I think that has been a recurring theme of the show is how we communicate about these topics in the court of public opinion, if you will. And a lot of people will kind of have a knee-jerk reaction when I mention God or when I mention believer or when I mention any of these things. And when I'm pressed, like in the forum, I'm quick to acknowledge that I don't know what God means. I don't, I don't have any specific idea of a guy in a beard or anything like that. But I'm using a shorthand reference to kind of shoehorn us into the public debate. I mean, the big debate is science versus religion. Whether we like it or not, that's what's out there. That's what's socially relevant in terms of the discussion. So in that sense, okay, I'm a believer. If you want to divide the world into skeptics and believers, I'll gladly take the side of believer. I don't think that term means anything to me other than it means if we're going to engage in this dialogue and there has to be sides, this is the side I'll take for purposes of this discussion. Scientific materialism is a failure. I mean, it's a failed proposition. It was a good proposition. I think the evidence is overwhelmingly suggestive that that just doesn't hold up. And I think with it, atheism falls down the drain as well. So I think those propositions are falsified. So yeah, that would push me to whatever other category you want to call it. You know, I'm going to be closer to that other side. I don't think the middle holds here. I don't think the, oh, I'm agnostic. I just have questions about this. I don't think it holds. And the reason it doesn't hold is because you have to make a decision every day in the way that you live your life. We live in a materialistic world, a materialistic economy, and a materialistic society. That is the predominant worldview that's placed upon you. If you do nothing, you are thereby embracing materialism. So you can't say, I'm removed from this discussion. You're in the middle of it. You're the fish. You're in the water. The water is all around you. So you can't say, I'm agnostic. Your life is your choice. And I've had numerous conversations along these lines that the middle doesn't hold. There really isn't a middle ground. Life forces us to choose one way or another. You know, one of the things I've come to appreciate 
about this biological robot, scientific materialism that I bash repeatedly because it's so strongly ingrained, enmeshed in our culture, and yet it doesn't hold up. And that just kind of galls me from a, from a critical thinking standpoint. How can something so wrong have such traction? So I'm always bashing it. On the other hand, especially lately, I've come to appreciate how hard and difficult it is to get beyond that and how reassuring it is to fall back on the notion of materialism. I mean, everything gets really, really fuzzy when you kind of go into this post-scientific materialism realm. And by that, I mean, what is reality? I mean, if consciousness is fundamental. So, right, so this debate of biological robots is that, you know, you're just a robot, you're just a machine. And the counter theory is that and somehow in some way we don't understand this thing of consciousness, this me, this ghost inside the machine is fundamental. So matter isn't fundamental. Consciousness is fundamental. That's one hypothesis. Well, what does that really mean? It means that all these ideas of measurement, all these ideas of reality, if you will, are now have to be put on hold. So we can no longer in that world talk about reality or talk about our experience, or talk about things like time, it, it all kind of falls apart. So in that sense, what I've said before, and, and, and I think it holds, is that, hey, I'm going to play this little game with you called consensus reality. And we're going to pretend that this desk that I'm tapping on is real, is solid. Even though we know it's 99.99999% nothing, it appears solid to me. You can see it. I can see it. We're going to call this reality. And in that same way, we're going to call all these things that we debate about reality. And we're going to call skeptics on this and this and that. But at the same time, while we're doing that, we have to acknowledge that that might all be just kind of a game, if you will. And there may be a bigger, larger truth out there that we're not really dealing with when we talk about things in that way. And that's pretty abstract, but I think you can see where I'm going and why it's necessary to kind of talk out of both sides of your mouth when you talk about skeptics versus believers or scientism or even scientific evidence. Because when I look at the shows lined up chronologically, it's pretty obvious that in the beginning you're you're, you're doing this um, both sides things and and slowly but surely realizing what's what. But at this period in part two, you're deep diving into the consciousness is key type of shows. Yeah. So I, I say that's the hallmark of Skeptical 2.0 that you left the old, uh, I'm going to be the judge of uh, the debate here and, and see who's right. Now you're fully immersed, exploring. You've, you found truth on one side, now you're deep diving into that. Do you agree with that description? Yes. Yeah. Uh, I, I want to ask you, we mentioned that someone started the forum, we mentioned this friend of yours who interviewed you, but um, I, I didn't get to ask you about the open source science website. Uh, I, I sent you one, uh, but I don't think that's the same one. It looks weird, the one I sent you on Telegram. So if you could explain briefly this open source science thing. Open source science, I think we kind of covered before. So I had this idea that there could be that experiments 
could help this situation and that if we threw more data at it. Oh, okay. So, so that's the vehicle you did experiments through. Exactly. Right, right. But didn't you cooperate with someone there? I kept trying to pull people in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've tried to pull so many people in. Anna, is, no. You know, Annelise Ventola. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, she's, she's super nice. I haven't stayed in contact with her. Again, this is kind of like... Did you, did you stay in contact with Eustein, the Norwegian guy? Uh, you know, I've, I've talked to him now over the years, just a couple times. I mean, he went down a different right. He went down a different path. But uh, yeah, I talked to him at, at one point. You know, it's, it's just funny. I mean, this has been such an awesome, awesome part of my life. And like I was telling you about the forum, I love that people come in and then move out or people come in and they're there because I'd offer them a little bit of money to go do something and then they moved out or they weren't really that interested or they didn't have the same, you know, I mean, I'm crazy about, you know, this kind of, so that all happens, you know, yeah. that's so just, you know, as far as shouting out, I mean, the people that I am just, I'm, I'm just indebted to and I feel like have just shaped me, not just the show, it's sheep me, because that's what it's really all about, are some of the tremendous guests that I've had on, you know, right. really, really, really. But didn't you have like, like you had some people who, uh, I know one was a hosting, uh, I mean, even Gordon has hosted a show, but you have had guest I've hosts? I've offered, I've like, yeah, I mean, multiple people have guest hosted. I love for people to guest host. I love for people to get involved in reaching out to people who might want to be on the show. But that was kind of later in the game. You know, after you do it a few hundred times, you're like, I want other people to have that, to have that fun, or not that fun, but that feeling of wanting to know something and then finding out that it's somewhat knowable. You know, if you, mm. if you go and you pursue the truth, like we're talking about, sometimes you find it and that's kind of a real kind of thing so but anyways yeah my buddy um from uh down there in florida state has hosted a couple of shows for me the guy who interviewed for number 200 no 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 uh this guy's he's a professor dr rich greco is the guy who has done multiple shows for me and was really really helpful what was he he the guy who who did the sherman thing with you he really nailed Shermer. I don't remember that one. I think it was show number three or four, very early. Oh, no, no. It, it was so weird because I was listening to it. You didn't say, I mean, <laughs> you were amateurs back then, but from out of nowhere, another voice started to ask questions of Shermer. <laughs> what the fuck happened? I'm in a different idiot. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? And it was for him for a while. And then we forgot all about you. And then suddenly you came in at the end. So uh, that was a chap, at least. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I guess, um, yeah. Is there anything else to say about the second period? Because uh, this guy, you, you made show 200. I think already then you were moving on to, starting to move on to Skeptical 3.0. Not long after that. But that guy, he did a very useful thing. He divided typical skeptics that like stuff like this, but he divided your shows thematically in percentages. And and the ease were twenty five percent back then because you did uh, you went on a huge wave in skeptical two o, anything to do with uh, death, yes, not just NDE, and that's interesting, right? Because you start out uh, materialism or spiritualism, whatever, and then you know the next level at the mountain is, of course, okay, we have to go to death because that's the clue. 
That's the secret. That's where everything is. So the death period is completely logical as the next step of of uh, truth seeking and consciousness. Consciousness is key. Consciousness, death, reincarnation. Can I can I interject something? Yeah, yeah, sure. I'm just spitballing. I, I love where you went with that, but you almost take it from more of a kind of mystic standpoint because I think that's your background and that's your understanding. Mm. And I kind of come around full circle in that I didn't exactly see it that way. I saw it as, a, as an extension of the science. So the science that Dean Radin was doing and Rupert Sheldrick was doing was, to me, conclusive evidence that materialism, the proposition fails, like I said, mm. but it wasn't exactly penetrating, like we're saying, you know, it wasn't getting through. Why isn't everyone else getting the message, getting the, the, mm. the, the, the newsletter on that? So I thought, wait, this is really more of a way that's uh, kind of indisputable, right? So yeah. one of the pillars of materialism is that consciousness is a phenomenon of the brain. So therefore, when you die, consciousness must end. Here are people coming back. And again, from a medical and they're coming at it from a medical standpoint, which is kind of interesting because medicine kind of bypasses in a way some of the science bullshit and just says, hey, you know, you live or you die, you heal your arm or you don't, you know, so they had a little bit of a different perspective, but they were directly getting to this question. And I saw it as a more effective way of really answering this question in a convincing way that would convince other people. The circle back to the mystic part, I think, is that now I realize that that's why the mystics focused on death. Yeah. That's why when you become a yogi, the first thing that you do is you go look at the funeral pyre and you watch the ashes and you meditate there for days and days because mm. eventually it gets through to you that materialism is, is just... Yeah. A joke. I, I am not my body, etc. I am not my feelings. But yeah, uh, yeah no, no, totally. That's that was your focus, your perspective. But I'm, I'm just seeing it in Bert's perspective. That is so natural that the next step is to explore. Uh, and when you explore all that stuff, obviously that will because you look. Whatever was your motive in the first part, it led you to the second part. Skeptical one o had to come before skeptical two o. It's because of the experiences you had in Skeptical 1.0 that you went over to Skeptical 2.0. And I would venture the same happened in Skeptical 2.0. What you experienced there led you to Skeptical 3.0. And with 3.0, I mean, well, you'll see what I mean. But obviously, when it, not even that helped, you were hitting people in the head with the indisputable evidence. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and you realized consciousness is key and nobody was listening. Everyone was out for lunch. So, uh, no, not actually everyone. Let's listen to the next clip. Hey, Alex, coming at you from Grimerica. Darren and Graham just wanted to wish you a happy 15th anniversary, 15 years. And uh, I don't know how many episodes, not enough, but congratulations, buddy. Yeah, thanks, Alex. I mean, he's been so helpful for us, eh, Darren? I mean, he's been great. You know, I remember when we first started this thing in 2013, he was episode, I think he came on our show, episode 29. Um, and then I think he followed us after that because he was, he was pretty helpful. He gave us a chance. You know, he was one of those guys that gave us a chance and supported us along the way. You know, like we couldn't do it without guys like Alex sort of saying, hey, you guys are on the right track here. Go for it. You know, 100%. And I'm sure we're not the only ones. And uh, 
Here's to 15 more years. I mean, I'm actually, I think this year I'm going to get down to San Diego. So maybe this will be the year I finally get to meet Alex. I was looking through emails uh, going back 10, 11 years ago. Um, I was, because Alex was one of these guys where uh, I'd email him, bitching to him about UFOs, because I think he sloughed off UFOs. There was a couple of podcasts I was listening to, and I was like, oh man, he's got to treat the, and then he, and then he turned around on it. And in like 2012, he was like, oh I, yeah, it's time to to hit this topic of UFOs kind of thing. But I always appreciated being able to communicate with a host of this show. Who's got all these scientists on and he's like sort of battling, you know, kind of at the front lines against this, you know, what we knew at the time was sort of a battle over consciousness. And he was just on the front lines. And I went through this whole phase of skeptical podcasts. I went through, ufos and paranormal and the skeptic skeptics guide to the universe you know those those guys and then i just got disgusted by the way they're just ridiculing people that would have sightings or strange experiences and then of course alex was right sort of in the middle you know he was like he was just following the data looking at strange experiences that's fine on one end but not ridiculing people that uh that had these experiences. I mean, he would sort of more ridicule the dogma of science and the scientists that are holding this together you know, like Charles Fort would say, the uh, oh, you know this 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 yeah this dogma. This, this, Graham, the uh, narrator, always has his little anecdote. <laughs> As oh, Blavatsky you know would say, you know what, dude? Because Alex would fit right in with Fort's like Fort's uh, uh, philosophy. I think. I mean, because Fort was fighting the battle that Alex was fighting back then in the early 1900s. Still going, and it's still going. This is the crazy thing. And I can't tell if we're winning or not. Nah, I mean, we are now. We are now. Are In we a winning? certain way, we oh. are. Well, we are. Well, usually you the, think we're losing. This is a, this is a change. I'm no, not used to I, this. I mean, I'm talking about more specific materialism, new atheist battle. Like, oh, so we're going to win that one right before we lose the, the, the big one. The yeah. big one. <laughs> Yay. The go, war. Go war. us. <laughs> we win this little battle and it would have turned out to have been a trap. <laughs> I'm optimistic. As yeah. Well, that whole movement fell apart in the last 10 years, you know, the ones that were pushing back the new atheists and, uh, and the sort of the skeptic, the skeptical crowd, I think. That PZ Myers kind of went off the deep end, I think. That was great. That was like a paradigm. I remember being able to, I was like, so all these people, uh, the, the Hudson Valley, because we were talking. I wasn't at that the Hudson one. Valley. Oh, you weren't. Oh, yeah. I, I, I asked PZ of, of a mess, uh, a question with the mic in front of the whole crowd about like so all these people talking about the hudson because it was this hudson bay flap right the ufo i mean that was one of the biggest most under all right we should get out of here this in, is in an the, episode in the US, you know? um, <laughs> congratulations alex <laughs> here's to 15 more years buddy i might go to san diego this year i think he's somewhere down around there so <laughs> of course, that was Darren and Graham. 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 Graham and Darren from Grimerica. They touched upon uh, a few interesting things, but before that, they they go also a, a bit back. 2013, they said that. Uh, how, how did you get in touch with these guys? They reached out to me. They had they had listened to the show. They were fans of the show. Hmm. They, they were talking. I think uh, Graham said the same thing to me that you've been helping them. Uh, and, and I think that's like, I think many people have that impression because you're so enthusiastic. That's like typical for uh, idealists. Uh, and people are used to that, I guess. 
So you're very supportive of, of other people and other people's projects. It's like um, you're coming from a place of surplus, not scarcity. It's called a new business, for those who don't know. The old business is, is scarcity-driven, right? It's the competition and yes. you have to like uh, uh, sabotage for each other, etc. But when you have the new business kind of frame of mind, then you know that, no, 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 the more the merrier. So... Um, I don't know what, if, if that's even on your radar, but that's completely in harmony with how you're, you're acting with other people. So they are very appreciating of your, your contribution. Well, that's awesome. You know, like we've kind of said a couple of times, it's to be a light bringer mm. would be all that any of us could ever do in our highest contribution. So I, I don't always do that. I, I'm not perfect, but. That's my goal, you know. Mm. So, but it's it's telling because these guys, you know, I look at the the first guy we we had on here. Um, well, the second guy, uh, Greg Calwood, he called himself. He said, uh, "Hi, Stone or something." Yeah, kind of, kind of. But you're damn professional, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're, yeah, you're far beyond a stone no, he, level. He's, he's fronting on. He's fronting on that, ain't he? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but these two guys, I haven't he heard much of them. But I'm actually going on their show soon, uh, so I'm going to do my research. They come off as more like laid back stoners, and I don't mean to insult them if they're not <laughs> into that kind of thing at all. I'm just saying they they more look look like they're should I say more relaxed in their approach to oh, things? Well, they're they're Canadian. They're awesome, <laughs> awesome, awesome Canadians. No, I mean there right. are. You know how many great Canadian uh, comedians there are and entertainers. I mean yeah. that culture breeds a certain. I've noticed that. I don't know why. Well, because because they're they're just there's a warmth about Graham and Darren. There's a genuineness about them, and uh, like you know the the part I thought you were going to pull out of that is like, hey man. Yeah, I didn't. I I wasn't woken to the UFO thing. No, that I is the part. No, no, that is the part I'm gonna. I just wanted to give them a little kudos before we go back on on track. So let's do that. Yes, they were pointing out. They were even nagging you about it, and um, I think the UFO really is. Uh, you know, skeptical three O. Now you've done all the inquiries that's possible and from your 2-0 experience you realize shit this rabbit hole goes much deeper than i thought this is when ufos and conspiracy becomes high up on your radar if you can put it like that because uh, notice what they were talking about the battle the paradigm battle very funny uh, how they pointed it out in fact before you even comment i want to play a very brief clip listen to this before we celebrate, you know, the coming paradigm shift, I think we have to take a good look at even this brief little snippet of history and learn a lesson from that and be very cautious in our optimism that there is going to be a lot of change. I don't see a lot of evidence for it. Then again, in a recent interview with Dr. Mario Beauregard, I asked him that question directly, and I thought he had a very strong argument for the fact that there is this change. And he's a neuroscientist in Montreal, and he says, hey, at my university, at my conferences, in the, in the journals that I publish in, I definitely see a shift, a change in the openness to these ideas in the last 10 years. So maybe I'm being too pessimistic. 
But isn't it a little bit strange that we can walk down this path and we can all have this conversation about belief, about what's important and what we know. And we have a tendency, no matter how many times we bring it up, to gloss over the reality that we live in a world, in a society that has made these kind of topics taboo. So that leads me to one question, and that is, why are so many of the topics we talk about on Skeptico taboo? And mind you, this was said before you went deep into UFOs and conspiracies. So even from the completely legitimate stuff, evidence-based, mainstream, academic stuff that you were flushing out, still taboo. Can't go there. Of course, that didn't stop you from going <laughs> deeper. But but do you agree with me that Skeptical 3.0 is when your focus is shifting over to the really deep end? Yeah, it's where it really kind of comes in line with a lot of the work that you've done, I think. Yeah, I agree. And, and that's when I, I think that's when we connected too. Well, you know, it's, what's funny, and it's funny listening to the Darren and Graham thing, it's like, I think that I was... I was never worried about intellectual respectability, you know, I wasn't worried about the taboo topics that then no one would, but I was somewhat influenced by the little bit of the Stockholm Syndrome thing, a little <laughs> bit of the, you know, don't go it's it's like um it's like a guy once once told me and he, <laughs> and, and I love this. This is so true. He said there's a crazy line there's a crazy line and you don't want to go past it. Mm. And then he proceeded to tell me that his crazy line was underground bases. <laughs> I remember a few <laughs> years ago recounting this story to someone else saying, now I know there's, there's a pretty substantial, very substantial, I would say, evidence for underground bases. And then you can take the really exaggerated stories and maybe those aren't true and maybe those are misinformation, but there's a lot of other ones where they got the vents, you know, and they see the cars yeah. driving into the mountain and stuff like that. And they videotaped it and stuff like that. So not to get too far. It's afield. funny how random his, his line was, but that's the exactly. Thing. Yeah. But that's exactly. Yeah. Go on. So, so I, my, I was at that point, I was at that point of, really pulling back a little bit and saying, you know what, if, if I do cross that crazy line, what's perceived to be a crazy line, it is going to be another line. And, and it's, that is a chasm. That's not a line. It's a chasm. And once you jump over the other side, it's like on the mountain analogy you're using, there's a lot of people that are going to come up. They're going, no, man, don't go there. No, thanks. I'm not jumping that line. No, no. Yeah. Yeah. The overtone window is controlled by the powers that be, right? That's the educational institutions, the media, and it's been threatened by internet, uh, which is why they now are extending Operation Mockingbird to the internet. Well, they don't right, do all the time, right. but now they're screwing the, the tight, the screws on social media. But that's the very narrow overton window that the public can afford. Then you have individuals and they usually have a overton window that is a little bigger than the public one, but it can go in many different directions. Some people can have like a poly, you can have like people who are aware of the political conspiracy, but they may be atheists. They have no idea. Right. You see what I mean? So you have very many, I see, see the same with Sheldrake. He is aware that Wikipedia is hijacked by this, this crazy fanatical gang. But 
He's aware of it in his field. Yes. He's not aware that exact same thing is happening every other field which can be regarded as controversial somehow yes. for powerful interests. Yes. Not who won, uh, you know, the football game in 2015, the championship. No, no, no. The, oh, you can rely on Wikipedia. But political stuff, social stuff, you name it. Even a crime, pedophilic stuff, you name it. So people don't know that the Overton window is gigantic, really. Well, if qu you, quick, quick story, yeah? quick story that was, yeah. you know, fundamental to shifting things for me. So once you cross the chasm and you go, okay, I'm willing to, I'm willing to go there, right? The evidence for, and, and, you know, Graham is so right to call me out for that because I knew that the UFO thing was real and I wasn't really willing to go there fully. I wasn't able to, I wasn't willing to fully engage with that because I just felt like I wasn't ready. You know, I wasn't ready. And when I said the UFO thing, it's the ET thing too, because I, I was amazed that people will go with the UFO thing and then they'll go, yeah, but I just can't get over the, I can't get to the abduction thing. Or I can't get to the ET. Yeah, that, that's one line. The next line after there is abductions. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> who is driving? Who, who's flying around in those things? Anyways, but what I was going to say, as you relate to the social media, I remember, so the, and the conspiracy thing, the first thing I wake up to is JFK, because there's mm. like these million old things I would, and then I remember, I've told this story a million times, and I don't know if you ever played this clip, but I, I'm sitting on the edge of the bed after I'd watched like 40 hours of JFK videos and saying to my wife, I said, wow, you know, that's, I guess it, it really was a conspiracy, I said, but like this 9-11 thing, oh, I could never go there. You know? mm. <laughs> so obviously 9-11 to anyone who doesn't know, obviously a conspiracy, obviously an inside job. And I remember one of the guys I was following- I mean, the official version is also a conspiracy theory. So exactly, that's, exactly. That's undisputed. But, but one of the people in this guy was on the show and he's done some great work. His name is Luke, Luke Rudkowski and he oh, has yeah. a tremendous- yeah, we are change. You yes, know, love that guy. On the streets. He's done unbelievable work over the years. Fantastic guy. But I remember Luke Rutkowski way back. This is at least seven years ago, maybe 10, but at least, at least seven years ago. He's the first guy who pointed out the demonetization and the shadow banning. Right. And it happened to him. Mm. And <clears throat> he demonstrated it. He said, here's my YouTube channel. He goes, look. This thing doesn't, it no longer generates any revenue. And I've called YouTube on it and I've emailed them and they just don't say anything. But here's the point of my story. I remember being out in Silicon Valley and uh, meeting this guy, I'm not gonna mention his name, but this guy's really a pretty top-notch guy. He had a lot of connections with some serious Silicon Valley people, you know, like Google and that kind of stuff. He knew some mm -hmm. people at pretty high level, you know? Mm -hmm. And I was telling him this because I had now been awoken to the, conspiracy game and i always remember he's like no that just that just isn't true that just can't happen they would never do that google would never do that it's fundamentally against everything they believe in well yeah. <laughs> now that that's not even that's acknowledged yeah. it's acknowledged that we shadow ban people now they brag about it yeah they brag about it it's so in your face so th this is part of this evolution that anyone goes through who seeks the truth if there is a if there is a moral to this story or if there is some theme or some arc to this story of skeptico it's that 
this is one of the things you encounter. You keep thinking, you know, oh, I've crossed this hill, so now I'm I'm there, you know, and then you say, well, what's I wonder what's over that next hill, and then you cross that one, and then you realize that it never really ends, and it's really the journey that you're on, which is yeah, yeah, what it was yeah. all about anyway. Yeah, like Gandhi said too. He said that. Uh, um, I always mess up this quote, but uh, basically, you can't distinguish between the path, the way, and the goal. They are one. Yes. In other words, of course, the means doesn't justify, uh, how do you say it in English? The goal does. The ends. Uh, the ends doesn't justify the means. It, it goes to that too. Because the means is reflecting of your end. It's, it's, it's like that old uh, quote. Is it Buddha? Uh, one of these wise people said, if you want to know your, your former life, look at the life you're living now. If you want to know your future life, look at the life you're living now. Ooh. It's the eternal now, right? And that's in, it's being informed by what pre uh, happened before, and it's informing where you're going. And that's the thing, because this is a callback to what we said in the beginning. When I was kudosing you for having this merciless, honest, sincere, no other agenda, just getting to the bottom of the truth. So it worked, and you realized, bam, it's an artificial, it's a stuck on stupid debate, let's move on, bam. Number two, right? Now you deep dive into the all exciting signs on the one side, the consciousness, the death, everything. And, and you realize also the game is rigged because you're not getting any traction. You're not get, why aren't we canceling the question of who's right and what's what? Why aren't everybody just saying now, yes, consciousness is key? And that's why I would say the former clip, which ended, why is everything we do taboo? Yes. I would say that was like the last echo of Skeptical 2.0 and Skeptical 3.0, you would describe like this. I feel that the Skeptico show has gone through a couple major revisions. I always think of Skeptico 1.0 as being follow the data wherever it leads. And that was me thinking that science and skepticism was pretty much of a straight up game. And we just had to dig into the science and we'd get the answers that we need. And there's some truth to that. But I think what it led to was a greater truth that I call Skeptico 2.0, at least to myself, I call it that. And that was about, it's more than the data. It's about the larger culture of science. It's about deception, conspiracy. It's about the way the world works and the motivations of the individuals involved. And we've explored that a great deal on Skeptico and it's led to some interesting places. So with that, I kind of see the show moving towards Skeptico 3.0 the data collective, how you and I can learn from each other and crowdsource this journey that I've been talking about, that I have been on, but really I've been on it with you because as you know, if you followed the show, especially recently, I've relied more and more on skeptical listeners to suggest guests. And you guys have done a fabulous job of that. There's been some great emails that really are much better than I could write to entice people to join me on the show. And they've led to some really great interviews that I've grown a lot from. But I want to take it one step further. Now, I've opened up a thread on the Skeptical Forum so I can take advantage of this incredible collective knowledge of the Skeptical listeners. And hopefully, you can help guide me and we can work together to figure out what direction I should take this interview. 
And I think that has two benefits. One, obviously, I can be better informed and ask better questions. But the other thing that I really want to get to is I've noticed so many times in the Skeptico interviews that it's really the second interview or the follow-up to the first interview where some of the main meatiest issues really get resolved. It's the interview 2.0, if I can stretch the revision metaphor a little bit further. But I think that's where all the action happens. And what I'm hoping is that by you participating in helping me formulate the ideas for these upcoming interviews, we can work together, we can maybe even collect some information, have an exchange with the guest, so we can actually have a, a pre-email interview through the forum, and then really get to some of the meaty stuff in the show. And I think the question here is, what direction should we take Skeptico as we evolve towards this Skeptico 3.0 that I'm talking about? A couple of areas I want to pursue further, and they really have a tendency to polarize people or maybe more accurately to really put people off. But one of the nice things about doing a show like this and not caring too much about growing your audience as much as you can or appealing to a certain crowd is that you don't have to worry if people are put off by these topics. But one topic is UFOs and the ET hypothesis. I think it's central, central. I've explored it a little bit in terms of how that might relate to consciousness, what those reports mean. But I think wrestling that to the ground and figuring out as best you can what the reality of that is, is central to answering these big picture questions. Yeah. And I call this clip On Skeptical 3.0, Community Inputs and Extending into the Deep End. Summing up a, a little what we already said, but um, uh, you, did, you're touching two things I want us to comment upon here now. One of them is you have experimented with various formats, haven't you? Because I, I, oh, yeah, you I teased you some time ago about some of your early shows were super short. And I guess <laughs> you didn't have much compersion back then because there wasn't many podcasts. So I guess a 20-minute show could fly back then. Yeah. Although, of course, to be fair, in general, they were about an hour. But I, I remember when we connected, you were like, you, you were very swayed, enticed by the idea of having long form. And uh, when I listened also to your, because all, all these statements of Alex that I'm playing today are like um, announcements or, or, or commentaries that he has given at certain turning points in the show. And so uh, uh, in many of them, you are thinking aloud yes uh, and that's also very very unique thing with your show that you always try to include the listeners and the skeptical uh, gang but you are like looking for different ways to do things uh, it's it, it, i think it's related to what we already talked about that you for example that you're doing experiments in parallel with the show, that's very unique. So it's like you always, it's not just that you're trying to look for new topics, you're also trying to look for new ways and vehicles. And we'll get to some even more laudable projects uh, a little later. But right now, it looks to me as if you've been open to experimenting with the format too. Well, yeah. And uh, you're right to point out that when I did, first time I did, we did some interviews. I interviewed you, I think, first, and then you interviewed me. I can't remember, but or maybe you interviewed me. I can't remember, but yeah, I I, I was very very uh, 
interested in what you had done and how you had done the long form interviews. And it, it just opened my eyes because again, it's like so many things, you know, you have a block, you go, oh yeah, nobody wants to listen to more than an hour. And then you see somebody who just really opens somebody up and it goes and it grows. Yeah, but you have taken notice of that the second show is often the breakthrough. Exactly. But you did one hour shows. <laughs> well, because, but again, see, that's where you kind of learn from other people and I learned from you. So yeah. I, I thought my mindset was, yeah, you need more time, but you can't do it more than an hour. You can't do it more than an hour at a time. Mm. And what you've shown with these kind of deep dive kind of things and then brogan you know really broke the mold too no one yeah. thought they could do that thing and it, i don't think you were copying from rogan i think you guys both no no i wasn't aware of him when i started right right so anyways you know you you understood that in a way that i didn't understand and the other thing i discovered is second shows don't work they don't work. Two shows right. don't work. It doesn't. Right. That that idea for the format doesn't work. What does work is the longer show, where you kind of let people spend an hour to 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 wear them down and then open up in a second <laughs> yes. hour. <laughs> shh, shh, that's a business secret. <laughs> yes, it is. No, but I, I learned one thing from you. I learned it very late, unfortunately, I, and I'm trying to implement it now. And that's let the guest empty himself for the first part of the interview. Let him say all the stuff without interrupting. And then you can start to tangle with the guest much more and and do the so-called interruptions and even push them a little, etc. I don't know if that's a deliberate... I've asked you before, you never gave a clear answer. I don't know if that's a deliberate model you used or if it just grew to that or if it's just unconscious. But it's brilliant, man. And I'm going to copy it and, and, and try to do it more like that in my my long form shows. Nice. Yeah. I don't know that I've always followed that, but you're definitely right. I've learned that the hard way, you know, is mm, it? Okay. I mean, everybody's like that, you know, I mean, it's. No, 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 no. I would say everybody, uh, people do this in completely different ways. No, everybody needs, everybody needs, what it does is when you go on a show and you've been on enough shows and you're probably not like this because you do a show, but if you've just written a book and you don't do a lot of shows, one of your big frustrate, one of your big anxieties is, am I going to get a chance to get my message out? You know? Right. So if you kind of. If that happens at the beginning, then there, it kind of shifts, like you're saying, you know, then there's a shift and people go, okay, yeah, I got my message out and he plugged the book and he asked me questions about the book. Okay. So now he's asking me other stuff. Okay. I can let my guard down. Right. Right. I always make sure when it's like more like a book thing, like I know the guy at the other end is doing the rounds because it's a new book. I mean, I, I'm not uh, advertisement shows. I'm not having them on for that. But when that that's one of their agendas, um, I always say to them, and of course, at the end of the show, we're going to plug the book and we're going to plug other books and blah, 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 so that they know they calm down. But I'll tell you, one time you didn't do that. I mean, uh, that format uh, that I talked about, uh, and perhaps that can explain some of the outcome of the show. That's when you had on the very fascinating sweet man called, damn, what's his name? The guy who was, I mean, he has a wife talking about the deep end. He was allegedly abducted by aliens and uh, he was in everything, a CIA expert. Oh, Whitley, Whitley Schreiber? Yeah, yeah, you didn't do it there. 
And which one hit? And Remember? I mean, you had several. The one that uh, was turned a little funny, where you wanted to go uh, full Roman Jesus on him, and he could relate so much well, see, to. You, you know what? I, uh, God, I don't know. This is going to be boring as heck for people, just all these old stories. But Whitley's a very recent story in terms of Skeptico. And Whitley Strieber is a super important person in our culture, in our whole entire culture. He is super, super important guy. He wrote the book Communion, which was a just a phenomenal international bestseller, but it wasn't just a bestseller. It was a culture changer. It was in the bookstores and people walked by and they saw that picture of an alien and they went, oh my God, it brought back memories of them being abducted. And this happened so many times. Well, Whitley has a very interesting background too. Whitley was MK Ultrad, man. Right, right, right. And like, if people can't get there, like, like we're doing this whole retrospective, you know, kind of thing, which is so awesome. But like, I would have, I could have never used those words, <laughs> you know, 10, 15 years ago. He was MK Ultrad. I could have never said it with just the matter of fact way I'm saying it now, but it's the truth. And that's what he says. That's what he says happened to him. And then you can say, well, oh, he's making that up. That's not credible. Well, it would be less credible if we didn't have concrete evidence that they were MK altering all sorts yeah, of people. Yeah. And then some of them went on to be serial killers and you know, all the rest of this stuff. So once you start unpacking that and then you put that into the lens of ET, you know, then you got this other thing, but then you gotta listen, you gotta go full skeptical on it. You say, Whitley, that doesn't give you a pass for, then hypothesizing that the Roman collapse was due to environmentalism and the same kind of thing we're facing with global warming today. Full stop. Global warming isn't supported by the science. The science doesn't support that. All those islands, they said they were going to be flooded. They're not flooded. They're still there. Antarctica, go look at the satellite photos of the ice. There's more ice there now than there was 30 years ago or 25 years ago when our... our no, but now it's climate change, you know, because then they, they don't have to stick to... The point to is the, the same. Whitley Strieber is a phenomenal person. He's a cult culturally he's super important in what he's done and he's telling the truth but he's not right about <laughs> he's not right about the roman history he's not right about jesus if he is right i mean maybe he's right maybe he's wrong i don't know but he's got to stand up and he's got to take the grilling and i think he was really surprised because we we're getting along and all this other stuff and i go wait you can't go there yeah you had it on before uh, with a more harmonious interview but i think you my point was just that you were derivating from the formula there so maybe if he had, he was frustrated that he couldn't tell you what the book was about. You you didn't seem interested in that. So if he, he had gotten that first period to empty himself and then you'd, you know, go yourself or something, maybe it would be different. But it, it was just an example. Maybe it's not important. Maybe it would. The, the point being, I, I know what you're saying with regard to that, but it's like one of my pet peeves, and this is more inside baseball podcaster stuff. Yeah is that people who feel like uh, because they've written a book that all the questions, you know, have to be directly out of the book. You know, I always remember when I interviewed uh, Colonel uh, 
Colonel John Alexander, who is super interesting, super, super interesting guy and important guy in the whole UFO thing. And I did a very fair job on his book. And then I kind of grilled him on some really, really hard questions. He got really mad at me at the end. And he said, I know people and this kind of thing. But, you know, I, I, my thing was like, hey, you had a shot, right? I pumped your book. I promoted your book. I announced your book a bunch of times. You got your part. Now I got my part. Mm. I get to ask my questions. Same with Whitley. Really was the same with Whitley. Yeah. It, just Whitley, if you let him, he'll go on and on and on. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. like, like it's just like this is the way it is because I wrote it down in a book. Well, not exactly. Yeah. No, there's there's always a little quid pro quo in those um, settings. I agree. But my point is that three O was digging deep into conspiracies, into UFOs, into all these taboos uh, that exist there. And I would say the transition to 4.0 is more, there's an important nuance. I think you think you're still stuck at 3.0. No, you're not. You're at 4.0. And I'll explain you what 4.0 is. But before that, listen to this. Many congratulations to Alex and... Happy birthday, Skeptico. You don't look a day over nine. Uh, yeah, this is Gordon from Rune Soup. And I'm just thinking back, I guess, on my Skeptico journey. And I can't even remember when it began. Uh, I don't remember when or how I found Skeptico, but it was about a decade ago. Uh, and I remember when I did, because I was still having those long London commutes, uh, Alex's voice and his quest uh, and his continuous seeking were just eye-opening and, and wonderful. On uh, I got two hours a day, uh, which means by the time I found Skeptico, I, uh, I was able to plumb the back catalogue and, uh, and, really, and really, you know, keep up to date with it ever, uh, ever since then. And so it's, I mean, this is an amazing achievement. And I guess... Being a podcaster as well, one of the things that I guess I take most from my journey with or experience with Skeptico is really inspiration, I suppose. Uh, what I love about Skeptico and Alex in general is that he has the guests that he wants to have, he has the discussions that he wants to have, uh, and, and he goes on the quests that he wants to go on. And that, you know, as a, as a fellow creator is, is really, really inspirational. It doesn't... Skeptico never falls into that formulaic format of someone's got a book out uh, and then they, they do the rounds of shows. That might happen. But generally, it's the things that Alex wants to explore and Alex wants to talk about. And I think that's why we all stick with it, right? Because we are following along with a sincere seeker with no other motivation other than the seeking. So once again, Congratulations, many happy returns, happy birthday to one of the best podcasts out there, and uh, and long may it continue. Of course, that's Gordon White from the brilliant blog slash podcast Rune Soup. It's, it's funny, Alex, because <laughs> we're talking about the other guys that, like, if Gordon is very dry, and if the Grimerica folks is on the op polar opposites very loose, then uh, I, I would put Greg Carlwood uh, somewhere in between <laughs> those two poles. 
<laughs> yes. Maybe you don't yes. agree. Okay. Yeah. No, no, it's 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 fine. Yeah. It's so it's so awesome hearing from these people. Uh, it's it's so so nice of you to do this. It really is. So, so what was your? I mean, Gordon. Even and I'm doing it now. Guest hosting. How did he end up guest hosting? How did you connect? Gordon just reached out. Like he said, he had heard the show, and you know, it it was topics he was interested in, and yeah. It was, did he have his famous blog then, or? No. Well, Gordon no, said. No, no, let me correct that. Let me correct that. He might have had, he, no, I don't think he had, I'm almost sure he didn't have Rune Soup, but he definitely didn't have a podcast or had done any interviews. No, because he started when I started in 15. Um, and he got interested in it and I was like, he was a little bit hesitant and I said, hey, why don't you do, why don't you guest host Skeptico as kind of a way to kind of. Ah, so he did that before he launched his own. Right. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, because and I, I know he had his famous blog that people were following. People were big on blogs in the old days. Well, a little older days than now. Well, they still kind of are, but blogs were a big thing uh, for a while, very hyped. Yeah, he had some success with his, and then he went full podcast. And I, I'm not to put words in his mouth. He spoke for himself, but he did mention the word inspiration. And I do think you've influenced a lot of of people out there. Uh, when they started, all of the people we've heard from now started after you. I mean, <laughs> most most of the internet started after you. So, well, Gordon, yeah, you want to say something? You know, Gordon, as soon as you as soon as you kind of dip into stuff, so you, Gordon's brilliant, and uh, his writing is phenomenal. Yeah. And I always, I always thought his blog was fantastic, and I like his podcast too. But his writing is just really the thin red line. I, I was really a bummer when he. Uh, when he ended that little newsletter that he used to do, but still a lot of great stuff. Yeah. And the reason I wanted to play him now was that he uh, is symbolic, I think, of Skeptical 4.0, because if in 3.0, you you have realized the game is rigged. Now you want to explore all these crazy things. You want to go behind the crazy line. That you do very well in 3.0. But in 4.0, it's becoming more existential. Now you know it's a conspiracy. Now you have to understand why is the game rigged? Why is there... So you're becoming more philosophical, I perceive. Right. You're meeting me in this space. And Gordon, I think, is a good representative of that space. And um, let's just let's just listen to your account of skeptical 4.0 existentialism and philosophy, as I call it. You do it by asking four essential questions. Bear with us, folks. It's one of the last clips, but it's it's a long one. But it's an excellent one. It really it really nails everything down for your journey up to this point here, uh, when you read these four essential questions. Four questions that are driving me right now in terms of what I'm thinking about with future shows. And as I've said all along about Skeptico, I've always viewed this as my personal journey shared with you, but that's holding something back because it's really a collective journey. Your input and your feedback really does make this an interactive process for me, but I'd like to hold on to the idea that this really is my personal journey and I decide where it goes. So if you'll allow me that little kind of egocentric kind of thing, I'm going to hold on to what I think are the four questions that are driving 
me forward in terms of Skeptico at this point. Question number one, are we biological robots in a meaningless universe? As you know from listening to this show, that really isn't the question for me anymore. I mean, it really was my question initially a few years back. But now the question for me is, how can this still be propped up as a real question among what are supposed to be the intellectual elites of science? It's really a strange, strange situation. And I think we have to continue to dive into that question head on, you know, head on, not just keep proving them wrong, baby, proving them wrong, but saying, how and why are they promoting such nonsense? So that's question number one. You ready for question number two? And it's an absolute huge one. Is there a reality? Is our normal, and I'm using air quotes there, psychological state to be this experience of fundamental discontentment? And actually, I don't even know how anyone can deny that. I mean, that's just everywhere. <laughs> that's what our culture is. But the second part of the question is really the most significant. And that is, is there a way to change that? And let's marry that to the first half of the first question, the question I didn't ask, are we biological robots in a meaningless universe? So the answer is obviously no, we're not. So we have this condition, we're in this predicament. And then is this predicament that our mind has created this continual dialogue of fundamental dissatisfaction with the way things are? And is it possible to change that state, that consciousness? Is it possible to raise it? Of course, this is what so many spiritual teachers throughout time have been telling us is possible, that there is a way to transcend that state. And I'm holding back from the, any kind of talk about extended consciousness at this point, right? I'm trying to confine it to our reality, if you will. And all these terms are, you can shoot holes in them, as we all know. But these first two questions have to do with our reality. So again, question two is, is it possible to awaken out of that state of perpetual dissatisfaction, perpetual discontentment with that internal dialogue that's going on in our head? I think that's an important question. That's question two. So the next two questions that are driving the Skeptico mission at this point have to do with this extended consciousness thing that I always talk about. And again, the words don't exactly match up. Extended from what? I mean, what are we to make of this reality and the other reality? And why would we have this kind of dualistic, that's extended, this isn't, all those problems. But you get what I mean, right? So the third question is this transcending of time and space. So we understand at this point that there is this extended reality. There's an NDE reality, an OBE reality, an ET reality, a psychedelic DMT reality, if you want to stay with three-letter acronyms. What is our relationship between this reality and that reality? And more importantly, if that other reality, if one of its key characteristics is that it transcends space and time, then what does it tell us about this reality that is confined to space and time? And does it suggest, as I think it might, that this reality is a lesser reality, if you will? Lesser in the sense that it's further away from the ultimate reality. And again, don't pick on my words here because there's no words to talk about this stuff. But the basic concept is there seems to be a lot of evidence pointing us to the ultimate paradigm shift 
that we really are looking at things from the wrong end of the telescope. We are in the unreal reality of time and space continuum where things have been locked down to work a particular way so we get this particular experience. But anyone who's outside of that says, yeah, you guys are on this little tiny tip of this huge iceberg and that's okay, you can get that experience, but don't get too attached to it because it's really such a small part of the overall thing. So that is, I think, the third question for me, is what is the relationship between this space-time reality that we occupy and we play this science game in and we play this skeptical dialogue questioning game in? What is the relationship between that reality and some of these extended realities that we will never know, but we do get bits and pieces, fragments of information back from. So we do get information back from into e-science. We do get information back from ET contact. We do get information back from OBE. So I'm asking, you know, what happens if we filter that information through one very narrow filter? And that is, what is the relationship between our reality and the larger reality? That'd be kind of the third question. And the fourth question is very much related to that. And the demonic part is gonna rattle a lot of folks, I'm sure. But it is kind of interesting how this brings us back full circle in a way. So if the opening question was not, are we biological robots in a meaningless universe, but how does such a ridiculous meme remain intellectually viable? I think Gordon is kind of trying to answer that question and saying, hey man, that's the program. That's the demonic game. But I broaden it a little bit and say the question for me is, what is the role of deception in this process? And I, like all of us, am reluctant in some ways to go there I, because I'm not sure it's the right question. But we keep bumping into that reality, that Gnostic reality that I will create better than the creator gods because the creator gods are really making a mess of things. So there's so many layers to that, because as appealing as that Gnostic sensibility is, it doesn't really give us any hope of transcending outside of this little street fight. Certainly not in the way that we talk about, for example, NDE experiences and the potential that maybe exists for something that truly does transcend that back alley brawl between the creator gods and those of us who want to create better than them. So bringing that back to the question is, what is the role of deception in all of this? Why is there deception? Why is there evil, as we've talked about many times on this show? And I think this question, as I'm stating it here, for me, gets to the deeper question of the nature of this evil. Because it's one thing to say that there's evil in the world, and that's an evildoer, as our ex-president from many years ago, George Bush, said. And again, I'm trying to bring it to more of a personal journey of who are we? Why are we here? Why are we clearly being deceived at various points in this process? What is the purpose of that? How, who does that serve? And why does that seem to be so much a part of the process and tricksters and all the rest of that almost at every turn? So there's four questions for you. There are four questions for me, I should say, because as I said, those are the four questions that are on my mind and are, for the most part, driving my thoughts and ideas in terms of who I'm talking to right now and who I want to talk to. And it isn't always, of course, a perfect fit because sometimes somebody pops up and I want to talk to them and they come on the show. But I do feel good sharing with you these ideas and these directions and what's on my mind along those lines.
you understand uh, why I associate, you even mentioned Gordon there. So four essential questions representing skeptical 4.0, because here, as we just heard, you're going full philosophy, full existentialism. You're really taking it to another level than before. And I'd say another example, I think, of that kind of, uh, like, like I associate Gordon to that kind of level you're operating on now, but also your other friend, um, uh, Eon Bite. Miguel. Miguel, of Miguel. course. Yeah. Um, I think. Hello. Yes, I agree. I'm a good fit for Skeptico 4.0. How's it going? <laughs> Welcome to the show, Miguel. Oh, we yeah. really got Miguel on here? No, it's a bot. I am a bot. <laughs> he just came for the cake. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it's pre-recorded, but since I'm a precog, I'll guess every. I know everything you're going to say. My friend, it is so awesome to have you here. This guy, Al. Somebody has to do this for for you and for oh my god, everybody. Really, it's been so great. It's you know reconnecting with all these people and. That's yeah, it's super great. So yeah, good deal. Good. Yeah, we were just uh, at the point now that Miguel Connor from Aeon Byte Gnostic Radio just entered the chat, and we were just talking about how Skeptico has evolved to what we call point four zero. And I was just saying, I think Gordon White kind of uh, represents that level of operation, but I think you do too, Miguel. And <laughs> point four zero is Alex is going much more deeper into existential and philosophical issues than I used to. Well, see, you're talking to a guy who started from that standpoint. So, yeah. like, we're trying to we're trying to bring Miguel back down to our world. He's out there fighting the Archons and you know, <laughs> yeah. oh, we're just trying to meet, we're trying to meet in the middle somewhere between this grounded worldly pursuits of truth and this existential, there is no truth kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. The Hassan Sabah, nothing is true. Everything's possible. Everything's permitted. Sorry. But uh, yeah, that's where the fun is. I mean, obviously, I've always thought she was doing philosophical stuff. I know, um, same with Al. I don't see, a, I really don't see a separation. I think we've always been sort of holistic in this view. Uh, I mean, I've done plenty of shows recently on um, simulation theory, brought some scientific people. So uh, that's the beauty of being able to podcast once a week or so. Yeah, uh, but uh, how did you discover Skeptical, Miguel? Uh, I started listening here and there, and people started offering, and then Alex invited me. I actually looked on the uh, YouTubes, and it was 2015, and I must admit it at first, I thought Skeptical was an atheist show. I thought it was so... Uh, it was only later, a few uh, after appearing on a show, a few weeks later, I was like, "Oh man, this dude is not a new atheist. I like him even more. I liked him <laughs> the first time I was on his show, but it was nice to see that it was far from it." Yeah, coffee. What was it? Coffee, cigarettes, and gnosis. Yeah, that's how it started. And then I don't know. I, there were, I had a dream years ago, and I wrote a short story like when I was like. 20 years old, still Catholic, and I called it, it was Aeon Bite, and it was this sort of space adventure, and for some reason, I, I decided to change the name, so, and, um, but that was a while ago, yeah, in 2015, when I met you, it was already Aeon Bite. Well, I remember you way back in the day of 
coffee, cigarettes, and gnosis, and you had that scruffy look. Where, <laughs> when did you start, Miguel? Um, I started putting out podcasts probably 2006, but I mean, oh I was God. part of Free Thought Media, which was, it really was a new, the, new atheist organization, but again, the enemy of my enemies a friend, so they were very happy to have me on, and I just started putting out shows here and there. But again, it wasn't really until 2018 that I started going full time with it. Before it was just sort of, I was one of those periodical podcasters, a show here, find a guest there and so forth. So it's amazing how time flies, huh, guys? Well, I don't know if it's amazing or not. (laughs) I don't know if it's a better world or not. (laughs) I think the world went mad in 2016. That's when the trickster started. But it's it's been a lot of fun, even more fun. Yeah, we were listening to uh, a feature from the Grim America guys, and they were talking about, you know, it looked as if we were winning <laughs> the battle prior to 16, uh, at least in terms of the skeptical crowd, the new atheists. But then, uh, <laughs> much suddenly we realized, oh, this was just a battle. It wasn't a war. <laughs> now we realize we're in a war. Yeah, yeah. Now the war has started. But I think we are winning. I mean, I think it's obvious. I remember even talking to Gordon around that time. Gordon was saying materialism is dead, and it is dead. Uh, I think uh, the science proof. It was born dead, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. I mean, I had new atheist friends, and around 2016, they were telling me, look, uh, my friends at Mythicist Milwaukee, they were telling me, look, We've got to pivot because the reason rally isn't getting people, the sweet talking gigs are not there. Yeah, yeah, we've 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 punched out uh, orthodox religions and the fundamentalists really well, but now we're dying, so we need to pivot to um, <clears throat> free speech issues and so forth. And obviously, guys, you know, shysters like Sam Harris and those guys have moved on to other pastures. The thing is. 2016 suddenly everything became so politicized and that's the danger because what's the saying Uh, in an authoritarian society everything is political and that is nice that all three of us if we've pretty much avoided the politics we've kept our eye on the ball and stayed out of the distractions that are out there instead of just going with the herd Mm. well i'd have to disagree with you which i'm good at doing (laughs) on the materialism is dead. And I think that anyone who thinks materialism is dead just doesn't understand the extent to which these guys have bullets in their gun that they haven't even, you know, not only haven't even fired, they haven't even loaded them in the gun yet. And I think what's happening now with uh, with the reemergence or the recycling, the rebooting, as they say in the movies, of climate and uh, of the global warming scam is is evidence of that. And I think what they've done with the full frontal assault on science, it with the pandemic, is going to be cycled back around and in a subtle way is going to re-energize the materialism debate by not even making it center stage. It's going to be completely off the stage, but you can't really get to any of these issues, any of these global issues, anything that's global in it. You you can't get into the global pandemic or global warming or any of that stuff without materialism. Materialism hasn't, hasn't been defeated. Yeah, but, but, but look, uh, I think you said this yourself, Alex, in an interview. Um, 
think it was you, you said that, yeah, we may have won the debate, you know, the, the battle, but they're still controlling the institutions, like, like Wikipedia, they're still controlling that. They, they won't debate anyone anymore. Especially not after you've exposed them. So, well, you, you know, you ref, but you referenced the interview that I did with Mario Beauregard 10 years ago. And it's funny, Dr. Mario Beauregard from Montreal, and where he said he was optimistic 10 years ago. This mm. is right directly to this mm. point mm. that his, his talk on the intersection between spirituality, consciousness, and how that was a direct contradiction to materialism was gaining more traction. It was gaining acceptance within academia. Just interviewed the guy. It, what he's now said is that he realizes what a rigged game right. it was and what a false promise it was, that openness. And particularly, you know, as it relates to maybe some of the more conspiratorial stuff that you and I have done and Miguel has touched on over the years is he sees the connection with MK Ultra and MK Ultra was deeply embedded within uh, McGill in in Quebec and just in general Quebec being you know kind of a, a, a Vichy a, a Vichy supporting in World War II and direct deep connections to MK Ultra programs so to, to, to imagine and to romanticize about the idea that these guys have kind of given up on the materialism that you're a biologic roadblock, there is no divinity in you, so to even bother trying to access it. I, I just don't think they're anywhere close to that. I think they have a different a million different ways of spinning it. And I think, uh, I think Satanism is a perfect way of really spinning materialism in a way if you listen to what like mitch horowitz who i had on the show and he's a defender of michael aquino who is the verified you know over and over again pedophile and and he you know that is that is another new thought spin of materialism that gets him to kind of the same point you know which is don't worry about your divinity. It's 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 more complicated than that. And let me let me tell and let me slip in the transhumanism with it in a way. So that doesn't exactly sync up with exactly where Miguel is at. But it's why I've always loved and respected Miguel's work is because he's deeply enmeshed in exploring these topics. So I just stole the mic there, Miguel. So please. Tell me what you think about that, because I'm always interested in what other people are thinking. So what's going on with you in that? Yeah, and particularly, Miguel, tell us what you're thinking about the Aquino, Michael Aquino thing. Alex is pretty decided on that. Yeah, I think I'm probably leaning towards where Alex is on it. I haven't delved as deeply as uh, he has, but uh, the evidence seems pretty strong right there. And it doesn't, uh, not looking good, but uh, things definitely change. I mean, but I think at the same time, yeah, the biological robot, I mean, we do live in an era where Marianne Williamson actually ran for president yeah. and had some traction. We do live in a time when somebody like, I don't know, uh, Jordan Peterson can, regardless of what you think, can sell uh, millions of books on a sort of uh, latter-day Jungian kind of attitude. So I think things are going in. But, but yeah, I think the, the narrative or the, the hypno... The hypnotizing magic has changed. I think it's gone from biological robot to you will own nothing and like it. You will eat bugs and live in a pod. So <laughs> I think they're sort of taking it with the big brother will take care of you instead of uh, you're really nothing. So just be debauched. 
We, and we live in a time where Sam Harris is meditating. And we're living in a time where a bunch of Neil deGrasse Tyson yeah. is admitting to a paradigm, uh, you know, the simulation thing. Mm-hmm. Complete science fiction. Uh, no, well, not fiction, but complete, should I say? I mean, some of these uh, new fad paradigms that the desperate materialists are clinging to now are actually much more wacko than some traditional stuff. <laughs> uh, uh, the number of dimensions and, and really how the regular old stream materialist paradigm is breaking apart. But they don't realize themselves, I think, the philosophical depths of what they're adopting and flirting with now, uh, because they've never been a very good philosophers anyway. But when you really examine it, uh, we've managed, I mean, it's a completely different, so, so there has been movement. I'm not talking about winning and losing here, but change for sure. But here, here's the point, and we're kind of getting off of the whole thing that we've been doing for the last three hours on this awesome <laughs> thing that you've done for me, Al, which is so super. But like, maybe if people were to get a sense of what skepticals about, I can't let go of this, McGill. I can't let go of Mitch Horowitz, who's been on your show, who when I asked Mitch Horowitz if he's a Satanist, he said, yeah. And then I said, here in writing, you've said one of your inspirations is Michael Aquino. And he says, yeah. And I said, yeah, but Michael Aquino has been outed as a pedophile at the Presidio and the Army report. Anyone can go and read these declassified documents where he sued the Army to not say he was a pedophile. And the Army said, nah, there's too much evidence. We have all this evidence. We have direct testimony of uh, that shows that you lied and shows that you brought kids into your house and you and your wife. Was he arrested? Well, he, he was not. He was not. But the, the point is, he was. But if is that the measure by which we're going to, uh, uh, you know, evaluate these things, the truth would be hidden in exactly the way that it's hidden. I think it's significant that the army was not willing to back down. And as a matter of fact, went out of the way to say that. It, and, and think of that. This is Colonel Michael Aquino, mm. highly, highly connected in many different ways with people that we've already talked about on this show. So what's going on with the Satanism and materialism connection? And materialism is just the, like you said, to to say you will have nothing and you will be happy is exactly mirrors you're a biological robot in a meaningless universe. I mean, you are a biological robot. So the connection between that and Satanism, I say Satanism, when I use Satanism, I always have to add the caveat. I don't know what Satanism means. I mean, I'm not, I don't believe in the, the Christian dogma doctrine, which is the origins of that term. But I understand that, you know, Mitch Horowitz is not standing on any kind of historically solid ground when he says that Michael Aquino is a tremendous influence. And then when I put the pedophile pedophilia stuff out there, he's like, no, 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 that isn't true. That isn't true. No, the evidence is overwhelming that it's true. So I think the one thing that I guess that I've bumped into with uh, with with you, Miguel, lately is I think the truth telling part of this is on one hand very slippery because we all know that there is no ultimate truth, but on the other hand, I think we need to clean up our community and we need to clean up the truther community in a number of ways. Yes. But part of it is, nah, you're you're, you're responsible for saying stuff that 
doesn't pan out. And I'm, I'm glad that I nailed Mitch Horowitz to the cross there. Yeah, I mean, I like to think of, I mean, I always like to stay more as a historical person. I don't want us to get too much into having our own sort of cancel culture. I get annoyed when the cultists try to cancel Aleister Crowley because, again, I just I, I like to read history. I like to see how these figures impacted the stream of the esoterica and the mainstream. I mean, mm. people were making arguments about Muhammad having a nine-year-old daughter yeah, or yeah. – uh, I mean, every of these figures was definitely mixed. I mean, you know, I love Carl Jung, had affairs with his wives, uh, said some really stupid things about uh, other figures. Philip K. Dick was pathological in a mess. Uh, so I try, I mean, I'm sorry, I don't feel we should even ignore these figures. They're part of a stream. They had their values. And the last thing I want to do is sort of uh, cut them out like some sort of Stalin photograph. I mean, again, <laughs> I can't judge Mitch because uh, Aquino does nothing for me. I just see him as another historical figure. I'm not a fan of the Church of Satan because I think uh, one thing, the biggest danger of them all is the nihilism. I think that's what new atheism and Satanism and even, you know, you'd be careful, Zen Buddhism and others, they do bring a form of nihilism. And that's where the danger is, because not only are we biological robots, but then suddenly if we're biological robots, then nothing matters. Then we can really be immoral or be manipulated to do immoral things to others and uh, sort of live this uh, debauched, uh, this debauched life when nothing matters. We can be, that's what the Marquise de Sade said. He was an atheist and it said, the only thing that matters in life is pleasure. And we can just do anything we want to each other and it won't matter. To me, that's the biggest danger right there. Well, I'm, I'm with you on that. And this is actually an interesting discussion for you doing this show, Al, because this is where I'm at right now. I'm with you philosophically. I'm with you in terms of the esoteric and the mystical uh, understanding, which is impossible to always needs to have all doors open. Yes. But we also have to acknowledge deception. And I think we have to call out deception when we see it. And this, this has been particularly brought into focus by the last two years. Shut up and wear the mask. Well, what's the science to support that idea? Take the jab. What's the science in terms of, and so when we, when we have a total affront on science and we extend that to a total assault on truth and on history, I think we have to hold the ground there. So I'm all for all the cool things. Mitch Horowitz is a fascinating guy. He's incredibly articulate and well-spoken and he's written some wonderful books, but he's not truthful about Aquino. He's not processing it he's not processing it in a way that obviously is conforms to the historical facts and when he doesn't when somebody doesn't do that then you have to question what is behind that why are they you know we can all fumble and not be informed and then we get informed and we get smarter and we say oh gosh i made such a mistake why is he not course correcting and why do we see that again and again? That's all what the, the today's news is all about, right? Oh, let's move on to the next thing. We don't have to admit any mistakes we've made. That to me is a sure sign of the, the op. That is the op. So 
Yeah, I mean, no, we have to call these people on truth-telling. They do have to find the truth, and they do have to tell the truth, or we should be suspicious of their motives. What do you think, Miguel? Yeah, I have faith in Mitch. He's a, he's a, he's a good guy, and he's a good friend. I mean, I remember there was a time, I think it was 2015, 16, yeah, that time when the cancel culture and the divide and conquer propaganda was being ramped up and people were going after Anne Rand really big time. Uh, they were just kind of trumping, not trumping up. They were bringing his, historical facts, but without context, be, you know, be on some clickable articles on the internet. And I remember Mitch writing a, even though Mitch is like very left leaning, very, I mean, he, he openly admits he loves Karl Marx, but he wrote this very, very sober, wonderful, long article about Anne Rand. And he said, these are her good parts, which I admire. These are the parts I do not admire. But let's look at the the whole package and let's see Anne Rand for it is. She's not the existential threat to a civilization that leftists would like to see, but she's also not the savior that a lot of libertarians and so forth would like to see. And he did the same with, uh, what's his name, uh, James Randi, who's the, the um, right? Yeah, the the big time atheist when he passed away. Except he got he got uh, raked over the coals by the atheist community, and he stood up for his conviction. And he said, "No, this is what I did. This is the good parts, the bad parts, uh, the questionable parts, and everything else." So I think um, I'm sure Mitch will come around. And he, of course, he talks a lot about many of his heroes that uh, that he's had. So. I think uh, we'll just see where this goes, but uh, yeah, I agree. It's not, it's not going anywhere. All this information has been out for years and the guy is a Satanist. So, you know, whatever that means to be publicly a Satanist and to publicly defend Aquino, again, this is where we, we differ a little bit. It's awesome. I still love you. I still love all your work, but I think we do. I think the litmus test thing as uncomfortable as people are with that idea. Yeah. I think there are litmus tests out there. I mean, if you think if, if you don't understand that nine 11 was an inside job, I mean, that's a litmus test. Your worldview is somewhat limited or you're trying to deceive in the case of Mitch Horwitz, he knows better about Aquino. He just wants to mislead people that, that this well-known Satanist, Mike Laquino, was not who he said he was. And that's the only- It's not the Satanism part that gets you, right? I think we, it's the pedophilia part. Yeah. That's, that's no, the it's the, it's the Satanism part because the do what thou wilt, as you correctly pointed out, I think that is the abomination on spirit, on divinity, on light, on the light that that is really what matters, is the the- whatever satanism is again and it can only be defined by a totally corrupt christian understanding of it so it's corrupt it, it is a meaningless term from the beginning but the only way to understand it is to understand it as deception as darkness as whatever those other you know we all know the tools in the playbook you know do what thou wilt all those things but it's darkness it's to bring you away from the light and that's to me, that's what Michael Aquino represents. His whole life represents that. And it's he's a sad, pathetic figure. I mean, he's not like a scary guy. He's just, he's passed, but his whole history is pathetic and his whole family is pathetic. I mean, it's, it, it, it's very, very sad, sad kind of thing. But we have to call darkness when we see darkness and we have to call light and we can be wrong sometimes, but I think we have to 
make those distinctions. Those are the most important distinctions. There there is light, there is darkness. Yeah, look, first off, I I haven't looked into the Aquina guy, so all I have to go by is what you've said, uh, Alex, and your guest, what's his name, Mitch? Yes. Mitch Horowitz, is that the name? Correct. Yeah. So, and he, he is, so, yeah, I agree. I got a very good impression, uh, of him. He seemed very nuanced. And, right. and nuance is, is what we need here. Like Miguel points out, but he sounded like he was sincerely disagreeing with you. And I think uh, you say he was lying, but that's, remember when you say that, you're actually implying that someone is saying the opposite of what they know or what they really believe. And, and, and of course that happens a lot. But when you're saying we have to call out our own, I agree with you, but not in the way you seem to mean now, because you seem to be on some kind of moral crusade. It's impossible to get everyone on board on that anyway. I believe we have to, uh, independent media have to call out themselves and each other for these reasons. Number one, we cannot leave it to the debunkers and the mainstream. And you see how they're treating Rogan and everything. They have agenda. Their entire starting point is a lie and manipulation. But if we do it with ourselves, people will recognize it's a truth purification process. It's we, we are, the independent media is trying to get to the bottom of whatever we are talking about. And a part of that must be to afford to disagree and to call each other out and notwithstanding also bashing obvious ops, like, for example, Flat Earth. Because otherwise, the moguls, they are being presented the, the mainstream public overtone window, which is completely bullshit, going nowhere, materialism, uh, or nothing, and love it. And then, as a scary kind of, come to us, come to the public overtone window, because look at what's going on over there. And then they put up the boogeyman's. That's how they started with Alex Jones, right? Who, yep. who is easy. You can take anything out of context, some rant he has. And everyone will run to the mainstream. Uh, but if you sit down with Alex Jones, you, you first you sedate him, then you ask him to bring all his sources, then you say, we have five hours, Alex, now explain why frogs are gay. <laughs> then he won't come off like a madman. But I'm saying, let us do it and not leave it to them. Because then... People will see it's a, it's, it's an, that's a part of the success of skeptical, like we talked about in the beginning, that unlike all the other people who went to the battle of gladiators, oh, I'm fighting for my tribe. You were going in there with a truth agenda. And that, that was recognized by many. And that also was scared away many, including the skeptics, because they're not used to talking with someone who is actually sincere. Yeah, let's look at the data. Okay, let's see what this means. You see, you, you understand what I mean? I disagree. I disagree. I, yeah, but did you understand it? My point? Well, of course, I, I understand it. But so I, what did you disagree with? Let's hear. Is that the subtlety that we're talking about right now is what's most important to me right now. Because I don't think this is an impossible, this kind of discernment that you're looking for is impossible to achieve. I think that the pandemic has forced us to sort through this stuff on a, on a, just on a scale of 10 from what we used to be. So we'll go back to Michael Aquino and I can <laughs> send you both if you want the, the excellent website where the guy has broken down all the, uh, you know, 
Michael Aquino was personally identified, him and his wife were identified by 60 witnesses, children in the Presidio Child Care Center in San Francisco. The evidence was so strong that they were able to get a search warrant for his house. When they got it into his house, they found exactly what the kids said. Mm. Walls all painted black and red, an altar out of bones. And they had all, they found pornographic films and videos. And you asked a great question, Al, was he ever convicted? No, he wasn't. Why wasn't he convicted? Maybe because he was a colonel in the army with the connections of how this pedophilia and Satanism had infiltrated in so many ways. Yeah. It is not believable to me that Mitch Horowitz, as intelligent as he is, is not aware of this evidence. That is not that, that I, I'm willing to accept that maybe that's true, but I would say that the, the burden of proof would be strongly on anyone who maint as intelligent as him, has as well read as him, who doesn't have that information. So that's where I kind of draw the line yeah, with, yeah. Old with both you with both you and Miguel, where you go, oh, you know, he's a good guy. No, no, he, he sounded like no. he was. Yeah, yeah, but all skeptical would have him back on. Uh, first send him the evidence after the first show and then have him back on to confront him. Oh, I, well, gladly. I've, I've offered <laughs> but, to have him back on. He would never, yeah. he'll never come no, back on. Not. That's all these people. They never come back on. Of course not. Are you kidding? No, I read your first book. I know you had people come back on after a disagreement. <laughs> who, who came you, back on? Who? I'd have to read Why Science is Wrong About Everything. There's a few that you do mention in your first book. I The Brave... You had printed out the emails, you know, we had a disagreement, let's come, let's do this again. So there's a couple of people who did come back yeah. on Skeptico. Yeah. Well, you know, that was back in the day when it was about like research papers in parapsychology and a narrow thing. Right. The culture issues and the deeper esoteric issues and really the spiritual issues and these issues of evil and darkness versus light. Uh, my experience is, no, those people do not. Mitch Horowitz is welcome at any time to come on and talk about the specifics of the Colonel Michael Aquino case. Colonel is really the, the most important figure. Definitely deep connections to MK Ultra, deep connections to all sorts of mind control experiments. That should really be the focus, not his Satanism, Satanism and his pedophilia. It's that this was kind of and still is, we must assume, a significant part of whatever it takes kind of military mentality, or we don't even know what how, how far that reaches. But oh, yeah, I can believe that. Because did you see the recent CIA revelations that uh, a bunch of people in CIA exactly. were pedophiles and criminals, and they weren't even charged? The worst thing that happened was that they lose, lost their jobs. Uh, I, I think one of them lost their jobs. Well, they did. They did go to court with one uh, CIA employees, but that was because he had uh, mishandled sensitive classified information. That's why they went after him. So we, all the others. But Al, but Al, we have to stop saying. This is my opinion. I'm calling Miguel out here too on this nice. He came out <laughs> to do a nice wish me well kind of thing. <laughs> you know what? No, he just because he's a nice guy. And just because he wrote a nice piece on Ayn Rand doesn't mean that 
He's telling the truth here, and he has to tell the truth all the time, 100% of the time. That is our obligation. And if we're not telling the truth 100% of the time, then we must have a different agenda. The agenda is to intentionally deceive or mislead. There's, that's that's kind of simple. Yeah, I mean, tell the truth. I mean, you can tell the untrue without intention. But uh, I'll give the comment to Miguel. Uh, yeah, um, I don't know what to say. I just came to say happy anniversary, man. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And you got sucked in. Yeah, yeah. Why well, do we get into uh, Michael Aquino? Uh, I don't know what else to say. I mean, uh, okay, what's okay? Why don't again? I feel one thing that has to be said is we also have to talk about definitions. What is Satanism? What are we looking for? How deep it is? Because Alex, you, you're talking, you're saying the important thing is the MK Ultra, but to me, the important thing is the pedophilia, and that's what needs to be brought into, or we need to define these terms. What are you looking for? Because the Temple of Set, I know people in it; they're good people. It's a Neoplatonic organization. It doesn't even focus on Satanism. And again, we go round and round. What is Satanism? There's different strains of Satanism. Uh, throughout history, there have been different strains of Satanism from the I love the Prince of Darkness, I want to kill to the more uh, Luciferian. And of course, the Church of Satan today is simply a humanistic. Uh, well, I don't I don't personally, I don't like their agenda. I think I think they do more damage than good, but uh, they do claim to be a humanist agenda that simply sees Satan as the symbol of rebellion against the establishment. I, I, I get all that. It gets down to a matter of if you accept the idea that there are there, that there is a darkness, there is a dark force, there is a dark energy, and some people, for various reasons, are drawn to that. Do, do you accept that idea, or do you not accept the idea of a, a light and a dark? Of course. I mean, we've had conversations. I mean, it, all of us cast a shadow. All of us have the potential darkness within us that could go off at any minute. Right. So when we're drawn to the dark, that's not good to keep things really simple. And when we see people who have a, a, a life that is basically enmeshed in and has fallen victim to the darkness over and over again, these are not people we want to prop up and say that that's the right thing. We, we feel sorry for him. Like you feel sorry for Mike Laquino. He's a pathetic person. But, yeah, but Alex, I mean, uh, here's an example, for example. You know, I loved, when I was younger, individuals like Jim Morrison or Frank Zappa. I thought they were great. They inspired me. So some of their music and poetry saved my life. Uh, made, and I guess you can make an argument, maybe took me down drugs, but whatever it is, very impactful people on my life and other people. So now I read, you know, of course, you get older, you find out, oh, mother, these motherfuckers were part of a military MK Ultra. They were part of the machine to hypnotize humanity. But you know what? I still like their music. I still like their message. I still have a place in my heart for them, even if I'm like, you sons of bitches were part of the, the you were part of the darkness. So it's, it's pretty complicated that way. I mean, I'm sure you've got examples yourself. You know what? Well, I, I, I do in that way, but Miguel, it really isn't that complicated because you're telling the truth. You're not saying that I'm such a fan of Jim Morrison that I can't accept that his father had these deep military intelligence connections. Yeah, and Frank, you're telling the truth. That's all. I, that's all I want is the truth.
Mm. But uh, like I said earlier today, truth isn't high in stock despite the party speeches. Um, but it is the driving force of your show. And our little uh, sideshow here illustrates Skeptical 4.0 because you've gone full esoteric. That's my point for Skeptical 4.0 or, or w- w- the direction you're heading anyway, <laughs> which is why I kind of like the association with Miguel and Gordon. Uh, look, I have one more clip to play. Well, we have to we, can- we have to let Miguel go because if you want to talk about being sandbagged and ambushed, <laughs> this is it. This is an example of it. You invite somebody on for one reason and then you totally turn it around. Yeah, but that wasn't planned. I mean, neither of us. <laughs> I know. I'm just I'm just kidding because I, I I so love and respect Miguel, and I I grilled him pretty hard there on on Mitch Horowitz, but I won't stop. I'm um, I. Stand by whatever all the things I said, but he he doesn't have to go. He can he can stay for a while. Uh, we just have one more clip. Well, we should invite. We should give him the opportunity to go. Right, he's right. been he's been very generous with his time. No, I'm good. I want to listen to this clip. Cool. No, it's okay. all good. It's all good. I mean, as Jim Morrison said, no one here gets out alive, so we might as well enjoy each other's <laughs> company because it ain't gonna last. <laughs> exactly. You know, the other interesting thing about Jim Morrison, what does it mean to be the son of that? How much was it really within his, you know, it's very complicated. It, the same thing is true with uh, Aquino. His background and his parents, horrible, horrific, horrific. So he is a victim as well as a perpetrator. Yeah, yeah. I mean, these, these again, monsters are created. Nobody wakes up one day saying, I want to cause untold damage yeah. to humanity and rob people of their dignity and destroy civilizations. These things are... I mean, you've done plenty of shows on that, Alex, you know, the satanic cults. I mean, the elite have to blackmail, rape, abuse each other to keep each other trained and honest, you know, honor amongst thieves. So, yeah, you have to feel compassion for individuals like Jim Morrison and other of the tools of the this wickedness in high places. Look, I worked in psychiatry, and one of the first things I learned when uh, working with abused children was that three or four abusers are abused, were abused. So, yeah, it's maybe what the Christians call the heritage sin. Is that the English word for it? The, the bad vibes going generation by the generation. The sins of the father. Yeah, that's what you do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We uh, directly translated from Norwegian is heritage sin. Uh-huh. But um, before we uh, play the last clip and comment upon that, it's kind of connected, actually. Uh, but we were talking about calling others out. You didn't comment upon that, Alex. You, you just wanted us to agree that this chap is a Satanist. But don't you agree, really, that we need to keep each other honest in the independent media and that we need to create a climate where this it's okay. Because remember, the cancel culture and the politicization, the bullshit left-right narrative when it's all about bottom-top, remember all that stuff and also the, uh, oh, you, I'm too sensitive to hear what you're saying. All that is artificially created from those who set the agenda. If you want to look at what it, what happens when nobody tries to intervene, then look at internet from its inception until 2015. It was, like I've said before, it was uh, an anarchic state and it worked and everything we know came from that, right? And so free speech, freedom uh, also means that it's okay to disagree. So, so what do you, what do you guys think about that? That we should clean up our own area on our premises? 
Well, I just think we just have to be committed to the truth and telling the truth and not worrying about, you know, oh, he's such a good guy. I'm friends with him. You know, there's a bunch of people that I've had over the time in the relationships that they don't always work out because I'm pretty vocal about saying this is the truth I've discovered. If this upsets you, or if this means we can't be friends anymore, I I'm sorry, but I have to pursue the truth. I can't pull up because we're friends. Mm. Yeah, but, but that goes together with making it okay to disagree. I think we need to teach people that that's okay too. Uh, because when people are not identified with illusions like their emotions or their thoughts, yeah, I, then they I just think a lot of this a lot of this shit about cancel culture is is bull is obviously bullshit. It isn't that hard. The discernment in this way is not that hard. It's 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 you get that you got to let other people say stuff and you also get if people say really, really stupid stuff, you don't you're not obligated to sit there and, and be subjected to it. You know, so yeah. well, I think we, we have a real good sense, a much better sense of where that line is drawn than what we pretend when we hear about, oh, you know, because cancel culture is just that they're just banning people, they're just censoring yeah. people completely. So yeah. we get it. Let, let Miguel in there. Yeah, but he, he <laughs> muted himself. Um, yeah, I am <laughs> unmuted now. Uh, well, I mean, the cancel culture, I think, is also about thought control, uh, herd mentality, divide and conquer. It's uh, totally it's a lot more complicated than that. I don't know about yeah, policing each other. I think the truth is there. I mean, all three of us have our podcasts and these are our homes. This is our voice. This is where we get to say what we want to say and explore things that we want to explore and our views are always going to be changing as marcus aurelius said uh two things in life to live by let reason guide you and change your mind so we are going to evolve in these things i mean but there are many prodigal sons out there look at uh, i'm bringing in jordan peterson he bought into everything he made his choice and he got, you know, twice vaxxed, lockdowns. He went with everything. And he went as far as he could with it and finally said, okay, this is it. I was lost in the wilderness. Now I'm done and I'm putting my foot on the sand. So yeah. sometimes there are um, there are going to be prodigal sons out there, just like I've been a prodigal son before. Um, but as far as policing each other, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I mean, again, we have to, we really need to get down with definitions of what things are and everything else. I know Alex obviously has been exploring it with the idea of evil, and that's a topic that's complicated in itself that could take years to untangle. Um, so yeah, that's really, uh, that's all I got on this topic, really. Yeah, brilliant. Okay, let's move on then, and I'll play a new clip. This is a mesh of three different statements. I'm, I'll call it a clip on giving voice discovering other shows, experimenting with joint projects. Which is the other impetus of the show that really remained sound and true to this day is that there's a lot of really important thinkers out there who don't get airtime. I think that's really probably less true now than when I started because there's been a, a growth 
on the internet of shows like mine or shows in this general topic area that now cover these topics more thoroughly, which is fantastic. I think that's great. I'd love to be obsolete at some point. Well, you know, one of the things that's interesting about the medium of podcasting is that these things live forever in time. And it's one of the real fun things for me is getting emails from folks who say, hey, I just discovered the show on episode 140, and I've decided to go back and listen from the beginning. You know, I think, wow, that's so great. I mean, that's, I've done that so many times in exploring something and getting interested in it, and then finding that there's this library that I can go back and listen to. The project was supposed to be a much grander project where I would bring you some of the ideas from some of the podcasters I most admire and I think are really changing our understanding of truth and reality. I have some in various stages of development, so if people really, really like it, I'll try and push forward with that, but I basically abandoned that project because it just didn't have any legs to it. So here... First, you're talking about giving voice, but now there's so many others, so I wouldn't mind getting obsolete. Well, that statement could just be made before the censor time, <laughs> because now we're back to scratch. <laughs> now people are being cancelled left and right. So now we really need a few shows that um, still doesn't self-censor like that. Then you talk about discovering other shows, the back uh, catalogue. Of course, I recognize that from when I discovered... Um, skeptical and i suspect you did the same you discovered my show alex and maybe miguel did the same and then you talk about projects and that's interesting because that's a callback to what we talked about earlier alex that you've been trying you, you've been doing experiments you've experimented with the format you've moved on in terms of subjects you turn it into books and you even have tried to move and experiment with other mediums and I guess that's a phase you're not completely done with yet. So, well, um, you know, it's funny. Yep. It's funny because we're talking to a guy right here, Miguel Connor. Exactly. Who was involved in that. <laughs> I know. <laughs> exactly. Because I had this idea to do, to really bring just these incredibly gifted and deeply thinking people like Miguel, who I, I hope you can see. I, one of the things I, I love is that I don't exactly sync up with Miguel on everything, but I fundamentally sync up with Miguel on the most important heartfelt, uh, spirit-felt kind of things. And I was so moved to that that, you know, we tried to do this thing, Truth Bump, and I hired a guy, supposed to be a really good guy, go out and film Miguel back when he lived in Chicago, and I hired another guy in Russia, who was very talented and did some graphics and stuff like that. And I, it ate my lunch. I mean, it realized just how hard it was to put something like that together that, you know, and, and the one we did, the one that I did and I published with Miguel on YouTube, it was, I thought it was really good. And I thought it showed, a, it's just Miguel, but yeah, I, I think, what did you think of that, of that video? I think it went, I think it came out really well. I enjoyed it. So uh, the graphics, the tone, the music. But I don't know that it really, I don't know that it accomplished what we wanted it to accomplish is, is do you think it was a springboard for people to get into Aeon Byte? Or do you think 
we need those kind of things or, or now it's just there's so much i just think people have to find it organically yeah i agree i mean the advantage is that we can experiment all we want why this is the golden age of podcasting podcasting is yeah. talk about moving culture and giving people choices and everything so we can play along we can fail we can tweak but the, the it's beyond the algorithm this is truly a a stream of the collective unconscious i was i mean in our lifetimes we really thought google was god the closest or the closest thing to the demiurge the supreme being of our culture <laughs> last year is the first year where google is no longer the number one site it's actually TikTok. video is killing the search engine wow. star I mean, imagine people are probably never thought they would live in this world because Google is it's like, again, it's God, it's ubiquitous. It's what we use every day. And now it's fallen and people are, are and experts are saying it's not just, you know, video and TikTok and the show, but it's podcasting. That's where people are going more than Wikipedia, more than other places. And people can discern. They can listen to this podcast and not podcast. And people email me. I, I, I wanted to learn about this subject and that subject. So it's a good time. And so uh, with Truth Bomb, uh, again, we can experiment. We can go to video. We can do more YouTube. We can try this, that. It's all our voice will continue. And you've got you've to take those risks here and there and learn from them. That's for sure. Yeah, but Miguel, you know why this is the golden age of podcast, right? And and the the answer to that is also the same answer to what will happen next. The reason, obviously, is that it's a lost area not being controlled and censored, which is why if you right, paid it's attention, it's an RSS feed. It's out there. You stream it. Yeah. Everybody gets it. No, no gatekeepers really. On TikTok, you mean? No, for podcasting. Yeah, but haven't it's you? Still no a very free. It's still free, but haven't you noticed uh, the campaign that's ramping up? Not just against Rogan. Uh, mainstream is oh, calling. Yes, yes, they started. Yeah. Yes, and the reason is that YouTube used to be like, I remember guys, I started at YouTube, and YouTube was a Klondike back in the day. It was the Wild West, it was amazing. <laughs> it was, and it was even better than podcasting, because we were being paid, instead of paying. <laughs> now, they're going to crack down on podcasts. If they're going to succeed with the Great Reset, or whatever you want to call it, they can't have this little, this huge space out there that's not controlled by algorithm and censorship and all that stuff. So it's coming, guys. It's coming. But we better enjoy it while we can, because, yes, it's still the last free space. Well, that's why it's better to adapt. I mean, go to places like Rockfin, Odyssey. I mean, yeah. and, and like you said, they, they have to take down. Rumble. Yeah, they have to take Rogan down first. That's it. And right now, he's got Teflon. Yeah. Alex? No, I, I'm, I don't. Who knows? Okay. <laughs> Censorship. <laughs> this is important, man. <laughs> yes. And he went quiet. Well, but um, go ahead. No, no. You want to say something? Talk. No, I mean, we'll, we'll see. We'll see. It's a constantly evolving thing. I think what, what the guys are with uh, podcasting 2.0 are trying to do is tremendous. Mm -hmm. And it's a, an attempt to kind of circumvent what we know is coming so yeah it's a very tech conversation if you want to get into it yeah 
Yeah, I mean, it's still the same thing of uh, controlling the narrative and all that, and it's gotten away from the elite or the establishment. So that's why, and they're trying, but right now there's they don't uh, they don't have a good plan because again, it's an RSS feed and it goes through Apple, it goes through exactly. all these other places. Yes, I know Apple is more centralized, but Apple has been very good of just letting all this information fly out. If there's any place I've gotten strikes before, it's all on YouTube. Only on YouTube have I had my videos taken down. And uh, even, well, YouTube is turning into a disaster. Yeah, after Google uh, purchased it. Mm -hmm. But of course, uh, it's a rigged game because those who own the big platforms is the same who owns the those who advertise on those platforms and are the same who owns the mainstream media so it's the same owners and of course they don't they panicked when they realized that everyone is turning away from one part of their industry namely television and newspapers onto youtube especially youtube so they purchased youtube because otherwise they would be paying us for ruining their mainstream media they are paying, it's their products, their advertisement products, and then paying us with advertisement on their platform. <laughs> so it was a suicidal model for them in their kind of paradigm where they want total control, right? So yeah, we've been flushed out. And uh, yeah, podcast is the last uh, bastion, precisely as Miguel says, it's much harder to, to control, but I'm sure they're going to find a way. Let them try. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Well, it's like what blogging was 10, 15 years ago. Everybody had a blog. There was a lot of controversial blogs. People went to the comment sections to fight uh, and all that. And then it sort of has, has mutated more instead of video has mutated more into the podcasting format. And that's really exploded uh, because of the it's hard to control and people really are thirsty for finding information and trying to understand yeah. what's going out there or finding voices out there they can relate to. I mean, podcasting is so extensive from cooking to short story interpretations. I mean, everything you want, you really have it at a fingertip, but with a very human uh, expression or feel. These are real people who are behind the microphone who you can connect in a way you couldn't with other aspects of the internet. Exactly. That That's one of the things Joe Rogan and Alex has in common, that everybody who, who tunes into that, those podcasts immediately recognize that this is a guy on a truth quest. It's a sincere fellow who who is not driven by the ego on a truth quest. And that's the uh, key to success. I, I guess, Alex, the difference between you is that Rogan is content with uh, staying down at the foot of the mountain. This is a callback to a metaphor we used earlier. So you forgive me if you don't get this, Miguel. But Rogan is, is, is running around the mountain while you are insisting on going to the mountaintop. Yeah, I'm very reluctant to comment, you know, because... Joe Rogan is in such a different class than the tiny little shows that we do. And it, it's just a whole different dynamic. And I the don't know. The only difference is the number of people tuning in. What do you mean? Well, I, I, don't, I don't know. I just think that's a, everyone wants to, you know, I don't know. We don't even know if, where that whole thing is going to go. And I don't know if he's good or 
good or bad or anything. I've, you got to say, great, great. What he's accomplished has clearly been overall good. Yeah, I don't listen to him much, I'll be honest. <laughs> so, I, I mean, I'm just like any Joe. I look at the guests first. I go, okay, the guests. If I'm interested, I'm interested. That's that's the beauty of it. <laughs> Same with any, any other podcaster. What's the guest? What I think their chemistry will be like? And then make my decision. So, but he does... It's amazing because he does put out a lot of content. He's always done, you know, three to four podcasts a week, three hours. I don't know how you, I mean, that takes quite a bit of constitution, plus the research you have to do on the site. Each one of us probably spends quite a bit of hours on a, one single guest, one single week. Yeah. And that's a lot of work. And he's just, you know, consistent, long. And uh, again, he just takes, he asks questions, but he shows his humanity. He says, well, I did this and I, it reminds me of this and so forth. Mm. He, he can be corrected on air without uh, letting his ego freak out. Uh, like the guest said, he's a big boy. So, uh, yeah, there are parallels there. I have uh, one more question, topical question, and then uh, we'll wind down. Uh, it has to do with UFOs. Um, it's weird, Alex. I'm not sure if you, Miguel, uh, have you covered UFOs? Yes, definitely. I have covered UFOs. Yeah, probably in, once one yeah. out of every thirty shows or twenty shows. Right, in in connection with Gnosticism, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, because yeah. Gnosticism is like the some have said the original star or UFO cult. Yeah. Well, me and Alex, like you, we're not a UFO show, but we've touched it. But maybe I'm wrong, Alex, but it's funny because, like I said, I, I think you're heading in the esoteric direction. That's always where people end up. That's the top of the mountain, if you like. And you would expect then, with the consciousness approach, that I would have on, let's say, Graham Hancock for that take on the UFO approach, right? But no, instead, my main focus has been on the human space programs, the classified space programs, the human-made flying saucers, if you like. And Alex, we would expect the same, that you too would have that perspective. But you've had, you've had the E.T. alien kind of uh, perspective, which is kind of weird because both of us are so rooted in the... I mean, it goes without saying that that would be the first uh, model to explore, right? The paradigm, dimensional consciousness thing. Comment to that? Oh, man. I mean, we could do two hours I on, on that. I, I think that... Uh, here, here's my take. And I have an interview coming up with uh, just a fantastic person. His name is uh, Robert Hastings, if you've heard of him, but he's the UFO and nukes guy. He's been doing the work for 40 years. And then he just came out a couple of years ago and acknowledged that he was an abductee and that he's had contact for his whole life. And his mother even, is a he suspects, has contact from the stories he told. He was reluctant to come out and say that because of the reaction he would get from the nuts and bolts part of the UFO community, which you're kind of alluding to there. But there's an interesting juxtaposition there because his UFO and nukes information, his research is some of the most compelling research for the reality of the nuts and bolts reality of craft that fly over nuclear bases and disarm missiles. And that we don't know how they're doing it, but we have multiple observers, both above ground and below ground, and they disable all the 
missiles, which is obviously sending some kind of message about what they think about our technology and the, the, the what we're so proud of. And then lo and behold, the Iron Curtain comes down, the Soviets come down, and we find in their secret UFO files that they had the same experience, only there the UFOs turned on the missiles. Yeah, in Ukraine. Yeah. And they said, there, what are you going to do? In 10 minutes, countdown, you're going to destroy the Earth. And then the UFOs shut off the missiles. So anyone who wants to kind of pull the UFO thing into the consciousness realm, which I'm, you have to because there's a consciousness element to it. There's telepathy there. There's precognition there. There's all these other things there. You have to start by saying whatever this reality is, whatever this consensus reality is, they're definitely a part of that. Could be space Nazis. Don't, yeah, that, don't say that. Hey, that's my the angle. name is Nordic. The Nordic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that space Nazis are joined forces with the Archons. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Watch out. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, the UFO thing is a labyrinth. It's such a labyrinth. It's its own labyrinth itself. It's like, whew. It, it is. It is indeed. I, I hate that. I hate that. It's like everything is a labyrinth. We're just, but we can nudge closer to the truth. That's that's my final. That's my final shot. My final parting shot is yeah, that. Yeah, but but see, I don't think so. I mean, I think on a cursory look, anybody, and again, we're talking about honesty and truth, Alex. You can take an hour or two. And at the very least, you'll come by and say, you know what? The official narrative of 9-11 is bullshit. Same with Kennedy. Just two hours. Okay, let's, I'll give you five hours. That's it. <laughs> and it's so obvious. Now, with the nuts and bolts of 9-11, who's behind it and all that, that might take, but it doesn't take. Now, with UFOs, there's like a million ways we could go into it and see yeah. it. And I mean, it just... I think we're talking about different realms here. Uh, that's Oof. that's exactly to my point. How how in your estimation is it is it different? I just gave you an example of just the kind of nine eleven ish or JFK ish data. Robert Hastings interviewed over a hundred uh, high ranking, many of them high ranking, but credible military personnel who saw the UFOs in the nukes. So why why is that not at the same this could be a breakaway civilization this could be the nordics it could be again laugh about the space nazis it could be antediluvian many pot it could be aliens from a certain planet uh, see what i'm saying there's a million no i i don't because I, I think you're applying a completely different standard i mean you could you could apply that same standard of something completely outside of our consensus reality to 9-11 right uh, oh well so uh, yeah we could go down there yeah i guess we could go down that rabbit hole but uh yeah <laughs> it, yeah it could have been a, a it could have been a mystical ritual sometimes that's what i lean towards some sort of mass satanic ritual but that ties in with the government though yeah but i think there's a built-in bias that we've accepted to question the ufo and the alien contact in a way that doesn't doesn't conform to the same standards in terms of evidence and acceptance of it that we do in these other fields that it, within this kind of truth or community that we are, are okay with. So we're okay with saying, okay, I got the basic narrative on 9-11. It was an inside job. We seem less okay with saying, I got the story on UFOs. 
There are spacecraft that come here that travel at unbelievable, that defy our laws of physics. We don't know where they're coming from exactly. We don't know who's behind them exactly, but that is a reality in our consensus reality in the same way that the videos we saw in Building 7 and the big hole they have there in New York is a consensus reality that we that we accept. So, so do you think that anything is possible to to uncover the truth of anything? Well, we need to. We need evidence of the spacecraft. We need. Oh no, we need a spacecraft here that we can look at, and Roswell, obviously. Yeah, but that that necessarily doesn't explain UFOs. It may explain a little part of the phenomenon, but Graham Hancock will throw a book at your head, uh, which it doesn't explain. Well, Jacques Vallée is the if one. You know what I mean? Yeah, Jacques Vallée too. Jacques Vallée is the person. Yeah. That, yeah, but what people forget is that Jacques Vallée walks around with a piece of alien spacecraft in his pocket, and he's analyzed it Be with the most powerful. Because he's not dualistic. He's not either or. He's got full agnostic too. But the, <laughs> the, the, the point is when, when people want to go the full uh, consciousness blob thing for UFOs, it's just enough to me, it just looks so much like another, another block, another, you know, I can't go there. I can't cross that crazy line kind of thing. Again, I just point to the UFO and nukes thing. The, the concrete evidence is overwhelming. In any other's case, we just say, okay, that's a reality. We don't understand the details of it, but it is a reality that they have come and visited oh, oh, okay, these sites. But, but remember what UFOs are. UFOs are just a generic. Oh, my God. No, it's just a term for everything we don't know. I have seen UFOs. These things were space. They were from space. It was wild. And even Jacques Vallée, you know, again, going full-blown Gnostic and... He does say always ignore their ontological reality at your own peril. Yeah. In other words, he's warning people, you will go insane if you go. Yeah, if you they are real and they are tangible. But that's about it. But the rest is really up to us. It's much easier to know what isn't true when it comes to these things. Like we know the official narrative of JFK or 9-11 right. is not true. Okay. But after that, Alex, you can't say it's a clean thing. Everybody agrees. I just had Joseph Farrell on 9-11 and, and he's introducing a third layer mm. beyond the inside job thing, which also Webster Topley do. So people know, of course we don't do, because we don't know. We know what's not real. The, the sedation they're offering us, that's bullshit. But then the hard work of finding out what is real. And in that area, yes, it's very legitimate to explore all the certain aspects. But I, I don't think it's going to be as simple as, uh, you know, what you did in the beginning of Skeptico, namely immediately revealing exposing the skeptics and their agenda and and the, for, and the way they manipulate data, etc. Yes, we can do that in terms of finding out what's not true. You did that with the skeptics. So yeah, that part of reality they try to sell us is bullshit. But then finding out what is true, you're still on that quest. You still, even though you explore near-death experience, you explore parapsychology, you know consciousness is key, but is that a close chapter? Have you figured it out? No, of course not. And I think the same, we are doomed uh, for the same when it comes to UFOs. Okay. Yeah, as I say, also, uh, as 
experts or scholars said, you know, the best argument's the best argument. Let's say Farrell comes with the best argument for 9-11. And this is like, oh my God, Al's like, this is it. That does not invalidate <laughs> the second best argument or the third best argument right. or the fourth. Those arguments still exist and have to be held up until more data comes in event, you know. So these arguments, uh, there's nothing wrong with four or five strong arguments or even two or two strong arguments and two weak ones. They're, they're all part of the, the they, they matter. They all matter. Yeah, let let me say, uh, Miguel, that you know that I realized something. I forgot to tell my guest yesterday, Mark Gober. We were discussing uh, the show is going to be called "The Case for Liberty," but I forgot to say something that you reminded me of now, and that's the incredible, important ability to suspend judgment. It's completely lacking today, especially in America. But the whole culture is is sick. People don't uh, don't care about truth. They want to be right. <laughs> Whether they're wrong, even if they're wrong, right? right? But you don't have to make a verdict of everything. You can, if I don't know, I put it on the shelf and I'm either open to it or I wait until uh, I get more data, like you said. That's the best approach. It's not the same as agnosticism because that's agnosticism. If you're agnostic, then you're a chicken. You don't want to relay. You don't want to uh, take any stand. Here we're taking stands where we can take a stand based on experience and data, but some fields are just so huge. Some fields are maybe too huge for a human being to really decode. But we don't have to make up our minds about everything all the time. We can wait and see while we continue to explore it, if you see what I mean. I mean, okay, maybe it's self-evident in this company, but if you look out there, nobody almost is practicing that. Not in this country. It's like you said, it's either or, and you have to yeah. circle your wagons around an issue and reject everything else instead of, uh, again, look at all the arguments and see where they go. I mean, like Tartaria, my gut tells me the Tartaria argument is uh, bunk, but I'm, I'm slowly gathering data. I'm slowly, I'm eventually going to interview somebody on it and I'm open-minded. Who knows? Okay, uh, no comment from you, Alex. Uh, then I oh. think we're going to wind down this thing. Um, we've been on a journey now, the skeptical journey, and this last segment with Miguel was perfect because it illustrates where skeptical is today. We're on overtime, but just my last question, uh, and then let's say goodnight. Where do you think today, Alex, that skeptical is going? I think, I, I do think that this conversation and my grilling of Miguel. And also, it wasn't just the grilling of Miguel, it was the space that Miguel held during that. Man, that's, that to me is the conversation that needs to happen, mm. where someone can, someone can hear and respond and move towards truth, because it's always about truth. Right. Grilling? God, you should marry somebody Hispanic. You don't know grilling. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he's spoiled. <laughs> exactly. he, he's, he married a therapist, goddammit. Oh, okay. <laughs> anyway, guys, it's been fun. Thank you for, for doing this. It was super fun. And I hope it was uh, entertaining for people and enlightening, notwithstanding. After this, you should definitely have a pretty clear case of what skeptical is. I had fun. It was a blast. 
Al, you're the best. Thank you so much for doing this. Okay, it's officially over, guys. Goodbye. I got to run to the bathroom and then I got an appointment. I'm already okay. late. Too. Okay. All right. But All right. thanks again. And Miguel, thank you so much for jumping in here. Oh, anytime, guys. It was a, a lot of fun. We'll talk soon. <laughs> okay, later, guys. See you guys. Bye. Many thanks to all the good people who contributed to the show today. We'll close this session with Alex letting you in on the five essential things you need to know about Skeptical, which is an interesting summary that crystallizes the current version of the show. But first, a quick fact check. I made the statement in part one that Yogananda was also a mason. However, I got my swamis mixed up. I was actually referring to Vivekananda. So, now that's clarified, I'll leave the last word to Alex. The five things you need to know about Skeptico. The first thing you should know about Skeptico is that I approach Skeptico as my personal journey towards answering the biggest questions about life. Who are we? Why are we here? And most importantly, how should I live my life based on those questions? Mainly so that I can keep talking to the people I want to talk to, which of course includes you. And that's also why you'll never see any advertisements on Skeptico. You'll never hear me ask for any donations or anything like that. The show is really about my personal journey. I'm not trying to get anywhere with it. I'm not trying to advance any cause, run for office, create a name for myself or anything else. I just want to do my best to answer these questions and along the way, share my journey with everyone else. The second thing you should know about Skeptico is that the show is about following the data wherever it leads, or at least it started out that way. But let me digress into that for a minute. The point I wanted to make here is that when I started out, I had this idea that if I wanted to find out about this stuff, even this really big stuff, like questions about who am I, that I could just go out and find the data. I could go talk to the very best experts. I could go then talk to critics of those experts and then critics of those critics. I could follow the data wherever it led and I would get to some sort of answer. And to a certain extent that works. But I have to tell you that in the process of doing that, following the data wherever it leads, I came to the realization that it's not just about the data. It's about all the other stuff. And this has turned out to be a really important part of my little Skeptico journey here because it opened me up to two things. One, that people can have worldview differences that dramatically alter their ability to objectively look at data. And number two, it pushed me beyond that to then ask the question of whether or not that process of worldview formation is always under our control or whether there are other influencers that are trying to manipulate our worldview. It's a topic that I've returned to several times because it does seem to keep popping up. So this idea that it's not just about the data, it's about all the other stuff has been a reoccurring theme on Skeptico. So I don't know, what do you want to call that? Misrepresentation? Uh, misremembering? Lie? I don't know what kind of words you want to throw at it, but it's stunning. But it would be more stunning if it hasn't happened over and over and over again on this show. And we have countless examples. And all you have to do is go through the archives and listen to Richard Wiseman and listen to Ray Hyman 
Simon and listen even to even Novella. Listen to James Randi. All I mean, it's a consistent pattern. We can't even call Ben out for being especially over the top in terms of misreporting this stuff. It has to do with the bias, the worldview. It clouds their vision and they're just like the fanatical conservative religious folks that they so despise that can't get past the obvious problems in their logic. It's the same situation repeated over and over again. I started out with the idea of following the data wherever it leads and was smacked in the face by the realization that it's not about the data. It's about all this other stuff that causes people to have entrenched worldviews, entrenched belief systems, and then fight and resist any change or any challenge to those. So I guess that rolls right into point three of what you should know about Skeptico. And that is that what I'm really about is getting past these stuck on stupid debates, as I call them. And that I've found turns out to be pretty hard to do because we are surrounded by and enmeshed in a lot of stuck on stupid debates. One example of this that we've spent a good deal of time talking about on this show, because in various forms it seemed to keep popping up again and again, is the do Christians, or substitute any religion you like in there, know the true path to God, or are atheists right? So there's a good stuck on stupid debate for you. And I say that because as far as I can tell, both sides have some pretty darn stupid arguments. These did Noah use nails in the ark debate are the kind of debates I don't want to have. I mean, I guess there are some real archaeological questions there, and I want to be open to hearing some of that stuff, but it's pretty much in the shallow end of the pool when it comes to these who am I questions. Because to really understand why I think this is a stuck on stupid debate, we have to look at the other side of the table who's sitting across from us, and that is the atheist who's built his house on a very sandy foundation, and that is the belief that consciousness, that is the sum total of your human experience, consciousness is an illusion created by a biological robot. You, of course, being that biological robot. Now, this statement, which I've often repeated on Skeptico, but let me break it down for you because it's really a mashup of two of the most popular atheist thinkers of our time. That is philosopher Dr. Daniel Dennett, who famously said consciousness is an illusion, and Dr. Richard Dawkins, who of course said that humans are biological robots. Now, we've explored at great length on Skeptico how atheists often like to run from these philosophical underpinnings that prop up atheism, just like Christians like to run from the literal Noah's Ark thing. But I would suggest to you this ambivalence, this not knowing whether I should embrace the core beliefs of my group, in this case, embrace consciousness as an illusion created by biological robots, or whether I should run from it, is really at the core of these stuck-on-stupid debates, because I think it demonstrates the cognitive dissonance that we go through when we're drawn into these kind of debates that crop up all the time on Skeptico. When it comes to near-death experience science, suggesting that there's some deep brain activity that's undetectable by EEG that could explain the complex, deep, hyper-lucid experiences that people are having where they're seeing things outside of their body in other rooms while their eyes are closed and covered. 
Now, to suggest that is to say that everything we know about how the brain works is wrong, using some did Noah's Ark have nails logic. Because, hey, we don't have a model for the brain that explains how you can see with your eyes closed, or about how you can hear conversations in a hallway three floors down while you're on a gurney being resuscitated. Heck, we don't even have a model for how you can be having these experiences and not have an EEG going off like crazy. So to suggest that, oh, don't worry, boys, we'll figure all this out eventually and not sound some sort of alarm based on the data that does, except that near-death experiences are happening and that they are happening during a time when the EEG is flat. So not to announce that as some kind of enormous mystery that requires our immediate and serious attention and instead to shift the focus on these deep brain probes is a did Noah's Ark have nails moment. It's shifting the focus away from a topic that you don't feel really comfortable addressing so that you can kind of grind on something that's really pretty meaningless. And that leads me into point four of things you should know about Skeptico. And that is that if Skeptico is about moving past these stuck on stupid debates, these did Noah's Ark have nails kind of debates, then what kind of dialogues am I looking to have? Well, one of the things that really drives me, motivates me, excites me is all the interesting questions that lie beyond these debates. And there are so many of them, and I want to get to them. I'm less interested in whether or not Sam Parnia's new AWARE study will win over some of the atheist skeptics who are still on the fence about the reality of near-death experience. What I'm interested in is comparing near-death experiences with other experiences with extended human consciousness, whether they be a DMT-induced hallucination or a Kundalini experience or a UFO encounter. That's the kind of question that lies beyond the whole consciousness is an illusion of a biological robot stupid stuff. Now, to get to that next level kind of discussion, I'm going to have to circle back from time to time to revisit my assumptions, and I have to be aware and honest about the fact that consciousness is an illusion of a biological robot thing I'm talking about happens to be the dominant scientific paradigm, so we can't pretend it doesn't cast a huge shadow on any serious scientific conversation we might have. I don't want to pretend that's not true. And similarly, I want to be real about our culture's judeo Christian roots. And now that can cast a shadow on all conversations we might have about the spiritual implications we might discover when we go beyond this extended human consciousness. So I'm going to need to circle back and re-examine some of our spiritual traditions and religious traditions from time to time as well. And I'm sure I'll do that in future shows. And then finally on this point, I think I also have to be realistic and accept that this path that I'm on is not going to be wildly popular. And most folks have a worldview belief system that's dominated either by this scientific, materialistic, neo-Darwinism, atheism kind of thinking, or this true believer religious status quo kind of track. And since I've come to believe and understand that both are based on some pretty crippling assumptions, I got to accept that at best... People are going to probably be confused about where I stand or, and this seems to happen a lot, as you know, darn right hostile to me trampling all over their sacred cherished beliefs about science and or spirituality. And that brings me to the fifth and final point that you should know about the Skeptico show. And that is that 
The reason I do Skeptico is so that I can connect with you, so that I can create this community with other people who share my beliefs and interests and desire to kind of figure out these problems. It's going to take a village for me to figure out who I really am. And that's why at various times in the Skeptico show, I've tried to engage with other people to either come on and guest host with me or participate in other ways in the show or get involved with various projects. I like that. I think that community building is a part of not just the Skeptico show, but part of my path and what I want to do on this journey. That's it. Hope you enjoyed this stroll down memory lane. Thanks for staying with us. Take care and bye for now.